Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast, sponsored by the members of GrandTheftWorld.com. We got an action-packed show for you tonight. We're going to be here for the next six or seven hours, taking the week's events, smashing them into this little contextual history, digging into uh, a little bit more than the, just, a, just the superficial that you get out there. We're going to have some in-depth analysis on some of the things going on. Big topics in this week in Grand Theft World news, such as Elon Musk. Ukraine told him to F off last week. So this week he did. He pulled Starlink from Ukraine, Blackjack, all the satellites that were enabling them to fight the Russians. So there's kind of a standoff there. So while he's battling Twitter on one side, he's got uh, Zelensky and the people who told him to F off on the other. He's making a statement of his principles, I think. That's an interesting story. We'll get into it. And then one of the big stories this week, not a lot of people heard about it. It's a billion dollar lawsuit. I know what you're thinking. It's not that story. It's a billion dollar lawsuit against... Eco Health Alliance, Peter Dazak, the people who probably brought you the lab-created concoction, which then needed a lab-edited antidote. So uh, attorney Thomas Renz, he filed a lawsuit on behalf of, I think it's going to be a class action lawsuit. So if you know somebody who was uh, injured by that uh, pandemic situation, you might check into the lawsuit. They're asking for at least a billion dollars, but I think it's a good start. Now, on the other hand, there was... Another lawsuit type situation this past week that got decided and it was a billion dollar fine. One billion dollars fined to Mr. Alex Jones. And then uh, the tweet, the Twitterverse was uh, just popping off everywhere, comparing everyone from OJ Simpson to Ford Motor Cars. Ford Motor Cars, once upon a time, set some people on fire and it was only $3 million. Alex Jones, what did he do? What calamity? What genocide was he responsible for? In order to be uh, held to a billion dollar judgment, we will find out later tonight. And then uh, there was a, a co- there was like a, a viral clip going around this week from an EU member of parliament from the Netherlands. And during the meeting where they were questioning not Albert Borla because he wasn't sick with COVID for the third time. He just didn't show up to the meetings. So he put somebody in his place and that woman on the panel, let uh, the, the gentleman from the Netherlands know that, oh, yeah, there was no testing on whether or not it stopped transmission. And she said it in a very blase, you know, kind of matter of fact, because it was known on her side. But to the EU parliament, it was a big surprise. And then from that clip, I went back and watched the whole meeting. There's a whole bunch of other interesting clips in there that nobody's looked at. We're going to look at some of those tonight. Um, also, the Surgeon General from Florida came out with uh, some sort of 87% number. I don't want to even say, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to, that's a spoiler. I don't want to blow the whole story, but uh, it's some very provocative news. And because of that, because of the political censorship out there, they canceled him for a day or two, but he got back out there. So there is news erupting from the world of science that is very inconvenient to the narrative, which masquerades It's kind of a counterfeit science. It's uh, instead of spelled with an S, it has a dollar sign at the beginning of it which is also an interesting aspect. Follow the science. You find the money. Follow the money. You might find the people who are doing the science. We'll get into that story and more tonight. Also, Pelosi on January 6th conveniently had a uh, film crew with her all, all day. Coincidentally, it happened to be her daughter, who's a very fine filmmaker in her, her own right. And Pelosi has some quotes that seem to foreshadow what was going to happen that day, almost as if it was expected or wanted or desired or was like the crescendo of a career so we will check into that story 
And then special guest tonight, part two with Whitney Webb on her book, One Nation Under Blackmail. We get to the really juicy, substantial parts of the whole Epstein saga. And uh, yeah, there's World War Three brewing, but uh, we'll, we'll check into that later on tonight. We'll save it for later. Let's go to uh, the kickoff with Luke Bradowski from WeAreChange.org and TheBestPoliticalShirts.com and get uh, his summary from his Sunday report. Now, the very important thing I told my daughter and granddaughters, no serious guys in your 30s. Okay. Right? No what? No serious guys in your 30s. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> what? Why in the world would you do that? And, yeah, you do realize what he was named in his own son's phone as an official contact, right? Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. This is Lukadowski here of WeAreChange.org. And man, oh man, are things getting creepy out there and only a lot more creepier. And not that good for the majority of Americans that are about to face some very significant upheavals and problems coming our way that we're going to be documenting in this particular broadcast. Interest rates are up and it looks like groceries are about to become a lot more expensive. We'll tell you why. This as Elon Musk has put on a hit list as he also just flip-flopped as the world faces the brink of nuclear annihilation yes not not something that's hyperbolic it's something that again is becoming normalized by the day which is utter and insane lunacy in my opinion lots of very interesting geopolitical updates specifically from china we're going to be talking about that plus a lot more but before we begin the clip that we played in the beginning of this broadcast looks like it's from uh drew hernandez has his um his tag here. I don't know if he's responsible for this. Turning Points USA also has their thing in there. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Maybe. I think it's this gentleman who shot this footage with Creepy Joe once again, making a child feel uncomfortable as he goes right into her personal space, gets a couple sniffs in, and then literally tells her, no serious guys until you're 30. What? And, and again, and again, Biden publicly addressed this scandal in 2019 and he said hey i'm gonna respect people's personal space as today the madman lunatic tried to do it again with this latest clip as of course he went in again for another sniff look at that why why are you doing this and i think it's fair to say when you're in politics for that long you're around some really nasty nefarious disgusting human beings that probably are up to some really horrible things that we can't even mention here on this broadcast that's just my speculation this says of course joe biden's fiscal and social policies here domestically in the united states have been wrecking havoc and making everyone feel uncomfortable as is being revealed that nearly eight percent of people living in san francisco and seattle are planning to leave those major metropolitan areas because of the skyrocketing drug dens homelessness and of course criminality that is being excused by district attorneys that have been put in there by unaccountable billionaires all a part of a larger plan a larger scheme a larger agenda that of course you are dealing with the larger ramifications of who's paying the price for a lot of these policies you are a lot of these district attorneys are just puppets and they are deliberately making sure that crime lawlessness and chaos arises which in my opinion is a part of a larger plan that the billionaires financing this will be profiting off of in the next coming years all of this as life is becoming more and more unbearable especially in some of the most crime-ridden cities of them all like chicago that has seen some of the biggest rent increases in this entire country not only do you have to dodge and inhale bullets 
but also landlords now, as we're getting reports that rent increased in that city 23.9% on average. All of this as owning a home is becoming more and more unattainable for the majority of Americans. This as mortgage rates have hit their 20-year high to the tune of 6.92%, which means banks are lending out less money, people are buying less homes, as of course life is becoming more expensive, and it looks like it will become even more expensive as Kroger is right now in discussions with a major rival supermarket, Albertson, that could see them become a 47 billion dollar mega grocer essentially making them a very strong monopoly which of course essentially means that prices usually would go up because of this as of course there is less free market competition in order for that not to happen but don't worry as you'll never be able to afford a home as rent is becoming more expensive as food is becoming less competitive don't worry you of course will have the bugs that are already being given out to children in a thousand schools in Australia and being right now rolled out in the Netherlands. Two governments, by the way, that are, of course, lockstep and barrel with the World Economic Forum with this latest video highlighting the program that is literally forcing school children to eat mealworms. All of this in the name of sustainability, while, of course, big conglomerate multinational corporations are literally setting up a digital Orwellian social credit score where literally you will be paying paying with your face, your palm, and other physical recognition systems that will essentially make you try to live a life of a peasant that will be beholden to the whims of unaccountable multinational corporations that will control almost every aspect of your existence. But hey, now, not surprisingly, Elon Musk has been in some recent uh, controversy as, of course, he announced just a couple days ago that he is not going to be footing the bill for the Ukrainian Starlink that he has been providing out of his own pocket. This is, of course, after he propositioned a peace deal. Wasn't a perfect one, but it was good that he at least propositioned one, and he was told to F off by many senior Ukrainian government officials, and was even put on the kill list that individuals who have been targeted and have been successfully assassinated have been also previously put on. Also, to make the situation worse for Elon Musk, he was also put under investigation by the federal government for his conduct with his acquisition of Twitter. And uh, I think it's fair to say that there was a pressure campaign against Elon Musk, who over the weekend, just yesterday, announced, quote, the hell with it. Even though Starlink is losing money and other companies are getting billions of taxpayer money, we'll just keep funding Ukraine government for free. This as the United States also just announced that they're going to be spending another $725 million in weapons to Ukraine just right after Elon Musk said that he wants the Pentagon to pay for Starlink and not him, and now he just, of course, announced that he's going to be funding the bill himself. This says, of course, a lot of the weaponry, a lot of the advanced technology is leading to a new digital age of conflict right now happening on the battlefield of Ukraine, which is represented with a larger proxy war between Russia and the United States with NATO. This, as of course, NATO is still set to do their nuclear war game, flying American B-52 bombers all throughout Europe simulating potential nuclear attacks. This war game is planned for, of course, Monday, 
Russia also has their own war games that they're going to be conducting, and these war games will be conflicting, as of course, this NATO war game that's called Steadfast Noon will start Monday, but will be running through the end of October. This, as again, we're, we're hearing just some of the most atrocious, craziest statements from political leaders all throughout the world, with Russia specifically saying that there will be World War III if Ukraine is granted NATO membership, the United States and NATO saying that Russia will be annihilated, and in reality, with the advanced weaponry that both countries have, there's not going to be a winner. There's just going to be the end of the world, especially if there's a full all-out conflict between the two. This, to me, is stupid. It's absolutely nonsensical. France has announced that they're not going to partake in the end of the world, and for some reason, they're being criticized about that. And th th this fear is, is real. And, and very interestingly, Leon Panetta, the former CIA director, came out and said through their analysis and intelligence that he's getting the probability of a nuclear bomb going off in Ukraine is about 20-25%. That's about the same percentage that I actually told you guys a couple days ago that I believe is also probable, which is a huge percentage! One-fourth probability of, of a full all-out nuclear war is absolutely insane and, and needs to be de-escalated and stopped immediately. And a lot of countries see this as, of course, a lot of countries are telling their citizens to leave Ukraine. Poland just told their citizens to leave Belarus, which looks like it will, it is planning to enter this conflict. And one of the most surprising announcements came from, of course, the Chinese government that officially told their citizens to evacuate the country of Ukraine. Does China know that something's going on here, that something bigger is planned here? Well, again, we don't know, but a lot of countries have been telling their citizens to leave Ukraine all throughout the last few months, as of course China is in a very precarious place here, as of course they have a lot of business ties to Ukraine, but geopolitically they are more aligned with Russia when it comes to, of course, going against the West, their chief rival, their chief competitor in the global hegemony game, which of course they want to, of course, overtake, but... but they have a lot of uphill battles themselves to deal with. This as the Chinese president came out and warned that he will use force to retake Taiwan as he bragged during his two-hour speech recently that he was able to successfully conquer Hong Kong, vowing, of course, unification with Taiwan, which could potentially open up another big global conflict on the world stage, which would represent a proxy between the East and the West. Look at this photo, by the way, of the high command of the Chinese government not having to wear masks, but everyone else behind them forced to do so. This, as of course, China is implementing a lot of the policies cheered on by, of course, individuals like Bill Gates, as he also advises this government on a lot of routine policies and decisions that, of course, do adversely shape and impact the world. Is China going to be opening up their own proxy war front? Are they going to be helping Russia? Or will they just sit back and, of course, try to escalate this conflict, which would be in their own personal benefit as a rise in power, or will they try to de-escalate? What do you think? Let me know down in the comment section below. The geopolitical picture is very complicated, but also at the same time, very chaotic and crazy at this current moment. Lots of things are moving very fast. Expect major escalations in Ukraine because that's that's all that's happening. That's all that's being called for. That's all the politicians and media pundits are calling for as, of course, the calls for de-escalation, the calls for peace, the calls for people coming to the to the table and just sitting and just talking hasn't started. And, and again, no truce, no peace deal is perfect. Both parties won't get everything that they ever wanted to. But at least we eliminate the possibility of nuclear annihilation and we could potentially save humanity, which I think is, is, is worthwhile.
Look how fast the news breaks. When we started the show, I was under the impression Elon shut it off. But by the first clip, we found out he turned it back on. And the U.S. is sending more money over there. But we're not involved, right? We don't need to be involved over there. It's not a proxy war at all. Hmm. It's it's not like NATO is a front for the Anglo-American establishment, plus a couple token European countries who happen to live in harm's way between the Anglo-American establishment's policies and the Russians. It was set up just to make sure we could deal with the uh, the Russian menace during the Cold War. That's all NATO is. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to see there at all, Rich. Wink, wink. Yeah, sarcasm. That's part of the this comedy show. We just uh, <laughs> is a comedy show. Yes, wink. Just make wink. fun of the stuff as we present it. Sometimes it's not funny. World War Three is a tough topic. You know, you can't judge our comedy on the on the content. It's a more philosophical comedy. Hmm. It's highbrow, very highbrow. It's very abstract. Right, so, um. Do we have Christy Lee for this weekend, Media Malfeasance? I haven't gotten to the show card open yet. We do. I'm working on we do. That. Yep. Yeah, let's go ahead and see what she has to uh, unfold as far as her summary from the week's events. Here's Christy Real Lee. Quick, from- oh, yeah. Let's just comment on this one thing here. Let's comment. Need a nuclear war game at the same time that Russia uh, is engaging in war games. Um, Are you concerned about that? You think that's a thing? Hmm, I'm just. Let me paint out the scenario. I think about I history. Okay, yep, go ahead. There's this brewing conflict and it hasn't really kicked off and we need to make sure our stuff works so let's run a drill and let's have like our latest stealth you know tracking evading aircraft let's fly it with nukes but not real nukes we're going to have them be dummy nukes for an exercise just to make sure exercise just to make sure stuff works now there is no history of the united states and britain doing this against other nations in the past and or having exercises go real time into actual events. And it's called, a you know, I don't want to use the term loosely, but there's false flags. We're doing an exercise, but we're really attacking you. It's a saying, you know, it's a it's war by deception. And uh, war is an art form of deception with a little military uh, following with it. Otherwise, it's just some person with ill philosophy. But when they get a bunch of people with armaments, they can go do things with those ill philosophies and running a drill of that sort during this type of time of war is much like running like 20 or 40 drills during the time of 9-11. When Russia when they, itself is when also had warnings running that such drills. things were going to happen. Let's run drills to confuse ourselves so we don't know when it does happen. <laughs> that seems to be a theme and I'm sure it's accidental and coincidental and because people are just incompetent and we just don't have the best people in government, but government uh, you know, is trustworthy in these aspects. We aren't smart enough to govern ourselves, but a group of us are smart enough to govern everybody else. And that group is decided by who has the most money and it's decided by the people who print the money who gets the most money. Let's just let that out there. Yeah. So it seems like a totally level playing field that we would all want to participate fully in. Oh, it's absolutely. It's a meritocracy, 100%. Nothing to see there at all. Again, comedy show. No, it's not funny, dude. Right. <laughs> Notion's asking me to log in. So we're just going to wing it. Let's go to Christy Lee with yep. this week in media malfeasance because I know she always does an excellent job. And it's a side-by-side summary. It's not Luke versus Christy. It's two different perspectives of two people who live in the same country during the same week. And uh, it gives us a more broad palette of uh, introductory stories to comment on. Luke covers like, oh, yeah. the day, like the day or future events that are to come in regards to the next week. Christy sort of does a good overview of the previous week's news. So I think of them as complementary rather than sort of. Uh, in- it's also and not either or. That's what you got saying. it. Let's go to no. Christy. 
January 6 dominates the news cycle again as we get even closer to midterms. ABC, CBS and NBC leading news coverage with the latest. The committee voting to subpoena former President Donald Trump to testify before the committee. Trump says he will accept January 6 committee subpoena on one condition. He testifies on live TV. That is actually one of the things that has animated him. He's been talking to advisors about how, uh, you know, he would consider testifying if they would air it live, which is also not surprising. Uh, it seems hard to imagine the committee would go for that. Now, why wouldn't the committee go for that, Maggie Haberman? She and Jake Tapper continue to talk about how bad it would make him look. So why wouldn't the committee accept that condition? Another testimony we never even got to see was from Ray Epps, a provocateur caught on tape that day encouraging others to go to the Capitol. Going to the Capitol, it's that direction. That's where our true problems lie. Yet Ray Epps was mysteriously removed from the FBI Most Wanted and dodged the D.C. Gulag, while others accused of much less continue to be deprived of due process. Why is Epps the only participant to be painted as a victim by the New York Times? Epps makes another curious cameo in this CNN Pelosi propaganda propaganda film. Oh my god, how did that guy get up there? Is this bigger about what What if they try and run the Capitol? As Todd Starnes points out, Pelosi just so happened to have a film crew at the ready on January 6th. And that's what this is all about. I would come to and punch him out. This is oh, my mom. I would pay to see I've been waiting for this, for trespassing on the Capitol grounds. I'm going to punch him out, and I'm going to go to jail, and I'm going to be happy. And that's a federal felony to threaten a president, Pelosi. But she knows the Justice Department is in her deep pockets. But now we're coming up on two years of talking about January 6. How much do the American people really want to hear about this when suffering from crushing inflation and soaring gas prices? Newsbusters, on Thursday, American consumers awoke to the news that they have been experiencing all along, that inflation continued to soar in September at a rate of 8.2% year over year. Yet the three evening news broadcasts gave that news a backseat to January 6. ABC, the worst offender, devoting more than eight minutes to the news while giving just 45 seconds to inflation. CBS dedicating over five minutes to January 6 and just two minutes and 30 seconds to inflation. And NBC spending nearly four minutes on January 6 and only two minutes and 27 seconds on inflation. Bringing you what's ignored, sensationalized, misleading, or just plain false, here's your media malfeasance for the week. We now know the reason for pumping up propaganda the American people don't see as a priority in their day-to-day -day lives. Mainstream media is out of touch, and there's growing evidence for the inequitable treatment, propping up the side that funds the corporate-led machine and mocking those who challenge them. Research shows that while news outlet references to both the far right and the far left have been increasing, the study found that most mainstream news media outlets mention the far right much more often than the far left. MSM has been characterizing parents upset about schools pushing highly sexualized material to minors as far right. But now that hundreds of Muslims have joined the outcry, silence. Anyone see this on CNN or MSNBC? Dearborn Public Schools shut down a board meeting after hundreds of mostly Muslim parents erupted in chants of vote them out. The parents were enraged over sexually explicit LGBT books made available to students in school libraries. You worried about the gay people? No problem. We're not worried about the gay people. We're worried about our children. Okay. And second of all, I don't want to hear anybody. Okay. Saying they're saying, oh, you guys are offending the, the gay. These are kids.
They can be 18. They be, they, if they want to become gay, let them become gay. Who cares? It's not our problem. We don't want kids to have access to these books. It's nice and simple. I'm not going to address the situation no more. It is. It is what it is. And the only, only person that's behind this is Rashida Talib. Cool. Oh. oh, there it is. And you thought it was bad when PayPal kicked gays against groomers off, yet kept the business of a pedophile support group on the platform? Well, PayPal watched its stock dive after they threatened to fine people $2,500 for wrong think. Now PayPal said those terms of service went out by mistake. But none of us are buying that excuse, clearly. PJ Media warns PayPal did not back down, still threatens $2,500 fines for promoting hate and intolerance. And remember, PayPal's definitions for those words can be whatever they wish. Speaking of words, Senate candidate John Fetterman struggled to find them in an interview this week. And it, I always thought I was pretty empathetic, uh, uh, emphatic. Uh, I think I was very, excuse me, empathetic. Uh, Reporter Dasha Burns has faced criticism for this. Dasha, this was not a typical candidate interview. No, Lester, because of his stroke, Fetterman's campaign required closed captioning technology for this interview to essentially read our questions as we ask them. And Lester, in small talk before the interview, without captioning, it wasn't clear he was understanding our conversation. Can voters trust that you will be able to do this job on day one? Yeah, of, of course. That's right. She faced criticism for making observations and asking the questions voters deserve an answer to. The very job of a reporter. But then there's our commander in chief who doesn't think you need to be cognizant in leadership. I went to a little school called Holy Rosary Grade School across McClaymont Fire Hall. And all my buddies that came either became a firefighter, a cop, or a priest. I wasn't qualified for any of them, so here I am. But... Uh, <laughs> You know. Even SNL is now acknowledging Biden's declining mental capacity. This week, President Biden pardoned thousands of convicted marijuana users, and it feels like maybe he celebrated with them a little because yesterday Biden gave a speech at a car factory and opened with this. Let me start off with two words. Made in America. <laughs> Representative Lauren Bobart baited Biden supporters with this tweet. Two words. Let's go, Brandon. And they took the bait. Blue checks like George Taki mocked her for not being able to count. Totally missing her dig at Biden's math mishap. Well, I've got two words for you. Media malfeasance. And that's all for this week. Join my community for more at christyleetv.locals.com. Well, <clears throat> the fact that Saturday Night Live is recognizing that Biden's a little slow in the uptake. I think it I took time because SNL's a little slow in the uptake. They've proven that over the past 20 years. Um, there were some other stories in there. The J6, the January's first off, the fact that they call it J6 and they, comp they compare it to 9-11, right? Uh, that whole situation continues to crumble and... It's another case where they had a predetermined argument and then they looked at the actual evidence. Oh, look, I'm frozen on screen. Is that what's going on? Is you look good to me. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it went, good to me. Yeah, my, my screen went frozen for a second. Okay. And yeah. uh, so there's this predetermined narrative. And then as classic science would have it, you have a predetermined narrative and then you go out and look for anything that might substantiate that narrative. That's science, right, Tony? That what they're doing, 
that science and like justice and law. It's, you know, it's the type of science where science, that type of science seems to progress funeral by funeral, as the old saying goes. So that that's is an science, old saying. Hmm, that's yeah, a very science, when they say trust the science, I'd say nine out of 10 doctors used to recommend leeches to make you better. Oh, so, so science is only depends. consensus then. It's a big uh, ad veracundium fallacy. I see. Right, right. Science is only when everyone agrees, Tony, because everyone, you know, when they get together and agree on something that makes it true. What is this House Select Committee in regards to investigating January 6th? You know, that's not biased at that's, all. That's Nothing their method. So let me get this straight. They want to subpoena Trump. And, I'll, you know, when you subpoena someone, especially at a contrived uh, sort of uh, hearing such as these would be, I wonder if it's tried to get him to perjure himself in some capacity. Not that this is a trial, uh, you know, a, or, a criminal or trial. Or the other thing, case. Tony, this when you lack the evidence. By the House Select. Yep. You call them and see if you can get some evidence out of them. Can we get something we can twist into something that sounds like the thing we claimed? Didn't they raid his Mar-a-Lago residence? Shouldn't they have there's... all the documents? They should have the nuclear codes back and we should all be safe by this point. Now that they have the nuclear codes, they want to go to war with Russia. Didn't so I'm glad it's pay a all million dollars out. to uh, Christopher Steele for the or offered a million dollars to Christopher Steele for the. Uh, I mean, I think I don't know how the paperwork worked, but it was Clinton, FBI. MI6, Christopher Steele, and the Russian guy that, uh, you know, was there. So they doctor evidence. Oh, I see. I'm starting to just get it. It's just it's what they all want, discombobulated in my head. I'm they say, we would like somebody together. who has this and it trickles out and then somebody gets paid a million dollars and the guy's like, I'll tell you that story. Oh. And then three or four, six years later, when people find out that story's not true, that guy can go to prison, but he had a million dollars for six years, Tony. And the other people, they benefited because uh, what's the Mark Twainism? The the a lie will be you know around the world before the truth has a chance to get its shoes on or its pants on. But Something the truth comes that, out. The truth comes out. I think it it's does. more about Causality unraveling a lie. Up. Like it takes yeah. a lifetime to unravel a lie. Um, than to tell the truth or something like that. So if you tell a little lie, it takes like an entire lifetime or, you know, multiple lifetimes before. I think that's sort of the allusion to Mark Twain's quote that we're both butchering. But that's or think, maybe yeah. he had talked to Morpheus. It was more of a red pill, blue pill thing. Trial Thalmadorians on Stuck in Time. Uh, you could spend 30 years on the official myth or narrative, but then it only takes one little inconvenient fact splinter into mind and you wake up and you're like, oh, here's what's going on here. I find it convenient that this whole sort of, it's not even a postmodern perspective. It's a um, positivist perspective where you start with a prescription of what you want to believe and then you make the evidence nicely fit into that. You run these neat statistical models, you run probability theories based on those models or probability probabilities based off of those models and you try to un, you know sort of instantiate what you think the actual epistemology will be in other words what the actual knowledge will be and how and we has anybody perceive checked it to be. on how they survive over time because hmm. it would seem to me that if you're like cold and stuck in the woods and you just wish fire that's not going to keep you alive and you're probably going to get eaten. they claim to be empiricists yet they seem to be very rationalistic in their perspective hmm. meaning they start with their own ideas first and then they find the evidence man how convenient well, I think what it is, Tony, if I might How add my observation on that particular note would be <laughs> they don't need a particular attachment to reality, but they will certainly use tools created by reality like logic and reason and then try to make it fit into their situation. And oh, so they have a so bunch of contradictions uh, and they don't have primary axioms of existence exists. I'm conscious of it. Their cause and effect exists. I'm conscious of that. And therefore, I learn every day. So I don't. Uh, demise from nature or uh, other perils here are you telling me if i go into the other studio here and throw a pen at you it would actually hit you it would 
Mm. It would. That would be we'll science. That'd that be more theory, science maybe. than Pfizer did to see if it spreads <laughs> or not, bro. That's true. It wouldn't like. It would. <laughs> hey, it's real world data. We're going to get to that very soon. In fact, and, uh, you know, anyone here, our kids could do more Shout advanced science than that. Pfizer did before they used the world as their uh, Petri dish. Yeah. Oh, how convenient. Yeah. RCTs but that's actually doing science. There's a problem with that. It's messy. It takes time. You know, there's all this regulation involved. If we could just turn the whole world into a laboratory, sort of like what psychologists did, what Rebecca Lamal's work always referenced, what is laboratory? Sort of like that. But they did, yeah, psychologists were, you know, they were early to the start of this whole thing. They, you know, the uh, virologists and other scientists are just catching up. Hey, I got a question. Not just a rhetorical question. You guys at home think about this. If Galileo was funded by the Vatican, what kind of science might he have concluded with? Just leave it. God said. Just, just putting it out there. All right. So now I want to foreshadow something we're going to feature later. I was catching part of Aaron and Melissa Dyke's uh, Truth Stream News new production earlier today. And the part where they got to the star chamber, I was like, this is the this is the hot spot. This is where we're going to focus in and put that in tonight because that's going on right now. And so you have a little context when we get to that clip later tonight. The show is also about elongating, elongating your attention span. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about star chamber real quick. I'm going to hit this button right here. Ooh, look at that. I'm going to click this thing right here so I can actually see it. Boom. And everything's working. Look at that. All right. So star chamber is a rephrase. It's a phrase that refers to secret courts. In this case, specifically, these are courts under King Henry VIII of England, and it had to do uh, with uh, the monarchy of the United Kingdom. And during the War of the Roses, they came up with this star chamber idea of secret courts because then it's just, you know, it's so much easier than getting the evidence and checking with witnesses and comparing and contrasting stories between the uh, the people accused and whatnot. No, this is way easier. You You meet in a dark room probably with lots of uh, illicit activity going on. And you say, hey, uh, let's take that guy's store. Well, do you know anything on him? Yeah, let's make up some stuff. Will you testify to that? Yeah, I will. Let's take his stuff. It's wealth reappropriation. So in this situation, here's here's a quote I, I grabbed from learning the basics of what the Star Chamber secret court system was. And you might see parallels as I read through this. However, this meant that the justice meted out by the star chamber could be very arbitrary and subjective, and it enabled the court to be used later on in its history as an instrument of oppression rather than for the purpose of justice for which it was intended. So that's, an, that's a case real quick of an ineffective ethic. They intended for it to be justice, but it just so happened it worked to be more profitable for you know acquisition of power. Continuing the quote. Many crimes which are now commonly prosecuted, such as attempt to con uh, conspiracy, criminal libel, and perjury, were originally developed by the Court of Star Chamber, along with its more common role of dealing with riots and sedition. Is that a January 6th type of thing? Was there sedition? Was there, are some of these people being held for criminal conspiracy? This is interesting, right? The historical abuses of the star chamber are considered a primary motivating force behind the protections control uh, con, against protections against compelled self-incrimination embodied in the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution. The meaning of compelled testimony under the Fifth Amendment, i.e. conditions under which a defendant is allowed to plead the fifth and avoid self-incrimination is thus often interpreted via reference to the inquisitional methods of the star chamber. As the United States Supreme Court described it, quote, the star chamber has for centuries 
symbolized disregard for basic individual rights. The Star Chamber not merely allowed, but required defendants to have counsel. It means you couldn't testify on your own behalf. You couldn't represent yourself. You had to have somebody from their group represent you in a rigged game, like a kangaroo court. The defendant's answer to an indictment was not accepted unless it was signed by counsel, who was part of that star chamber. When counsel refused to sign the answer, for whatever reason, the defendant was considered to have confessed. Interesting, right? That's interesting. Someone else can sign your confession for you. It's okay. Nothing to see there. Nothing like that going on today. And in the comparison of someone like Ray Epps to other people who were actually held in star chamber like circumstances for the past two years. It's interesting. Very interesting. Very compelling analogy. Most certainly. I'd like to just bring people's attention to some of the general grammar behind it of what you said here. Um, The star chamber was an English court that sat at the Royal Palace, Palace of Westminster from the late 15th century to the mid-17th century, excuse me, uh, circa 1641. It was composed of privy counselors and common law judges to supplement the judicial activities of the common law and equity courts in civil and criminal matters. Now, privy counselors, hmm, what is the privy council, Rich? Let's look at this. The Privy Council of oh, England, also known, and you can, yeah, I want you to fill more detail. I'm just providing some basic general grammar here for the audience. It's also known Council. as His or Her Majesty's Most Honorable Privy Council, Latin Concilium Familiare, Concilium Privatum et Assidium, was a body of advisors to the sovereign of the King of England. So let me get this straight. The body of advisors to the sovereign, the king of England, are the people sitting on the star chamber court alongside some common law judges. That's not biased at all. No conflict of interest there to be seen. So let's just move on. The Privy Council of the United Mm -hmm. Kingdom. Uh, is part of the monarchy of the United Kingdom. It's uh, people. It's like, you know, president has cabinet. It's a group of confidants, people who have relevant experience and or power in areas where you would need to exercise power. And they cut deals and they make recommendations, uh, a formal body of advisors to the sovereign of King Chucky III or KC3, as we like to call them. We'll get into Privy Council is uh, maybe after we look at the Aaron and Melissa Dykes video later, because they're also going to the whole video is about. The abuse of that council. Well, yeah. Well, well Charles the first, essentially, and, you know, the, and, and the then building up to KC three. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah. It's not just about the one guy. It's about the the power behind the throne that gives the throne the power in the first place, and the joining of church and state in a yes. single sovereign who is anointed by God. Allegedly, that's their story, and that's why America Divine broke away from that. We're like, you know what? That's a little that's a little crazy, King George. Yeah. Yeah. But now America's like, hey. How you doing, cousins? And uh, let's get up to no good. And yeah, you know, we took on a lot of uh, their militarist, militaristic policies. Like, um, as an example, in the Boer War, the British invented concentration camps. Now, Hitler copied that stuff later, but the Americans also copied it and had concentration camps. Uh, yeah, they just called them internment camps. And that they was called them internment the, camps. They had barbed all- wire. It was for their safety. In California and They Texas, just had to do labor places. in exchange for that. So, you know. Um, the bombing of Dresden, oh, a yes. civilian yeah. target. There's, it's, it's there to depopulate that area to kill those people on purpose, not to and strike to a military the target. And without the British leading the way on, like, hey, we let's carpet bomb Dresden. Let's let's see what happens. There's no way you have Hiroshima and Nagasaki with uh, the Anglo-American establishment and America's participation in that. Without like some experience, like, hey, we bomb Germans, Japanese are just like it. They're you know they're the Axis. That's right. So. 
So both sides, incrementalism, it's on both sides are pretty messed up in that. And the empire is really good at incrementalism. You know, I heard that King Chucky III is a sovereign over like, I don't know, dude, a lot of countries. Was it 40 countries in the Commonwealth? 71 countries? What do they got over and there? The amount days? of hectares he owns. I forget the amount, but it, it oh, far controls. Far I mean, what's the difference? Bill Gates. <laughs> right. That's right. And here's an example. When I watch the EU members of parliament, the actual inquiry with uh, the Pfizer person and the person from EU who covers up for Pfizer leading the, the committee. You know what I got? I got that 80% of the people there, they're doing business in English. It's not their native language, but they're doing business in English. You know what else I noticed earlier today in the, uh, the meet and greet with the autonomy season eight students? A good number of them. English is their second or third language. And so what that tells me is that the English have been at this global colonization thing long enough to get everyone to dress like them, talk like them and do business like them, or at least in ways that benefit them. And then you can just put like your own Latin logo and brand on it. Yes. Just like Latin was in the old world. It's a lingua, lingua franca. Or franca. Yeah. The coin of the realm, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. That's an analogy. You know, it's also very similar, like, you know, MI6. CIA, you know, we sort of borrow from MI6. They help us set up the OSS. They help us set up the CIA. It's also interesting but that GCHQ like helped Select us Committee. set up NSA. It's, so like our structure of uh, intelligence well, agents, agencies come from, they're made in the British image, British empire image, not the British mm. people. I love the British people. Their ruler is not so, I'm not so crazy about that whole thing. Just notice call me American. We seem to take a lot of... We seem to, Rich, I have this confusion. We seem to take a lot of leads from England, or at least the, those that control England or the British Isles. It's so this Privy Council, across, this whole hands across you know, the ocean, baby. January, got to get back 90. together with the. Uh, oh, is it cousin. like this picture? I don't it's know. Like people, that's I'm gonna, I'm gonna nineteen twenty-four. It. It's just like that cartoon that ran in the newspaper to get people like, let's get even closer. Uncle hands Sam meets John Bull. John Bulls, their Uncle Sam. You know what else I heard when a king was doing whatever? I heard my country tis of thee, but then I have to remember, oh yeah, that's God save the king, right? Even our part of our national anthem structure and things that kids sing in school every day is a British song with American words because we have our own brand on it. Our stripes go different ways. We're different. We're a different thing. And for a while we were, but in the 20th century, those two things, Union Jack, I mean, whether it's the cover of this book or it's the cover of this book. They both tell you the story what's going on. And this one, the Union Jack is eating the American flag. And America became the property managers for the empire. How about this one's got the same? I mean, it's not an accident. I don't have a thing for British flags, but it just seems to be on, you, hold on. on the I'm, cover I'm, of these books. They have essential information about this who's running the earth me. into the ground. I what was told in like when I was 12 years old that there was called the Betsy Ross flag and that she knitted it and it was all, you know, American individualism and freedom and breaking away from the British empire. You telling me that's based off a model from the British East India company. Well, Tony, it's easily confused with the British East India company flag because the grand union flag of 1776, which was the first flag of this country, it had two more stripes on there. So it's way different, bro. So when we sail Mm. into Canton to get the opium, the American privateers look just like East India company ships. Look, we got the same logo, bro. So they oh. added two stripes on thinking the Chinese can't count. And I'd say that was racist back then because they can definitely count over there. And uh, they had advanced math. Today, well, don't you get me started. They had the abacus. That. Yes, that's right. Abacus? I can't and their remember. memorization capabilities and they had IQ tests back in the medieval period. I mean, they, they were the height of civilization while we were like coming out of a dark age. 
And if and they weren't they powerful, the British wouldn't have had to subjugate them for a century by getting them, getting them all addicted to opium, would they? Yeah, right? a lot of it had to do with Genghis Khan and then Venice sort of uh, controlling a lot of the outcomes in regards to Genghis's uh, trade routes he was setting up and his domination over so many different cultures. So there's a lot of history going back that to that. But, you know, Betsy Ross flag. So you tell me the simple story. Damn, I'm so heart or heartbroken now. Did not think it was. It's actually better. The real stories of these things are way better than what we were told. So it is very. It's cool. I agree with that. Stuff. Yeah. Like um, Boston Tea Party. I'm everyone gets. <clears throat> everyone gets whatever the whitewashed American history is from the 20th century that was made friendly to the British Empire and downplays the whole revolution, right? But there is a guy who wrote a book, who was at the Boston Tea Party, and he ended up publishing it like in the early 1800s, and I forget his name, but his name was like. Robert 12 tree Hughes or something like it was, and it was covered in a Tom Hartman segment on RT 15 years ago or something. It was, like it was that. 2011. I remember watching it, with, there you it, go. Was, it. was I was watching it with uh, you and your wife and I'll never forget uh, because we both were sort of nescient to that information at the time. We knew there was more it's going the on there, but it was the first person yeah. account of the, in regards to the taxation that was going on and had to do specifically with the British East India company, raising the prices and then the taxation associated with the crown on that, that made it impossible for the, uh, the, American and then colonies the, and then the people who tea. owned that company sent their armies over to subjugate the, the angry natives over here. But I would also point How out convenient. as a strong callback to the first couple minutes of the show. Boston Tea Party was a false flag. Now, what, what do you mean by that, Rich? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked and didn't just wonder because the answer is going to give you so much more interesting history. These Freemasons, mostly planned it at the Green Dragon Tavern, which is their Freemasonic headquarters in Boston. And they're like, hey, let's let's go do this thing to the East India Company. A couple of the guys said, I don't know, man, they're pretty big. They're well armed. They're well protected. They've been attacked before. We haven't really attacked anybody before. And then one of them said, hey, let's dress up like Native Americans, scan the shit out of them, woo, 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 and fire and come out there and smoke and confuse them. They all just jump overboard. Not a lot of death or killing necessarily because they got the psychological warfare advantage in that situation. Turns out in America's favor. So like, you know, not a bad ending. East no, India their way to fight. And it was like, a, it was a very small tax on their breakfast beverage. Okay. You got people covering up Epstein at all right now in this place. And everyone's like, well, maybe we should give them another chance. That's a great point. That's a Thank great you. point. What people were willing to actually fight over back in those days compared to what we're willing to roll over and take it, take it today over and over. Take and it. Over. Uh, there we go. Over and, and over, over again. again. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great point. It's got a good beat to it too. <laughs> yeah. It's got that sort of, well, it's, I won't go down that road. It's, it's a little evocative. early tonight. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's very it's evocative. Of a sketchier topic. It's syncopated there. beat. All right. So, uh, as far as the show card and what we want to cover and what order, we got some big chunky stories and lots of details to each of those stories. So uh, let's look at what we want, what we want to cover before uh, we have the interview with Whitney, and then we'll uh, cover everything else after the interview with Whitney. So what do you think? We got uh, Pelosi and J6. We got the Alex Jones uh, billion dollar got, yeah. declaration of uh, you got to pay money screen. you've never seen or never will. 
and all that that comes with it or the the thomas wren's billion dollar lawsuit and uh him explaining who what where why when and how about that particular legal strategy which i don't know if it's going to be successful but i think it's a step in the right direction and is going to really get other people to say oh we should be doing likewise if not join that class action ourselves lots of options there what are you feeling on that i mean there's also uh the ukraine conflict in regards to the potential for nuclear war that we might want to get on the record um so especially when they're running ads in new york city which i was unaware of until this week which is very disturbing oh, they ran those ads like it was like a month or so ago they started doing the nuclear drill warnings and stuff yeah, drill like that. Warnings. yeah i remember covering it on the town hall months ago um but it was sort of sparse at the time and i think it was texas Texas was running drills in schools or something of that nature, but now there's actually advertisements in major cities around the country in regards to particularly New York and I think some other cities. So it's well, there's a big budget for that, about. Tony, like their ads will run for things. There are big budgets to scare people about in their in the case of the government. Right. How so much? Like, and, and as an example, again, say, I don't know what you're talking about. And I would say then if you if you gave me the courtesy saying I don't understand, I would say, well, here's some evidence. They spent two billion dollars convincing people that the experimental gene therapy is going to say that yeah not given voluntary consent or informed consent to the whole thing like that whole thing that they did where they're safe and effective safe and effective if you question it you're a nazi if you question it you can't use airbnb or paypal or all these other things you're canceled right that exclusion of dissent and the weighing of it in the equation leaves you with a, a a scale that doesn't weigh anymore and it weighs for science the cult well, I love science, but that is not science. When you take out part of the conversation and you say we have a predetermined conclusion based on 2013 to 2019 uh, mRNA, because like, in that European parliament, you're going to find out the guy who runs Moderna is like, yeah, we were working on this since 2017. And they're like, well, how did you get patents patents on the thing that came out of the pangolin? Did the pangolin call you? Does the pangolin have a time machine and came came back? It was and said, when hey, he was look, smoking a cigarette. The pangolin's like, the look, bat, you know, look, he's the pangolin's like, like look, out, he's this relaxing, bat, dude. But <laughs> I'm going to give you two years to prep for it. So he came back. He's like, I can't stop it, but I can give you like, here's the antidote. Just make this thing and give it to people when you know the thing happens, and, right? And That's you know what's their inter- official story, by the way. Yes, and you know what's interesting, Rich. I just noticed that even Fox News, because my dad watches Fox all the time when I was over at their house. I happened to, yeah, I think he's watching Tucker. So, uh, no, it wasn't Tucker. It was some other um, news uh, anchor at the time. But their Pfizer was running ads for uh, the COVID nineteen vaccine, saying they should get the new. Oh, I forget the the newly constructed one. I, there's a term for it. Um, how they constructed it. I'm it's, I'm spacing on it. But either way, they're saying it will save your life constantly. It will save your life. Bivalent, thank you. That's it. That thank you. Thank you. I think they've had. I think they've had a bifurcation reality. But to your point about uh, utilizing fear, that's they're still doing the same thing, right? So this advertisement is a bunch of older individuals. It's high production value with them like rubbing their face and smiling and doing all these things. And like this has been clinically proven that it will save your life or lessen the chance of death. You know, which is not true at all. But and for people older than what forty. 55. I mean, what, what number are we going to cut it off at? Because if we look at uh, uh, the Florida Surgeon General and these yeah. studies, like, you know, which we might get to a little bit later, you know, that's uh, there's a much different sort of narrative being point, uh, painted in regards to cardiovascular events for individuals between the age of 18 and 39. 
I believe. So, hmm. I mean, at what age do we cut it off? Well, and say, yeah, it, it if I had to you. guess, you I would worry say about it's cardiovascular events. But I guess after 65, you can just blame it on being old at this point. But then I would no, like I, to juxtapose I mean, that data to data before COVID-19 became a reality. No, nah, see, I think that's I think you're going too far, dude. I uh, is that science? Shark, I think it's um, climate change. Oh, uh, I, I think it's definitely climate change. And yeah, totally. People sitting too far away from their TV, so they should sit closer to it. Maybe even get one of those VR goggle things. I bet that would just like totally fix the situation. For I actually have a better solution. I think they should just get like a needle into the frontal lobe. Well, they don't have to do that Delgado thing anymore. They got that Elon Musk chip for your head that's going to come out. Uh, that's good. And uh, Klaus and his marketing said it should be here by 2025. He would expect it. So like, you know, cell phone. Just in time for 2030. They're getting it ramped up. How convenient. Well, how else can they make you have nothing and, and be happy unless they have command and control over what you think is happy anymore? So different types of frontal lobotomies. Yeah, it's like, really it's like Jose it. Delgado's uh, uh, bull experiment, but without the wires, Tony. Without the wires, <laughs> they made it wireless and nano, wireless and nano. Yeah, dude, it's you know. Yeah. I mean, first yeah. off, let's just on a let's nano take it over. Scale. Let's take it over here for a second. Watching physics and chemistry and all these things develop over the ages and studying and that—that's all great. But you get to the 1800s sure. and they discover radio waves. Because I was thinking about Bluetooth today, and I was like, man, this is wild. Like we got invisible waves and Wi-Fi, wireless, all this stuff, right? And where did that come from? When were we? And it's kind of like they discover how to make a speaker, a microphone, make some radio waves, how to make something to catch the radio waves and make it into something. Because if you just think out like what what far out technology a radio was 120 years ago and how it just changes every dude. I walk into, your house, would be I walk into your house. I've been on the mountain for a while. and You got a radio and you got this box that has people in it talking. And I'm like, are they really tiny? What's going on here? You know what I'm saying? And people take that for granted. Like if you had a record playing and you explain there's bumps on there and it makes this thing, there's a mechanical aspect to that. I'd be like, oh, I can understand. It's making sound from that disc. But a radio is just like picking up invisible airwaves like uh, Rush Rush lyrics, uh, you know, uh, invisible <laughs> sure. airwaves, crackle, <laughs> Getty Lee, right? <laughs> Getty Lee, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, and it's, and it's bringing you this high fidelity and there's many things happening at the same time. There's someone singing and there's music in the background. There's a little static. There's this whole thing going on, right? And uh, you have to tune into it. And if the dial is just a little bit off, it's a little, you know, that is an amazing jump in history. And I don't think humans ever fully adapted to that. And then they just no, stacked on a whole bunch of new stuff and they still don't understand the, the, you know, the, well, it's become the abused, other parts Rich. of the spectrum of it's, light. Right. Other than the visible part. But even, even beyond that, it's become abused because now we've invented techniques that trans or te tools that help us transcend our initial sense perception, a microscope, a telescope, you know, a spectrometer, all these various ways to measure these phenomena that transcend our ability to perceive them, at least for our initial five senses. We can with these instruments. So that introduces all this extra complexity because then we need individuals that specialize in actually understanding how these mechanisms work and then helping to define for us and communicate to us what's happening in these these realms that they're they're witnessing themselves. So that's also creates what's more more noise in the the channel of communication in regards, and also helps to build up a sort of uh, what's the word artificial science priest class potentially who can abuse well, I, that, that lack of sense perception. To, so there's actual science, and then there's what they want to let the public access to, and what they want to develop, and there's like that artificial layer. Right. right. But in the Great behind this corrupt artificial layer, there is so much beautiful science going on.
Oh, right? there like, is. Where's the point in humanity Absolutely. where we can make a little box and it, de- it detects like muons and we can see time dilation because of uh, their decay rate changes at different altitudes Neutrinos, and things like this, right? Neutrinos, yeah. all these different things. But we can't do that and support the Great Reset. Like this thing's going to crash the whole thing. This other thing could let us go to the next level, whatever it's, you know, next scientific discovery legitimately without being blocked from the public and hidden under national security that could legitimately change the world. All that stuff's like those people were like pushed out. And that's, I mean, it goes back to Woodrow Wilson in 1911 saying there exists a group of people. And if the wrong person enters the wrong market, they'll be pushed out. And the good things that could change the status quo for the better are not going to be accepted because they have a monopoly. Monopoly, and they operate with a, an axiom of scarcity. And there's potential technologies that maybe could override that initial axiom upon which all of civilization's socioeconomic theories have been developed. And that would radically change the way in which we construct a society and civilization. But when you say scarcity, the scarcity is not real. It's not real for them. It's only real for those who they harness it with. And I think of it like a horse, right? Like pulling a buggy. The horse running around the field can do any anything it wants. But once you put it between those two poles and attach it to the buggy, basically horse has to follow whip now. And that's what they want to happen for people. And that's what they've mostly done over the past 120 years with the various institutions that were there to protect us from that ever happening, which, you know. Also and let's not forget ironic. before the the priests of science were essentially the church. So Galileo had to mm. go up against this and like a council in regards to that. And now we're going up against the priests of science at the CDC or WHO or the NIH or all of those types of organizations, NHS, if you're over in England and so forth and so on. So it's just like with the invention with the 20th century and into the 21st century with these incredible technologies that we've been able to develop, created a hyper-specialized priest class that were able to dominate theories that may or may not be true about the science they're observing, about the phenomena they're observing. This was warned about by Carl Sagan. Um, Before his death, there was an interview, he mentioned this and said, what will happen when essentially people are either so dumbed down or so ignorant or nescient of the reality of the science in regards to how the machines work, how we invent these machines, you know, the theories behind what makes these things operate, and also those that might be able to abuse that gap in knowledge. There's more noise to the signal all of a sudden because there's this larger gap because of the knowledge that's come in and because of the technologies we now have to utilize in order to create these incredible scientific achievements. Which, and to that point, I would yeah. also illustrate, it's, it's not because the entire bulk of humanity has become like that, right. but rather a large bulk small. of humanity sits back and becomes subservient to a small group of people with shitty ideas i mean frankly we could do a lot better and have done a lot better if they would stop crushing dissent and people who want to maybe compete against amazon or walmart or pepsi or whatever big conglomerates are out there they want a world where there's like 500 companies and that's your choices there's no more free business entrepreneurism freelancing choosing what you do for a living you'll be born into a system without parents because the government needed you to work in a field or make a mine or, you know, repair some robots or whatever. They'll grow people specifically on on demand and they're not going to give you a parental uh, middleman to shape your life. They're going to just feed you what the government wants. This is brave new world. 1932. We're almost on the hundred year anniversary and it's totally part of what they're building. That's why they need to socially engineer society Uh, in their image. They're they're completely terrified of human beings self-actualizing. 
Um, you know, when we had Matt Aird uh, on the town hall a couple of weeks ago, he made a really great point that um, we are individuals that when we're given our own agency and our ability to self-actualize, what we do is we solve problems. And there's an infinite, you know, it's near infinite number of problems to solve in our daily lives and the larger scale. And when we can put our creative mind that being able to uh, satiate or help to uh, alleviate the needs that are ubiquitous in society, then all of a sudden we're in a position of creativity and our ability to help provide and uh, provide knowledge or provide goods or provide services to other individuals. Something I know you do with your autonomy course and something I try to do with my trivia, the trivia course and the town halls and an open dialogue with individuals. I think it's just so important that in their case, they need to engineer society to get what in the metaverse to utilize the technology for individuals that don't understand how it works. So they're just well, how do you think you get metaphorically into lobotomized. Tony, do you think there's some complex contract you got to scroll to the bottom of and click accept to get into that metaverse? It's a human sense iPad. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. I don't know, man. Like, have you not seen South Park? I don't know. I mean, South. Uh, uh, Did you not read the terms and services? Terms of service, brother. You know, everyone agrees to it. Here's your terms and services. Take it. <laughs> I'll play it, Hell yeah. Oh, we um, have more sound clips. We just like that one. It's the music, you know. Just makes me want to move it classes up the joint in certain ways all right so as far as uh spinning the wheel on which story we want we want to deep dive oh, yeah. into first so i had it on screen oh man so what did we have let me put it back on the screen here well we got lots of we got lots of very uplifting stories <laughs> show card so we have potential nuclear war that's always a fun one we have pfizer representatives full hearing you talked about Thomas Friends. I don't know if you want to go to that one. We have that one as well. LD, I'll send you that, though, if you want to go to that. I forgot to put on the show. Or yeah, let's, do Ren, uh, let's go to Wrens. Okay. Give me right. And then let's 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 bring some juxtaposition with that. So the next story we'll go to after that will be uh, EU Parliament and the, uh, the soundbite everyone heard, or at least it was popular this week. But then I want to go to the following clip at one hour, six minutes or whatever that time code was to get that other doctor who is like, oh, we did real world. We got real world data. And I was like, yeah, so did the yes. Nazis. They got real world data too. They, you know, they weren't tested on some animals. They're tested on human beings without their consent. And she's they actually like, admit this. Woo. I mean, I know she's proud of it. And I'm like, how do you not see like the smoking gun is in your hand and it's, you know, you're, you're like looking at it. I'm like, I don't see what you're not getting here, lady. But. That's why, you gotta, chat there that's why you got to play the clip. Maybe there's something the audience is like, oh, well, here's why she's right. Or, yeah, you see what I see. And then we right. have verification and we can move forward. I'm like, this thing exists. She said these things. Let's try it on for size. See if it fits. And if the glove doesn't quit, we must acquit. If the glove doesn't fit, doesn't we fit. must acquit. That's there what you go. I posted a media consideration. <laughs> that's a Seinfeldism. <laughs> We're going to plug all the big 90s uh, syndicated sitcoms tonight on this comedy show. Which is definitely not insurrection or sedition or anything. Hell yeah, like like, we're just see. There you go, and it's not Grand Theft Auto. This is Grand Theft World, so it's just not take it too seriously because this, this isn't Grand Theft have, Auto, folks. It's just in a video game. And thank don't you, Alex. Think about it. You know, it's nice to just you know pop in with that word of wisdom there. You know, with the settlement and everything going on, it's like it's good he has time for that and remind people it's not Grand Theft Auto. This is Grand Theft World. All right, so uh, moving forward. Let's go into uh, uh, Thomas Wren's $1 billion lawsuit against EcoHealth Alliance and Peter Daszak. And if you don't know who that fella is and his organization and what role they played in the thing that happened for the past couple of years, go back to episode one of this podcast, because I'm pretty sure we were 
Johnny on the spot back then with who, what, where, when, why, and how, and just waiting for everyone else to realize it because it's in their documents. We're not, we don't, I don't have a crystal ball back here, but I do have DARPA leaked documents for Project Veritas that hold up the scrutiny uh, under conditions of evidence. So maybe we should look at that. So let's take a look at this. Stacks of them, two stacks. Thank you. He always brings, like, he's got the documents. He's always so proud of that. But that's enough for now. Thanks, Alex. Oh, man, I tell you, Alex, I actually had the privilege of being able to watch you before I came on. And I'll tell you, I didn't expect to do this, but I'd like to talk a little bit about COVID and the war. Sure. So let me put this out there. We just filed a billion-dollar lawsuit against EcoHealth Alliance and several others for the creation of SARS-CoV-2 in the lab in Wuhan, China, with the Chinese. Okay, so we've alleged that they've created it there. We believe we can prove it in court, and we're gonna we're gonna show it. I think we're gonna win this. We've got a firsthand whistleblower. We got all these different things. This is the greatest conspiracy ever unleashed on mankind. Six and a half million dead by their numbers, right? They kill six and a half million dead. You've seen the you've seen all sorts of distractions coming up to the election, coming up to all this. You know, we file, we file the one of the biggest lawsuits in history on this sort of thing. All of a sudden, we've got some major talk of some war stuff. We got some. Oh, no, 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 sir. I'm listening to you. Go ahead. Oh, okay. So we got some major talks of some war stuff. We got some major talks of some chaos of all this stuff going on. So the question I would ask is given that we we put this lawsuit out there. And given that we've just released a report that tied this to Hunter Biden, that tied this to the U.S. intelligence community, that tied this to the military industrial complex, isn't it convenient that with all these ties to all of these people that suddenly we're talking about a war? Ladies and gentlemen, get ready for this. The Russians just blew up the German consulate. And there are strikes all over the country. It may be a false flag, probably not. Putin said he's going to start targeting NATO targets inside Ukraine. So you don't need spider sense, folks, or the Holy Ghost. No, this is dangerous. But let me tell you something. I've told you this for months. I'm guilty every day. He's in the U.S., uh, the... uh, Surgeon General, medical doctor, now we learned he's been doing a year-long study, 84% increase in heart attacks, 18 to 39. Now, we already knew that. That's bad news. But the good news is we have champions that are saying no, and this literally is going to scare the hell out of the globalists. So on so many fronts, like gain of function, you name it, people are waking up. Thomas Renz is a well-known, successful lawyer, Renz-Law.com. He has been spearheading, filing lawsuits against Big Pharma, having some really good success. He's also a very articulate individual. So I wanted to get him on with some updates on, I see this as extremely positive. I've seen national numbers. We're having uptake of the vaccine down 90 plus percent since its peak. And some jurisdictions is 99%. People are not taking the new so-called booster, which we know isn't a vaccine. Uh, So as bad as things are, it looks like people are finally waking up. What area do you want to hit first, uh, Mr. Renz? 
Oh, man, I tell you, Alex, I actually had the privilege of being able to watch you before I came on. And I'll tell you, I didn't expect to do this, but I'd like to talk a little bit about COVID and the war. Sure. So let me put this out there. We just filed a billion-dollar lawsuit against EcoHealth Alliance and several others for the creation of SARS-CoV-2 in the lab in Wuhan, China, with the Chinese. Okay, so we've alleged that they've created it there. We believe we can prove it in court, and we're gonna we're gonna show it. I think we're gonna win this. We've got a firsthand whistleblower. We got all these different things. This is the greatest conspiracy ever unleashed on mankind. Six and a half million dead by their numbers, right? They kill six and a half million dead. You've seen the you've seen all sorts of distractions coming up to the election, coming up to all this. You know, we file, we file the one of the biggest lawsuits in history on this sort of thing. All of a sudden, we've got some major talk of some war stuff. We got some. Oh, no, 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 sir. I'm listening to you. Go ahead. Oh, okay. So we got some major talks of some war stuff. We got some major talks of some chaos of all this stuff going on. So, the question I would ask is: given that we we put this lawsuit out there. And given that we've just released a report that tied this to Hunter Biden, that tied this to the U.S. intelligence community, that tied this to the military industrial complex, isn't it convenient that with all these ties to all of these people that suddenly we're talking about a war? No, I totally, absolutely agree with you, Thomas. Friends. In fact, when I was driving into work this morning, I was going to say even the nuclear war situation is a distraction from this chemical, biological, nanotech attack that has been the viral release and the shots. And you're absolutely right. Tell people about the lawsuit in, uh, that, that you just filed. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, this is kind of like, uh, you know, if you build a dynamite factory and your dynamite factory blows up and kills a bunch of people around the factory, well, you're going to get sued. You're going to have to pay for the dead people, the people who died from your dynamite factory blowing up. Well, in this case, we've alleged that they created a bioweapon. We've alleged that they've created SARS-CoV-2 in a lab. We've alleged that they've created one of the most dangerous biological agents in history. And that that agent then got out and killed millions of people. Well, if that happens, guess who? Guess who's got to pay for those deaths? Guess who's got to pay for that carnage, the lockdowns, and all the chaos? And that's without the six and a half million dead. Doesn't even count the death from the vaccines, the death from everything else. I mean, the abject chaos. So you know, this to me is the first major step towards accountability, and I'm really excited about it. I am too, and and I know you have my Skype feed, so you can see me talking over you. So you stopped. I was telling the crew, and we archive this at man.video, I'll tell them, hey, grab this clip to put it up front, because what you were saying was so powerful, uh, but, but I distracted you. I was telling them, hey, grab this clip to put it on front for man.video. This is so huge. You've filed a lot of suits. You've been successful. Now a billion dollar against Peter Daszak and this whole criminal cabal. Elaborate on that, and then walk through how big this is. Well, you know, we've got a firsthand whistleblower, and we released a couple weeks ago a report, and that report showed a number of things. It showed that, first of all, uh, it's almost inarguable that this was created in the lab in Wuhan, China. It shows that Anthony Fauci uh, almost absolutely certainly lied to Congress and perjured himself when he said that he wasn't funding gain of function. I mean, th these are documents that they have given us. We have their documentation that basically show this, right? So we've got all of these things coming out. We've got 
all these things that show that essentially Fauci paid these guys, they experimented on a bunch of viruses. The result was that SARS-CoV-2 came out, it spread out, got out of the lab, killed people all over the world, and you know the rest is history. So what we've done is we said, listen, if we can show that you guys have done this and that this did escape from the lab, there should be liability under current tort law, civil liability. So we filed a suit. And, you know, it's very tough to sue the government on something like this. Much easier to sue a private entity. And so we, we filed suit where we think it belongs. We believe we've got the right defendants here. But we included John and Jane Doe, one through a thousand. And we did that so that if if the evidence shows that someone else is a necessary party or should be added, we can add them to the lawsuit. So class action. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. We're going to go where the evidence takes us. We have to be very disciplined and very careful to do this case exactly right. And we're doing our very best to do it. Make Americans free again. And uh, has helped an immense amount with this. Uh, another attorney named Patty Finn. And we've got a couple other attorneys. Patty is a brilliant attorney out of New York. She's done a great job on this. Uh, we're just as excited as can be because we feel like if we can actually get this, get some accountability here, that it'll open the floodgates and we'll be able to, to really kind of move on and hit, hit this in all these different directions. So millions are watching right now, and I knew you followed this suit, and I got distracted with the war and didn't bring that up front. What is the headline we give to this once we archive it and videos and go viral? Billion dollar, Americans file billion dollar suit against uh, Fauci, uh, Wuhan, or, or against Peter Daszak, Wuhan, or against Chinese lab, or how, what should the headline be here? What's the big takeaway? Uh, you know, billion dollar lawsuit filed against Eco Health Alliance for the death of 6.5 million. I mean, we're not Boom. right now suing for all 6.5 million. Uh, we'll see what happens. But if it turns out that they're responsible for the death of our plaintiffs, they'll probably be responsible for the death of everybody else under the same principles of law. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you do something that's ultra hazardous and ultra dangerous under the law, and for whatever reason, yeah, that that causes the death of a whole bunch of people. Well, you're typically liable. And in this case, we've got gain of function research going on all over. And Alex, you know, let me tell you about punitive damages. Punitive damages are in court called punishment damages, right? And they're not something that the courts love to do. And it's not something that we always want to ask for as attorneys. But these guys performed gain-of-function research on what they knew was a pandemic-type virus. They made it more dangerous. It escaped. And these are all things that we've alleged and will prove in the case. Now, as if that wasn't enough, as if the 6.5 million dead people around the world isn't enough, Anthony Fauci just gave Peter Daszak and the EcoHealth Alliance another grant to do more gain-of-function in Wuhan, China. More of the same. Thomas Rinse, stay More there. I want you to same. recap this and start over because I was interrupting and bumbling around. This is so huge. Rins-law.com. Uh, and, and, and by the way, this will flesh out a lot of criminal information as well. Look around you. Everything I predicted from the globalist owned documents, from their own admissions, is now happening. InfoWars credibility. My credibility has never been higher. And it's because of your backing of this operation that I can steadfast stay on it. Could give out. Fence has filed a major billion dollar lawsuit. He's one of the leading lawyers out there suing Big Pharma, getting documents out like Robert Barnes. 
Renz-Law.com. We'll talk to him in a moment. He'll do five minutes the next hour with us. We'll come back at a few final calls at this big Russia development uh, news. Russia strike hits German consulate in Ukraine as capital's unprecedented escalation. Separately, there is a run on iodine products right now because of the threat of nuclear war. Make it clear, Alex, it doesn't help for nuclear bombs. Otherwise, they'll sue you again. Now, I was thinking about his case while he was just uh, you know, doing that fine work with Thomas Renz talking about that lawsuit. And I thought, you know, now that Alex has to pay a billion dollars, that has set a precedent, right? And we've only been thinking about the deleterious sides to First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fifth Amendment, these sort of things, right? And I think maybe we we're being selfish. And what we should do is think about the opportunities for all the other lawyers right now, right? Because the precedent set for Alex Jones is Alex uh, said some things. People were damaged. Those people were involved with a major historical event and therefore a billion dollars, right? That's Did right. I get th- that's just no, okay. That's so gen- generally speaking, that's correct. You know, it's it's interesting though because how many pharmaceutical companies have paid anywhere near that in regards to damages from like? But we can't. Those are corporate other- people, Tony. We can't uh, hold them to account. They they don't have yeah. a soul to save. They don't have a body mm-hmm. to incarcerate. So we got to go to Alex Jones because he's a real flesh and blood human being who has a billion dollars. So the idea would be, I was seeing. Let me. I know I'm going to start over here in a tangent, but I will bring this around. I was watching we'll Joe Rogan back. talk to Yon uh, Wenner the uh, founder of Rolling Stone. So my question is, is Rolling Stone bigger than InfoWars, Tony? No. No, is it? Is it InfoWars is bigger than Rolling Stone? <sighs> LD, will you, I or Justin, would, like, look up, look up. Uh, yeah, so, look you know, up the numbers. I know it's a private company. You might not be able to I see their earnings. I would assume Rolling Stone's bigger. But it's I, a more after, popular brand, it's a more popular. It's a more popular brand as well as far as numbers, as far as market cap. I wonder. Yeah. I don't know anymore, to be honest. I would assume it's much bigger. Yeah. Um, but that's an assumption that I don't okay. really know. Based on the evidence that was uh, presented at the the the, the trial, we'll just call it that, quote unquote, in Connecticut, Alex Jones is you know is running quite the operation, and rightfully so, he should. I mean, in regards to he about built it up sixty to seventy million up. a year. All right, right, because um, only that much. Okay. Yeah. So, and that's before that, pure... that's gross. That's not net, right? That's before right. his cost for bandwidth oh, and people. Like, all this yes, stuff. yes, yes, yes. So there's that, right? So if Rolling Stone makes more than 60 or 70 million a year, then the numbers would be equivalent in this case, right? So if they're equal to InfoWars, then we'll get to that in a few steps. Now, my my thinking is John Wenner, he's in control of Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone's a publisher. They actually do journalism, right? Serious journalism like Hunter S. Thompson, okay? (laughs) And they had an article, and the title of the article is something to this effect. Go ahead, look it up at home. Uh, it, uh, Rolling Stone wrote, r- r- rolled an article that said something to the effect of what's the most popular weapon for a school shooting. And they tell their audience, apparently it's an AR-15. Now, I haven't seen that magazine and I don't know the veracity of that claim, but I heard it during the Parkland shooting trial because that was a piece of evidence that was in the testimony. So my question becomes this. Is Rolling Stone responsible to all the parents of Parkland? Because there's a live witness who's going to maybe face death penalty. And that case has been going on for months, and it's a very similar thing. So if the shoe fits for Alex Jones, doesn't it also fit for Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone? And might enterprising lawyers go out and find, there's a lot of Parkland families, 17 shot and killed, 17 wounded. And there seems to be more justice to be had there for enterprising lawyers who want to get into this, you know, cost cob, uh, whatever those are, banks and those other attorneys that have been doing the prosecution uh, you know, in the uh, the plaintiffs in the litigation. 
because it's civil, it's not criminal. So let's just keep our verbiage. Jones isn't guilty. He's in he's in default and responsible and has been fined. And he will receive more fines from the judge soon. So So she could make it two billion. Looking at it, it looks like print advertising revenue, at least Uh, it's projected to be. Let's see. hmm. Print advertising revenue plus subscriptions in 2020 plus monetizing videos. Sorry, go ahead. No, you're right. And they own the Vanity Fair videos. Oh, sorry. Uh, Or the street.com. Vanity Fair. Yeah, it's according to Vanity Fair. Yeah, right. These are things law firms could be doing if they want to pursue a case like that. Technically. But the problem problem with Rolling Stone is they own so many other industries. So like when you look at like what financials are we looking at? So that's why in my first oh, thought, like, we're, question, just, we're just talking about Rolling it's Stone more of a magazine. conglomerate. Right. When we're talking about this Rolling Stone, the magazine, then it's mm. smaller. But we're talking about Rolling Stone as a conglomerate. We're talking about, you know, nine figures, something much, much larger. So, okay. So they would pay billions then in a similar justice situation, right? You would think. Because that's what justice is. If I weigh something that weighs this much on the scales and then I weigh something else that weighs the same, the scale does the same thing, right? That's what justice is. The scale's locked in. So they just locked it at a billion dollars for this thing. And they're going to keep upping the ante and taking people's freedom away. And that's not good. And I think the only way to balance that scale is probably to fix it and to have some other people from the other side do some good things with the evidence that exists and marshal that evidence and make the appropriate arguments, not in a conspiracy theory forum, but in a court of law. 100% agree. I thought Norm had, he was interviewed by Owen Schroyer, I think the day of or the day after um, the verdict was handed down in regards to the damages that was supposed to be associated with Alex Jones and free speech systems that they have to pay out. And I thought he had a really good analysis of it. it might be worth playing uh, at some point, but it, it, it's it this whole thing. First of all, if people believe that the the victims, the supposed victims, that of course Alex Jones did not tell these individuals to go harass these victims. Alex Jones did not harass the, these. The I mean, victims they're secondary himself. victims because the true victims died on right. the scene that day. That's right. And the assailant also allegedly died on the scene that day. But I'm, that's right. After a perfect kill score with no. They're wounded. not going to get much money. At the end of the day, first of all, Alex Jones doesn't have much money to, especially with his liquidation of his business and the filing of, I forget what chapter, bankruptcy. It probably has to do with reorganizing much of his business. Um, but in regards to what's going on, you know, at, and the lawyer fees, um, I forget what was the oh yeah, uh, law firm representing. Sure. Mm-hmm. What, was the, what was the law firm representing the plaintiffs? Do you remember? That's not Last an off? important point because okay. they're, they're litigation happy. So we're just not. Yeah, gonna, yeah, but I, won't say but I, I will I say this. Gotcha. So the PR circus drummed up by those law firms has the public thinking Alex Jones owes these people 50 million. Alex Jones owes these people a billion and has the friends of all those people thinking you just got awarded a hundred million dollars. And the people themselves might even think I just got awarded a hundred million dollars, as is the case of the first victim or witness in that case. That is really a spurious connection. Kind yeah, of, the FBI you know, agent. That's really yeah, suspect. That's but I'm not going to say anything yeah. about that gentleman or by name. I'm just saying hmm, that seems a little weird. So those people curious. might even think they're getting that money. But in reality, Jones and his organization doesn't have that money. They never have the ability to go get that money. And purposefully, both law firms are saying they're trying to cut off his ability to be able to pay the victims' families. Now, if that's not fucked up. I don't know what but, is but that. No, no, no. tells me. I don't know what is because they're saying, hey, we're going to go get you this money. And then they're going to cut off his ability to pay for it because they have a political 
ax to grind, which is why they did in the first place and use those families. Yeah, those families insane. have been traumatized again, but they don't realize that yet. But a couple years down the road when Alex is appealing and they're not seeing their money, but those right. those law firms are like getting more cases. They started with Remington and 73 million and they're getting their money. Right. Yeah, they just went they to a getting... billion. Yeah. So I think unless other lawyers who might it's not an... have better cases to pursue, check out that Rolling Stone article. It might be very powerful. Yeah. Uh, and it's also an insinuation that this is purely political. They're trying to set a precedent that will scare away people from talking about any sort of a uh, socio-political events that happened, whether it happened, whether well, Tony, in regards that's another to nuance. I think you need to come to on. See, the thing is, ladies and gentlemen, the defendant's going to say that this is all political. So we can't let him say that it's political and therefore it's not going to be political. That's how they resolved it. In fact, they didn't have the jury there when that happened, but it was live streamed. You can go back and watch. He was never convicted by the judge and the lawyers all make those decisions. They're like, okay, so do we have to have both legs tied or just his hands behind his back and his mouth gagged? Can his eyes be open or does he have to be blindfolded? Right. They had those discussions. Then they bring in the jury. Okay. Disregard everything you just heard because he said mouth mouth sounds again. Right. But you can't disregard these other mouth sounds. Those cost a billion dollars. So these mouth sounds on the stand that you can't hear can't hear that these mouth sounds over here for 27 minutes or whatever billion dollars what was That's it zero totally just and fair right i think this family's got justice with that tony and it'll be proven out over time and we should just move on what did the judge claim zero tolerance so when he was being examined by uh Koskov, he couldn't testify because he, could, he was under threat of arrest for perjury or not right, perjury called, not uh, well, is uh, the potential for uh perjuring what, himself what do they call it when you misconduct with the judge there's a contempt of court contempt contempt right they threatened him and norm with contempt which brings jail so if they say and the that's wrong because thing, there's it was a zero judgment. tolerance so they scared him into not testifying at his own kangaroo court trial right that was decided without ever well, having with six of his jurors peers. it was with just like oh you're guilty with six you're jurors using libel with yeah. six jurors using an average uh well, based on anyways can't like have it. 12 honest people there but even then it, did, it wasn't based on you know, uh, preponderance of the number of jurors are based on a sort of majority. It was based on an average of what the jurors felt was best. I mean, this whole thing was just so many. I wonder, I wonder. Do you think it was actually a jury of his peers even deciding damages, Tony? I mean, don't you think that's a little like, you know, what was the movie Runaway Jury? Even though it's kind of about sort of an analogically similar situation, but on the left side, me, sort of leftist progressive propaganda. But let me just zoom the, back out Rachel, for a second. Rachel Weiss the, and uh, the event happened Cusack. in Connecticut. The trial was in Connecticut. Do you think he could have gotten a fair trial in Connecticut to start with? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have challenged that's sort venue? of the, That's yeah. That's the point of my reference to that movie. Seems highly they, unusual. They seem to highly qualify. There's a whole behavioral science behind how they seem to pick jurors. I mean, the FBI was all involved especially in the case, one of the plaintiffs is from the FBI. So that's a federal level. Why couldn't it be a federal trial? Why was it a state trial? You know, according to Robert Barnes, it wasn't a state trial because you can get away with these procedural errors. A federal trial. Well, it wasn't a federal trial. It wasn't a federal trial. You couldn't get away with this at that level. Right. And the state. And those are the people that got rid of Epstein. So. Right. Right. But see, from a procedural standpoint, uh, they won't commit usually the same sort of errors. Federal court will not use, according to Robert Barnes. That's what I'm saying. That's what an attorney at law is saying in regards to constitutional law. Uh, in the state level and local level, there's more procedural errors you can get away with, which makes me then consider that this is going to be held up in appellate court for years and years and years with God knows how much Jones will end up paying out. 
in the end. Um, but then again, how corrupt are the appellate courts? They're supposed to analyze if the procedure was broken or some sort of issue was violated in regards to uh, civil procedures and state law, civil and criminal, depending on what court you're dealing with. So, well, it's going to be interesting see. because, like, from a, from a procedure level, there's all these irregularities, makes you want to throw it out. That's my but point. from a political standpoint, you're going to take billion dollars away from these parents. What kind of judge are you? You're going to take away their hope. They just call oh, you. You're awful. What kind of right? judge is someone who gives a default judgment on this case on, on speech? Like, hey, so according to Norm Pattis, it's not that's a happy not, judge. Yeah. Cause she was smiling when she saw that verdict. She was very happy. And that's the thing that grossed me out, disturbed me the most. I was very, very upset. Yeah. I woke up early. Uh, what was it? When was this Monday or Tuesday? And you, you told me what had happened. And I was just in shock. Um, I had to go listen to Alex Jones's take. And I, I was like, listen. bro, it's just another day in the Star Chamber. To, I wanted to, was it Law and Order, the YouTube channel? Um, or Crime and Law, something like that. And so I went and actually listened to the entire thing and it was just disturbing. They, they had the jury go yeah. back and like have to reorganize their numbers because they messed up the decimal places. I mean, this whole thing was obnoxious and absurd. And when Norm was sitting up there giving his closing statement, now he oftentimes reference how much uh, the jurors were recoiling at what he was saying. And that's extremely disturbing to me because it means that they were biased from the get-go or they had a certain preordained. I, I, I shouldn't say that. I would assume or theorize that it wouldn't surprise me if they're recoiling from the idea that they should dispassionately and rationally impersonally analyze the evidence and award a fair uh, dollar amount. And every time he brought this up, they seem to recoil. And he, he referenced that. He referenced that every single time in his closing statement. It's like, I know when you guys, when I say this or that, and you guys recoil from it in regards to what this trial is really about, what this trial is really about, you guys don't want to hear it. And obviously they did not want to hear it. Uh, so when we to- left this story last week, you saw both sides closing arguments. Yeah, We saw some of the pre-arguments where uh, the prosecuting side or the plaintiffs, they were saying, uh, we, don't, we don't have the ability to live up to the burden of uh, evidence for our side. And that's Mr. Jones's fault because he got canceled from the internet and didn't have disaster recovery for all his videos. And therefore he's responsible. So please, can we help make the jury understand that? Cause they might hold us to account on the plaintiff side for not having all the evidence. And we want to make sure that they know it's his fault over there. Who's not even allowed to be here. Cause he could be in jail for contempt. Right. So it's a very reasonable situation that they're unfolding at that point. And then they go into deliberations. They went in Friday afternoon. They stayed out Monday. They got Tuesday and they come back with a decision. So let's go first to the man himself, Alex Jones, on his own show live as he starts to find these things out and get his actual reaction. You know, those videos out there, everyone does hot takes and reactions. Here's a reaction for you. And then we can go to uh, Norm's statement and a couple other pieces that are interesting about that. But let's see uh, how he experienced Def- it on his own show. And uh, definitely and watch worth his- hearing Norm as well. But I'm putting this in the media consideration chat for you, LD. Um, and just skip the beginning because that's just they put the the juiciest part at the beginning to sort of get people. Interested yeah, skip in that. Because yeah. so. usually, you know, if you're doing that, you want to take it from the end of the thing. And put it at the beginning right. to get people to watch all the way through. But they were going for this is the biggest thing in there, and let's just put it at the beginning, even though it's at the beginning. So, so I'm not a lawyer, but I have a question, real quick, Rich. I yeah. wonder if do you think I'm not they a lawyer either. On some sort of jurist, like, I believe um, they exist. Not jurist. <laughs> on some sort of, uh, would they still give the default judgment, even if you were to procure all the information based on some sort of timetable involved? 
like some sort no, of I mean, statute of limitation or timetable. As I I'm just wondering, it, I'm just speculating. Like, would they found another way to give a default judgment, even if he had all the evidence? Quite I'm possibly. Thinking, I'm thinking because, the only way you could do that would be some sort of like statute of limitation on the time it would take to procure that information and get it to here's what uh, discovery. This would be my my timeline for it. Okay. Okay. Jones says some stuff. No one really paid attention to it on a wide scale. Megan Kelly got him to say that stuff again. And those guys smelled money. They smelled blood in the water. Oh, they yeah. smelled blood in the school. They went and recruited people to support their it's endeavor. Disgusting what they telling them a hyperbolized story that was not actually true. Tony, they get all this support, all these people. We got 17 plaintiffs that we're going to, you know, 15 plaintiffs, whatever. Okay. Then they get into discovery and they're like, Oh fuck, dude, it's not here. We don't actually have the thing. The thing that we, we think happened and, and did this whole thing for, it's not really there. What are we going to do? Well, he didn't give us this, this thing here. But he gave us all this other stuff. Yeah. But he didn't give us this thing here. And we can make a thing out of that. And we can make everyone believe that everything that's not here for our burden of proof for the evidence is in that thing that's not there that might never have existed. And that they can't can talk about because just, there's a And then wait, judgment. Tony, before you even talk about the motion eliminated that gags him yes, basically right. in that that's courtroom, exactly. but not outside. Before that, um, oh, there was a there was a part where they had this brilliant strategy and they're like, we can blame it on him, right? And then he gets all that discovery over there, financials, library, depositions, all that stuff they got to do. All right? the clips that he had available to Corporate him, representatives that, that he hired for both cases, lawyers that are switching back and forth. Uh, if the evidence was there, they would have had it from the get-go oh, yeah. in order to have the case in the first place. Do you see what I'm saying? 100%. That was a fishing expedition. That's what I'm trying to do. And then they also, well. somebody suspiciously sent him some pirate type attachments to some things. And when he sent those things back for discovery, they're like, oh, there's CP in here. There's cheese pizza in here. He sent this family hook, right? The Sandy Hook families. And then Alex sues uh, the Young Turks over that and they bring it up in court. Well, didn't you do this? And I, I would counter uh, distinguish those two things and say, him saying this about those people is not a felony. They, he's not accusing them of, of being felons. This thing that Chenk and these other people said about him, that's not true. That is a felony they're accusing him of. That's a different gravamen of evidence. There might be a way to measure the damages to his you character. You would use a scale, but there's a broken, Tony. <laughs> See? That's not just a metaphor. The science are tools to... are broken. You can't get science and uh, you, you can't uh, adjudicate the general with the specific, and that's what law is. Well, that's See, I can give you law school in like one sentence, adjudicating specifics with the general. The law is the general and the specifics are what happened. And the lawyer, the lawyers and the judge sit in between. They adjudicate it back and forth. It's all just the trivium. A hundred percent. It's input it's processing logic. output. It's, it's, it's all, in, it's all logic. inductive and deductive logic. And a lot of fallacies and a lot of the, the use lot, of contradictions. Unless your lawyer is good like Norm, but Norm was winning. Like he was playing a lost game anyway. And I feel bad. He's one for of the Norm. best lawyers in the country, especially yeah. as constitutional. Like we need hundreds of Norm Pattises out there. Yes, we do. And we need at least the Norm Pattis that exists to have better resources, because yeah. that man's like a, a one man, you know. And he's up against Orlitzer. the entire sort of leftist progressive establishment and the billions of dollars and private law firms then political uh, money that comes in from that side of the so like because he was saying norm unfortunately was like not only was this the most egregious abuse of a verdict that he's ever witnessed in his entire 
Uh, Lord, and he's almost 70. He also mentioned that he's going to get nailed essentially the next day because he's going into New York where he's trying to defend parents' rights against injecting their kids with an experimental gene therapy and synthetic gene therapy, I should say. And he's By like, we're going to get, we're going to get, we're, we're going to get, we're going to get, uh, you know, he expected to have a, that unfortunately, uh, not go his way as well. And so he's saying like, it's a very dark time, not only for free speech, but for the ability for the individual to, you know, to have access to or agency in regards to rather what they can and cannot do with their body. Not what, not just with what they can and can't say, but then also with what they can and cannot do with their body. So that's kind of where we're at. If you don't have agency, you especially when it comes body, to medical procedures, you might be a slave. Um, and that person might think they are your owner. Right. Um, I believe in no masters, no slaves, yeah, neither above nor below. Someone who claims ownership of your body has a different philosophy from you. Now, are you capable of intellectual or intellectually and or physically protecting yourself from that person who sees you as their food, their way of making a living, you, their piece of property that they can do whatever with, and you have to live with the consequences of their actions? Dangerous precedents being set, not just yeah. First Amendment and these sort of things, but Alex is responsible for other people's actions that he did not have any communication with. And, that's and who, been, in some cases, are nameless and no evidence of these things that are brought been, up. And not he's not allowed to challenge them in the case. Right. So it's like seeing a real Star Chamber case back in the day. But this is on almost a cultural I'm not worried level. for him. I'm worried about my, my son and future generations of people right. in this country because- He's the he's the canary in a coal mine. And he just got slapped a billion dollars. He's the what example. What do you think they're going to do when you don't have money? They're just going to shut off your social credit. Boom, done. Right. You'll or comply the CBDC, now, right? And, and your you family will disown you. That's right. Because oh, it's a you can't can't call, can't talk, can't get letters from that person because it's a Soviet gulag 2.0. It's this electronic is this time, and it's called Google. You said something important there about the, the abnegation of personal responsibility, right? It's sort of uh, yeah. like there's a sort of deterministic effect going on. You don't have agency of your own thoughts and actions. There's a sort of determinism in regards to biological or sexual or otherwise determinism. That's postmodernism. That's been the postmodern credos for the past, you know, 10, 20 years as they sort of uh, taken over the university systems and pumped out all these young individuals with this ideological trash that is then well, Alex the society. Isn't re- Alex in is regards responsible to, it's for it's his not actions about you, and their it's about, actions. You know, both. It's also and for him. Yeah. And, and for them, talk about contradictions on top of neither contradictions nor on top of contradictions. <laughs> but it's it's a it's a symptom of the culture. It's a symptom of the, the sort of cultural malaise in regards to this 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 uh, very deleterious and deplorable philosophy in regards to the philosophy of power, the philosophy of the idea that um, of victim groups based on immutable characteristics that don't define the individual at least for individuals that have agency and are willing to, you know, self-actualize and are willing to, you know, take responsibility for their thoughts, their actions and their deeds in reality. And so this is a larger symptom of that. And I can see it now manifesting its most egregious form in regards to this, this verdict. Uh, it's just, it's disturbing on so many levels. And I have to admit earlier this week, I was very, I was extremely disheartened. I expected it to be bad. I expected it, excuse me, to be very bad. Hundreds of millions. I did not expect a billion. Um, and maybe in some some sort of what's the word I'm looking for? There's some ser- sort of serendipity to this, maybe because it's such a large number and so yeah, many procedures are broken. There's almost no way I don't think they'll ever be able to to rectify all the mistakes that were made or the, the appellate court. It's good or it, nothing else. It's going to be tied up for so many years 
in the appellate courts that, you know, it's not nothing much is going to happen in regards to him being taken down anytime soon. But at the same time, I do think everyone's going to pause for a second and think about what they're going to say in regards to sociopolitical events, especially that happen real time, current events. So his case, him in that situation, self-immolating, whatever you want to call it, has brought out the other side and they take the mask off and they say, this isn't about justice for those families. It's about destroying Alex Jones and making sure he can never have a platform again and making sure he can never pay those families the money we just promised to them through this shenanigans. And he barely talked in like, again, all the straw men, all the red herrings. What happened in 2016? And it only works on the weak election. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Neglected like those aspects, of us not emotionally involved in that, we see them handing out hundreds of millions of dollars just like this. That's not justice. And that's not fair to those families that went through that pain because you're just you're going to make it worse with this whole process. So I'll leave it there and let's let Jones comment on his own activities as they occur through the windows of the Infowars studio in his world. Yeah, I'm going to jump about 11 minutes into it, see if that's a good jump off point. And then I'm looking for that Pattis clip. Maybe you could help me in the background. I'll send that to you as well. All right. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. Here we go. Boom. Tyranny will probably say no on the appeal, but two years left, whatever, or the edge of nuclear war doesn't even matter. It shows how tone deaf these people are. But I wanted to air a report. I said I would get to it. I didn't. Weather weaponization and Hurricane Ian. They want to 5G control your body. They want to poison injection control your body. They want to be able to control the weather. And they admit they're doing it all, but they say it's a conspiracy theory and we talk about it. All right, so we can bring Oh, wait, they're coming back. And then we'll air the most important thing, weather weapons news. There we go. As she said, got to add decibels. And boy, those ambulance chasers got happy when they heard that, including Senator Stolen Power Blumenthal got really excited. This is how they suppress America and the Midwest and Christians. They're so proud of themselves. This is how the collapsed globalist on the East Coast tries to rule America and you. They think they can break your will. They can't break your will. She was promoted to the head judge in the state just two months ago before this trial. Her sellout of due process and her weaponization of the judiciary. Thank you. Please take your seats. The record will reflect that the entire panel has returned. And thank you for indulging me with that. All right, so I think we can... um, They've already got the new Texas suits ready for me questioning the election. Unless council wants, do you want them recalled one more time by their number? I don't think it's necessary, but okay. Now just bear with me, all right? Corrupt, guilty system wanted to scapegoat me as the bad guy when they're the bad guys. No one believes them. Everybody hates them and has half a brain. Their system's over. They know it. They're in full panic mode. This is exactly what I expected. And you put the decimal points in. Oh, the decimal points in. Oh my God, 50 billion, 100 billion, trillion.
So they make these lies about all this money we've got. And all this, it's just all just delusional leftist crap. Like two men can have a baby. All right, Mr. Same cult that wants to cut your son's balls off. Thank you. Don't fail. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, please listen to your verdict as it is read. Verdict. We, the jury, have reached our verdict as to damages in this case. We award damages to each plaintiff and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems LLC as follows. Uh, Roman number one, compensatory damages, instructions, filling both numbers for each plaintiff, then go to section two. Please enter your damage, damages assessments for each plaintiff on the lines below. Two plaintiff, Robbie Parker. A, defamation slash slander damages, past and future, $60 million. Yeah. B, emotional distress damages, past and future, $60 million. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Robert Parker and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems, and line A and line B, total $120 million. Yeah. By yeah. Two plaintiff David Wheeler. A. Defamation slash slander damages, past and future, $25 million. B. Emotional distress damages, past and future, $30 million. Yeah. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff David Wheeler and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems at line A and line B, $55 million. Yeah. Uh, initial Never said their name, don't know who they are. To plaintiff Francine Wheeler. A, defamation slash slander damages, past and future, $24 million. Yeah! B, emotional distress damages, past and future, $30 million. Yeah! Fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Francine Wheeler and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems, bad line A and line B, total $54 million. Yeah! by juror number one. To plaintiff Jacqueline Barton, A, defamation slash slander damages, past and future, $10 million. B, emotional distress damages, past and future, $18,800,000. Good, good. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Jacqueline Barton and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems at line A and line B, $28,800,000. Initial by Get those numbers law. up. Two plaintiffs, Mark Barton. A, 257 million right now. Come on, go. Damages, more than that. Future, $25 million. That's better. B, emotional distress damages, past and future, $32,600,000. Never said their names, all Total made up. Fair, just, and reasonable nope. damages. All, <laughs> hilarious. Mark Barton and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems at line A and line B, $57,600,000. That's better. Initial by journal number Get one. those numbers up. Two plaintiffs, Nicole Hockley. A, defamation slash slander damages, past and future, $32 million. B, emotional so distress So the $73 million from Hermitian wasn't enough. This is quite a money back. million, dollars Total fair justice. The difference is Remington had money. We don't. And against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems at line A and line B, $73,600,000. Yeah. Initial plaintiff, excuse me. Get those numbers up. 
to plaintiff Ian Hockley. And they're not done. They're going to keep suing everybody. This is right. damages past the future, $38 million. Good. B, emotional distress damages past and future, $43 million, $600,000. Good. Total fair We don't have a billion. I'm not happy. I want to be the billion-dollar man. And against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems at line A and line B, $81,600,000. Initialed by juror number one. Good. Plaintiff Jennifer Hensel, a defamation slash slander damages past and future, $21 million. B, emotional distress damages. They actually believe they're getting future, this money. It's like they believe all their own stuff. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Jennifer Hensel and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems at line A and line B, $52 million. Initial by Bravo! What a political a joke. What a weaponized system. Because all they want is some billion dollar number. This is ridiculous. I don't have $2 million. The emotional distress damages past and future, $30 million. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Donna Soto and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems at line A and line B, $48 million. Initialed by juror number one. They haven't gotten to the FBI agent. I never said his name. Didn't know who he was. I want to hear that one. Defamation, excuse me, defamation slash slander damages, past and future, $30 million. The emotional distress damages, past and future, $36 million. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Carly Soto Parisi. Well, this is going to go on for hours. If I don't have a billion, I'm upset. And now they say, questioning elections, same thing, got to sue Alex Jones. To plaintiff Carlos Matthew Soto. Can't they get blood out of a stone. Slander damages, past and future, $18,600,000. So this is what a show trial looks like. I mean, this is the left completely out of control, doing whatever they want, like drag queen story time, two men can have a baby. I mean, this is what they do. This is their, this is their, their panacea. At line A and line B, $57,600,000. $57 million, $20 $50 million, $80 million, $100 million, blah, blah, blah. You get a million, you get $100 million, you get a $50 million. Slander damages, past and future. Couldn't put on evidence, couldn't defend ourselves. Stress damages, past and future. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Francine Wheeler against Alex I'm sorry. See, there's more charges. Oh, we're going to get to way, way past a billion. Oh, sorry. $54 million, initial by juror number one. Two plaintiff Jacqueline Barden, A, defamation slash slander damages, past and future, $10 million. B, emotional distress damages, past and future, $18,800,000. So they had no security at the school. They covered up what really happened, and now I'm the devil. I'm actually proud to be under this level of attack. At line A and line B, $28,800,000, initialed by juror number one. Told you there's four charges. Two plaintiff Mark Barden, A, defamation slash but remember, all of it's cap but cuppa, which they claimed I had some unfair business trade. The judge decides that. That's where it doesn't matter. $32,600,000. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Mark Barton and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems at line A and line B. Why are these numbers only in the millions? It should be trillions per person. I'm offended. Two plaintiffs, Nicole Hockley, A, defamation slash slander damages, past and future. That's what sort of the hell's like. They just read out your damages. Even though you don't have the money, you're just still got to sit there while they do this. 
Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Nicole Hockley and against health. And they lie and say I made money off of them. It's a gun control lobby made money off of it. $73,600,000, initialed by juror number one. Two plaintiffs, Ian Hockley. A Do these people actually think they're getting any money? Past and future, $38 million. B, emotional distress damages, past and future, $43,600,000. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Ian Hockley <laughs> and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems at line A and line B, $81,600,000 initial by- Good, $81 million. that's good. We're well Jennifer past a billion now, right? A, defamation- What are we at now, guys? Damages, past and future, $21 million. B, emotional distress damages, past- We've lost future, count, it's in the billions, okay? It's in the billions. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages against Jennifer Hensel and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems. By the way, they're fair and just, he said that. $52 million, initialed by juror number one. To the plaintiff, Donna Sosa. A, defamation slash slander damages, past and future, $18 million. B, emotional distress damages, past and future, $30 million. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Donna Soto and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems, and line A and line B, $48 million, initialed by juror number one. To plaintiff Carly Soto Parisi, A, defamation slash slander damages, past and future, $30 million. B, emotional distress damages, past and future, $36 million. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Carly Soto Parisi and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems, at line A and line B, $66 million, initialed by juror number one. To plaintiff Carlos Matthew Soto, A, defamation slash slander damages, past and future, $18,600,000. B, emotional distress damages, past and future, $39 million. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Carlos Matthew Soto and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems, at line A and line B, $57,600,000, initialed by juror number one. To plaintiff Jillian Soto Marino, A, defamation slash slander damages, past and future, $30 million. B, emotional distress damages, past and future, $38,800,000. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Jillian Soto Marino and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems, at line A and line B, $68,800,000, initialed by juror number one. To plaintiff William Aldenberg, A, defamation slash slander damages, past and future, $45 million. B, emotional distress damages, past and future, $45 million. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff William Aldenberg and against Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems, at line A and line B, $90 million. Initial by juror number one. Two plaintiff Erica Lafferty, A, defamation slash slander damages, past and future, $18 million. B, emotional distress damages, past and future, $58 million. Total fair, just, and reasonable damages to plaintiff Erica Lafferty. Okay, so this is going to take hours and hours here about the billions and billions and billions I owe. Let's put up Drudge Report right now for people. $2 billion dollars owed by Alex Jones. 
I personally don't have $2 million. The company's almost completely out of money. We're in bankruptcy. There's two appeals. It'll take years. There's caps on almost all of this. This is just completely, absolutely made up. And now the Democratic Party run, CNN bought it years ago. Literally, I was told that. Drudge Report is just up there celebrating this. They want to scare everybody away from freedom and scare us away from questioning Uvalde and what really happened there or, or Parkland or any other event. And guess what? We're not scared and we're not going away and we're not going to stop. And literally, for hundreds of thousands of dollars, I can keep them in court for years. I can appeal this stuff. We can stand up against this travesty, against the billions of dollars they want. It's a joke. So please go to InfoWarsStore.com and get Vitamin Mineral Fusion, get X3, get all the great products that are there that keep us on air at InfoWarsStore.com or 888 Two five three three one three nine. You want somebody to fight? We're gonna get attacked for doing it. You want somebody to stand up? It's gonna happen. They're gonna come after us. But it's okay because we're here. It's okay that Tim Cook runs death camps because he's gay. Remember that. So these are monsters, a dead system, the things that can demonize me, the, the head populist, and that'll make you all go away and be scared. But you're not scared. You're going to stand up. Flood us with donations at SaveInfoWars.com. Hundreds of thousands of dollars can beat their millions of Democratic Party money and all their frauds. And get products at InfoWarsStore.com like Vitamin Mineral Fusion and X3, 50% off, promo code 1776, and that will save you another 10%. But whatever you do, share the article. They have no chivalry. They have no bottom. They didn't have a case in their suit against us, so the judge found me guilty and then told the jury how guilty I was and wouldn't let us put on evidence. And my own lawyer's like, I think you might win. I think they were listening. I said, no, they're spending days deciding how many billions they're going to give them that doesn't exist. It's like inflation. As bad as inflation is, in a year or two, a billion dollars will be like $100. All of this is vestigial. All this is ceremonial. All this is going away. All this is over. Like the fake college degrees and, 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 and the 401ks and the systems, none of it means anything. So I'm so honored to be here on air and laughing at this because they have used these families. They have squeezed them to sue Remington and do all this other crap. And now they're coming after your free speech. Now they're coming after your right to listen to what you want and hear what you want. So these ambulance chasers love being all over TV. They don't have any money. They don't care about that. They're using those families who a 73 million, not enough. They need more. They need more money. America is at fault that Adam Lanza was on Prozac and went and killed people. And Alex Jones is at fault. It's weakness. It's not strength that's causing them to do this. So you want to counterbalance them? Flood, SaveInfoWars.com. With donations, I want to thank you, those of you that did it. SaveInfoWars.com. Go to InfoWarsStore.com and get the X3. And see what uh, you want to... Get jump to the next one, or do you want to comment? No, Ed, guys, pull. I got a couple comments on this, you know. and that's a good place to leave man. it. Because uh, if people don't buy toothpaste from Alex, the Sandy Hook families can't get their money. So support the families. Now, I do have a comment on that that's serious, but this is my hobby time. It's a comedy show, so I, I made a little light there because it's a heavy topic. But let's rewind for a second. I'm going to give the audible uh, control room. Next clip I'm going to need before the clip you were planning to play, LD, is Alex Jones talking to 
Matt Drudge, is that the guy's name? Where mm. Drudge says, I just heard from the Supreme Court that they're going to end free speech in this country. And he warns him. And I was like, hmm, I don't I don't know. That sounds far out. And then everything that Drudge said happened. And Drudge took the other side with the winners because that's how you survive. That's right. When you're he definitely changed his position when yeah, it was convenient for him to do so. All right. Like so I'm gonna leave that clip in a too. second. All right. Next point is that the point I forgot to make before we even rolled the clip is Tony, uh, they want Jones to prove he didn't do something in evidence that's not there. Can you prove a negative using logical rules and reason? Or is that outside the bounds of logic and should never be accepted as you have to prove a negative? It's, it's like a sucker's it. bet. Prove that's you that's didn't. absolutely. Yeah. Preview Instead of that's- you having the onus of proof on, and you have to prove I did. That's how it works. You're innocent until proven guilty. You have to have the I mean, this is how it's worked outside star chambers. I mean, this is our first introduction to star chamber in this country, but that's exactly how it works. What you're seeing right there, this whole shenanigans, they're leading with their conclusion. There's complex questions. There's uh, circular logic, but there's, it's really um, the fallacy of ad ignorantium in a way, Um, a reverse version of that. So it's interesting um, that they're, they're leading with, this is the conclusion. We've already come up with the conclusion. I'll prove you didn't do it. Um, so, and with that, it's uh, Mr. Jones. Is that the first time you beat your wife? Right. Well, that's a complex did. question. That's that's yeah, a right. complex. Yes question or no is going to end up in uh, jail. Yeah, exactly. Or the gallows, or the right. guillotine, or whatever. Because there's already on. and there's an assumption being made. I call these assumptive fallacies in regards to. I was going to say, if you're ever in London, I highly recommend touring their torture museum. They've got quite the specimen collection over the last thousand years. You might see that they compel witnesses on a regular basis to get information they need. Or you could watch a contemporary film like In the Name of the Father. They use similar techniques on the Irish back in the 70s, and they speak the same language, just like we Americans do. When we were watching Koskov um, examine Alex Jones, if if that's even the correct term in regards to what that whole charade was. Hmm. Um, That was Attorney Maddie, I'm pretty sure. Is it Maddie? Well, it doesn't matter. It was one of the attorney two attorneys. Maddie, I thought it was Costco. Plaintiff's that attorneys. Was, that That's was how a, I like to say it. One of the plaintiff's it. attorneys that was examining Alex Jones. And they kept leading questions. So in marketing, we call it leading questions. In logic, we call it complex questions. And there's an assumption being made that there's already a conclusion. In well, they the were so used to doing it to their own witnesses, right? Because when the answer from the witness is yes, you're basically stating what they did instead of them testifying to their actions. And it used to be a no-no in court, but again, star chamber rules different. So this is my first observation into this. Thank you, Law and Crime Network, for showing us like live. And the fallacy of that ignorantium is they're they're assuming the positive in regards that somehow Alex Jones literally told these individuals that went and harassed these 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 poor these these poor parents that suffered a, a horrific tragedy. Um, and there's no evidence of that. Clearly, he did not do that. In fact, he made just a couple comments in passing for the most part. And then they tried to build straw men with his rise to fame and success in regards to Alex Jones and free speech systems with the revenue he's bringing in and disregarded through neglected aspects and um, uh, quoting out of context and all the confirmation bias. He's a whole host, but it's really quoting out of context and neglected aspects in regards to building the straw man that his rise to fame was specifically on the Sandy Hook trial or the sand not so excuse me the sandy oh, yeah, Tony, hook tragedy the sandy hook tra- according to this regard presented in the trial and he's not allowed to argue against that because there was a default no. judgment and that's the the eliminate the next best thing about. to orange man bad the next worst thing to orange so man they're bad. trying to get him to prove so they're trying to they get him to essentially assert a positive or they're asserting rather a positive 
and saying, prove otherwise. Well, it's like, prove to me that I'm directly responsible for these individuals doing this. And that's the fallacy bagged in your ante. I'm not, Tony, he you would need each, but he's not allowed to do that. Custody. They don't have otherwise, any of the negative holds the field. They don't the need negative, it either to get a billion dollars, apparently. If the negative like I said, held, star chamber rules are totally different. It's like Australian rules football versus rugby. It's like, you know, similar field and people in funny outfits with stripes, take but my it's logic, like different things going on. If you take my logic course, you'll pretty much see how they uh, implemented that the logical fallacies in this entire trial. And you'll see that star chamber court to your point. They dis, they base everything on contradictions and sophisticated rhetoric to make it seem like there's no contradictions there. So they make it seem like Alex Jones was in fact guilty in some capacity and people don't do their research and are ignorant, purposefully ignorant because they're, they're, the evidence is there to show the other side. Then yeah, they're going to end up with these faulty conclusions that are contradictory to the actual reality of what transpired. He did not tell those individuals in any way, shape or form to go harass those parents. He's not directly... Uh, uh, should in any way be held guilty for that unless he's found guilty by trial of his, uh, uh, of his peers um, or juror of his peers, but he didn't get that opportunity because there's a default judgment. And that's, yeah. that's, that's, and then to Norm's point, if we get to the clips or not, but I'll, I'll just reiterate this. Yeah, we'll Norm, cla- Norm claimed, that, especially though in Shorter, that it's not uncommon for de- default judgments to happen, but it's very uncommon in the state of Connecticut, especially when it comes to uh, defamation. Or anything that has to do with the potential uh, First Amendment or issues associated like with the First if, Amendment. If there's no proof of it, did it really happen? And if it if you can't even prove it happened, there must not be any damage from it. Otherwise, it'd be proof that the thing happened. But they're it claiming it did. And That's evidence the evidence and chain of custody, the, and they can track people who maybe did it because there's investigations into it. And it's a really important case on a federal and state level. Yes, right. And that's I didn't see any of that stuff in the trial. Claiming the positive, right, because how convenient. They can claim the positive, said he's guilty of it, and not present any evidence. And that's the brilliant legal strategy right there. And then they build a lot of straw men. There's no ethics or integrity there, but that's a brilliant strategy. Right. Because it makes makes the average individual, to the average individual, to the average normie out there, um, it makes it seem, I'm going to use that pejorative, it makes it seem as though he's in fact guilty and that they somehow were able to argue this case. Mm-hmm. Um, and present evidence to that fact, in which case they haven't been able to, if you do a little bit of research, but that's the idea of sophistry. That's the way in which you can, you cleverly use lies fallaciously and present them as truth. And that's pretty much the entire like modern world we live in today. Or if you guys need a condensed version, go look up that clip from gladiator where Commodus comes up. Uh-huh. <laughs> says oh yeah let me just make the fight a little Classic more even fun. for you and now it's going to look rock star bro it's going to that's look right. it's going to get when a lot he, of odd a lot of clicks a lot of that's clicks that, that's a very famous scene at the end right when he stabs him he's like yeah now you'll battle me for the the fate of the will of the roman people and, and unfortunately uh, commodus couldn't really win that battle so He's got power, everybody. That's in a way, that's a great metaphor for the powers that be, though, whoever we want to dictate them to be, because they they create so many sort of um, you're uh, so guilty. We don't even need you to be guilty to hold you being guilty. They yeah, they create layers of complexity to insulate themselves from the potential fallout that, you know, they're very weak and are not able to defend themselves anyway. So all they can do is convince other people that they aren't weak or that, in fact, that they are somehow morally scrupulous individuals that are held to the highest standards. And, and so it's really mind control. It's really narrative control. It's controlling the will, the minds, the hearts, 
and ultimately then the actions of individuals. That's the way in which they get away with this. They insulate themselves more and more and more to remove themselves as far as possible from the potential re- repercussions because they themselves are very weak individuals. Now, if you misset the uh, like the expectations of some people who had their kids die in a tragic way and you misset those expectations and you lied about this guy over here who really didn't do the things you're going to try to do. And then instead of paying for that mistake, you get the billion dollars for them from the guy that you're lying about. What do you think the penalty should look like for doing that? If it was ever adjudicated and overturned on appeal, what do you think would be, you know, if the scales were fixed, what would what happen during then? the American Revolution? Would they have to go out of business, a multi-hundred year law firm that does such things? Could they possibly, could they, could Alex's attorneys, could Norm Pattis someday be saying the same thing? Because I thought there was a school that Project Veritas went to and it had the same name as the law firm. I don't know if it's like a thing or something like that. Maybe it's just a coincidence. I got to move on from that because I got a couple other points we can make before uh, we play this clip. So first off, I want to let's rewind. I have a great deal of sympathy for those parents. What they went through yeah, was traumatic, tragic, unnecessary, never should have happened in this country. But it did happen. And while I want those kids to be alive again, that's not how it works. Somebody really killed those kids. Now, when you look at the evidence, you're supposed to be able to come up with, oh, this 100-pound kid on Ridland who plays video games, locked and loaded and flawlessly executed a high kill rate on this uh, you know, place that should have had security. Right. Don't ask questions about school. Don't sue into those systems. Get the guy who made the mouth sounds down in Texas, right? So while I wish all that didn't happen, yeah. it, it really did. It did. And Absolutely. this whole way of trying to bring justice to those parents, I think, has been very not it's insulting to them. And people who were concerned about them. that event in history, like myself, who sympathize with those parents, when we looked into these things and look at FOIA requests and, and bring up these contradictions, it's not because we don't like the parents. It's because we want those parents to find out the truth of what happened so they can have closure and heal from it. And I don't think they're getting closure when they got a bunch of rich people putting untruths in their ears and then telling them to sit there and make sure your trauma and pain is televised for the world. So these other guys can justify to six people billion dollars from a guy who doesn't have it, never had it, never will. Norm made a good point. Like what, what was the narrative immediately following that event? How was it politicized? You know, Thank what you. was, yeah. Thank you, Tony. Cause that's my last point before we go okay. to this clip. Yep. People who saw that event, like many other school shootings, and then the politicization and standing on those dead children's graves or not even wait until they're buried to make, bring yeah. out their anti-gun agendas. When someone like Alex says, look, there are people who exist who have an anti-gun agenda. They are not freedom friendly. They don't believe you have rights. They don't believe you have the right to live. And they're willing to kill in any number of countries around the world to achieve their agenda. But they would never do it here. And you should never assume that the government might have like people dress as Iranian terrorists and come in and blow things up at colleges back in the day. False flag terrorism on our own to, for political policies. They would never do that in this From country. which they build they? straw men. Except the history shows there are groups of people who are willing to do things like that and set up and choreograph situations. You know who's really good at it? Our British cousins. Because in their countries, they just had enough school shootings in Ireland and England and Australia to take everyone's guns and the rest of the places in their empire that's now a commonwealth that was never allowed to arm themselves or defend themselves in the first fucking place. Yeah. Australia. So when well, they bring that here, UK, that sure. shoe doesn't fit America. Germany. We know the value of being able to defend ourselves from people who would treat themselves as our owners because we don't believe in slavery. We are abolitionists. That is why we have a bill of rights. And the people who want slavery and profit from slavery, they're going to tell you, you don't need a gun. Let them protect you. 
That's exactly right. How it works. We ended up having to go to war for that. But Remington's at fault. Take out an arms maker who had it's some all about the abdication of responsibility that some kid's mom bought because that's the whole thing right adam lanza used it because remington had oh cool advertising well his so mom bought the gun he didn't fault. even buy the gun so there's no age that's my point there's no there's like, no one agency. responsible except there's alex no responsibility Tony. that's what i want you to get everything is purely determined it seems like yeah. that's sort of what they're they're uh, positioning there's some now sort let's of, see like, what alex's buddy matt drudge is up to sorry yeah no go, go for ahead. it no no go for it or LD, rather, if, if you found the clip. Did you find it? Yeah, let's give this a try. I found Yeah, they tried a... to delete it from everywhere because they yeah. banned Alex. Mm-hmm. And he lost a lot of videos out of his catalog. And I'm sure this was preserved at Odyssey or BitChute. Or where'd you find it? Yeah, I think I found it on BitChute. It's about four-some minutes long. So let's give that I a shot. I wonder why they wouldn't want you to see something like this. Because when, when, they, when they censored Alex and deleted his whole catalog from YouTube, 35,000 videos. People are like, good, he deserves it. And I said, oh, yeah. what about all the information from all those guests who wrote all those books where we have this like chronological timeline of all these different events and all these different experts that were on that? Oh, the so really, they're not penalizing Alex at first. They're penalizing his audience. They're saying, Alex knows all that stuff. He went through it. You don't know about it, and you'll never find out about it because they deleted it all. That's justice, too. That's truth, justice, American way. Take it away, Matt Drudge. <laughs> We were warned by a Supreme Court justice through Matt Drudge the censorship was coming, and now it's here. But there's a way to bypass it. We're going to break it down in just a moment. LD, what year I is don't this? know why they... Hmm. Like I think around 2014. 2014. Okay, yeah, before Trump was elected. Allegedly. Before Orange Man Bad, this happened. They've been successful in pushing everybody into these little ghettos of these Facebooks and these tweets and uh, these Instagrams, these Instas. This is ghetto. This is ghetto. This is corporate. They're taking your, they taking your energy. They're taking your energy and you're getting nothing in return. I had a Supreme Court justice tell me to my face, it's over for me. I said, Matt, it's over for you. They've got the votes now to enforce copyright law. You're out of there. They're gonna make it so headlines, you can't even use headlines. To have a Supreme Court justice say that to my face, that it's over, they've got the votes, which means time is limited. Time is not forever. How many more moons and sunrises will you see in your life? Uh, rise and fall. There's not that many. It's a small amount. So for people to be saying with this attitude, oh, I'll get on with my life and my greatness sometime. No. No, you can't. Many of you have probably heard of the Streisand effect, but most people don't know the history behind it. It was more than a decade ago Barbara Streisand, who'd said that soon the ocean would rise dozens of feet and flood everybody's coastal homes. It was more than a decade ago that local journalists found out that she had a giant sprawling compound right on the beach. So they said, look at her huge mansion on the beach. Does Barbara Streisand really believe her propaganda? Well, she threatened lawsuits against the journalist. And that caused more media to pay attention to it, so it became not just a national story, but an international story for several months. And hence we get the term, the Streisand effect. But there's also a phenomenon that I've seen happen with the Democrats especially, and tactics they're using against the free press, nationalists, Christians, gun groups, veteran groups, parental groups, anti-vax groups, you name it. A tactic that I would dub the dogpile effect. 
to where normally if they sue you or attack you, they know that draws more attention to you. But if enough of them sue you, if enough of them attack you, if enough of them lie about you, and if they lie about a bunch of other people and sue a bunch of other people and censor a bunch of other people like Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube and Google are doing, pretty soon everybody gets tone deaf. They get exhausted hearing about all the censorship, all the control. They don't deny it's going on. They just kind of give in to it. And that's the tactic that the Democrats and Hollywood and the failing mainstream media are playing. They're all collapsing. No one wants to watch them or listen to them. They don't have a choice but to join with corrupt government and foreign governments, namely the communist Chinese government, to come in and to uniformly move against free speech in America and Europe. Hell, the Chinese dictator has been in major op-eds in the US and in China praising the censorship of nationalists and free market folks and patriots. That is so outrageous. So to the listeners, to the viewers, Matt Drudge more than two and a half years ago came to this very studio, was standing just about 10 feet right over there and said, Alex, while you're still dominant on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, you've got to move everything to Infowars.com or other sites and have your own video streaming, your own everything, because they're going to start the censorship. A major Supreme Court justice told me when Hillary wins, supposedly in about a year and a half. Well, that was two and a half years ago. Now, she lost, for a second. but they're still going ahead. I just want to point out that on screen, Drudge at the time, his fearful predictions, oh, Trump's going to make you get a license to do, do journalism. Did any of the things that the fearful manifest? No. In fact, it's because of their fear that all these other things have manifested. There's fear one group the out kill. there manifesting their fears on the rest of us, and we don't like it. We see you doing it. Like, Drudge, you're wrong back then. Trump didn't do that. Did you change your position? No, you got more extreme, didn't you? And then you alienated and sold out Alex Jones. Well, that's interesting. Because that reminds me of that clip that Alex did this week with Crowder, where Crowder, to, to his credit, he took his opportunity and, and made a really good point. And that is this. Alex just got fined a billion dollars. Free speech is under attack. Second Amendment's under attack. Fifth Amendment's under attack. Sure. Who had him on? Who gave him a platform? He was on Joe Rogan, right? For three hours or five hours, some mega thing that got 100 million views. That's where he was, right? Because he got that invite. Unfortunately not. No. No. So Crowder says, why are you here today and not these other places who are happy to use you for clicks, but not so happy when you might cost them their position on Spotify or social credit score or these other things. So it makes one wonder when evaluating the landscape, who are the people who are in it to win it and are willing to take risks for freedom, liberty in the American way? And who are the other people who are just happy to pick up a little money and turn their head and cough when uh, tyranny comes their way? If we have that clip in the playlist, I know it's short notice but uh alex jones stephen crowder toward the end of the episode they start making that. those points yeah, probably about 10 or 15 minutes from the end okay yeah we do so Thanks, do you sir. want to move on i guess that it's longer than i thought that drudge clip yeah that's fine we made the point that drudge was saying those things he called it and then all that censorship alex was just foreshadowing actually happened and especially it happened to him right so that was the point yeah a lot of proof in that pudding yeah. and i don't think you know uh, Drudge's position today is a function of him logically and reasonably following the facts forward. I think it's highly politically colored. It. And well, fear. It's, it's fear, highly politically colored. I won. I can just 
sort of assume potentially or theorize that there might be some other incentives behind his willingness to change position so quickly, especially since he was also in the know, supposedly from a uh, federal or Supreme Court justice that this was coming. So it's interesting yeah. that he didn't stand up for his own and principles. I'm just him. noticing he didn't seem like he didn't stand did up for his own get, principles. Did he get copyright? Did he did he go out of business because they started copywriting headlines and he can't do it? No, actually, his business is fine and thriving because he played along with the rules. You got it. He was and willing to compromise Alex, his own values. Is my so point. that's what they're showing you. If you go along with the lie, there's a lot of benefits to it. And if you stand up to it, they'll persecute you like Jesus on the cross. If you're a whistleblower these days, oh, many such cases. Nothing new. Or if really. you're an ex- I mean, investigative you ex- journalist, you might not even get that. They'll just say you, uh, you were Hastings, depressed yeah. and suicided. Yeah. Add yeah. it to the Clinton body count right here. We're going to have to carry the one and uh, make Clinton a new column here. And Epstein body count. My goodness. There's a. Yeah, that's a big one. Well, oh. let, we're going to get to that very soon. So we'll cover yeah. uh, the rest of this Alex story and then uh, we'll bring in our guest. So I've got the Alex Jones lawyer responds. Yeah, Pat is clear. Yeah, I want to go to the Crowder clip first, though, oh, to frame sure. out. Like, uh, well, yeah, gist, let's do that, but then we'll go then, to Norm. And no, yeah, it'll be like spice it up, and then we'll go to Norm with the very logical, would, reasonable. So you said you wanted to get like the what the last fifteen ish minutes? Yeah, well, like I guess, the last fifteen. Minutes. Okay. Do you yeah, have that? That's when it got spicy. That's why. Yeah. Alrighty. I liked when Alex Jones was comparing the other settlements, the other verdicts, and yeah, if we can find that part too, because that's more in the beginning. Apropos, like so maybe a little from the beginning, a little from the end. If you want to see Crowder in the morning, putting a lot of pressure on LD right now, but he can do it. He's got because we'll just keep talking until we find it. So the first part where so find the part where Alex Jones goes to the overhead cam and he starts reading from different verdicts in regards to payouts for. Uh, civil cases. Yeah, civil like damages. Pfizer might have gotten you know, Oxycontin fine. and different sort of different other pay uh, payouts. There might be fine. the Ford reference in there where Ford, pe- yeah. you know, they set a family on fire and that only cost three million and they knew they were going to do it. They're like, well, you know, somebody's going to burn to death, but it won't be us because we don't drive the Pinto. And that's, you know, put the gas lean tank behind the axle. It's a wonderful idea. Oh, actually, we have uh, I can find that actually. For what's her face? We'll talk to us about All that right. coming up. Oh. All right, we'll go to this first clip. Thank you, LD, for let's, uh, helping let's us find the time code. It's going to go. Swimming. Even talk about the Texas election, other than saying I, I don't think Beto, uh, you know, was as close as he said he was to Ted Cruz. So this is the absolute next level garbage and propaganda. In fact, overhead shot. I want to show people this. Texas Secretary of State Alex Jones unleashed hell on our election people. That's the the hill. Uh, here's another one. Republican Texas election chief blasts nuts peddling 2020 conspiracy theory zooms in on Alex Jones. So just like they're suing everybody oh, that the questions election fraud that. or mail-in ballots, when he he used the the they never even when he sued me because That's I wasn't one of the main proponents of questioning the election yeah, so he uses like some of the more prominent people were, okay. who, who really got out there. I, I did have questions. It's my right to do it. But they're now just circling back going, okay, we just got this verdict. uh, So now we're going to say Alex Jones made people question the elections. So now... Purdue Pharma that knew Oxycontin would addict people and kill them by the thousands. 20 seconds. Perfect. The survivors of Epstein received 965 million. Exactly. Good point on Twitter, Eliza. Think about that real quick. Why the triangle? We still don't know the names. Uh, Exactly. We still we still don't know. We still don't know. The names of the Johns. Here's another good point. Purdue Pharma that knew Oxycontin would addict people and kill them by the thousands. Ha- 
have to pay $634.5 million on the 10 plus billion they made profit in the Oxycontin case. Alex yep. Jones killed no one, ordered to pay $965 million for Sandy Hook lies. And I don't, think, I don't think anyone is blowing somebody in an alley because of their addiction to uh, colloidal silver. <laughs> Absolutely, they're not. <laughs> Here's another one. The largest fine paid by a banking executive responsible for the 2008 financial crisis was $67.5 million. Jury says Alex Jones pays $965 million. Here's another one. Yes, from a lawyer, Viva Fry. Yes, except for OJ, was found guilty of the actual deaths of two victims after a trial, that was a civil trial, whereas Alex Jones was found guilty of making false statements about people who were murdered by someone else without a trial. So OJ pays $33.5 million. I pay 900 plus million and it goes on. Yeah, and on. OJ was so innocent. what's going to happen? Absolutely. He was found innocent <laughs> by the criminal, but guilty by the civil. So what? when are they going to sue MSNBC for some of the lies that were done? I want $1 million. My feelings are hurt by their lies. And, and it just goes on from there. But those are some really important points. No, I think these are important points. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think we actually have some questions from, uh, do we have some questions from the audience? If you're okay, taking a couple and then we'll go to Mug Club. I want to take them. Can we play that one other clip? It's about a minute and a half long of the lawyers saying, shut Sorry, it down, Tony, silence him. Yeah. Do you have it? Do you want to play it from your end? We have it. We're going to go ahead and roll that clip now. Here it is. Thanks, brother. Let it play. Let it play. I ask that with your verdict, you not only take Alex Jones' platform that he talks about away, I ask that you make certain he can't rebuild the platform. That's what matters. Take him out of this discourse, of this misinformation, of this peddling of lies, and make sure he can't do it again. That is punishment. That is deterrence. But somewhere out there right now is another thing. Getting their ready for school. Fixing their lunches. Home to work. Thinking about taking their kids. And there's going to be a day when that child doesn't come home from school. And we know it, and it's sad, and that's reality. And the question's going to be, where is Alice Jones when that happens? Is he in the studio? Getting ready to bounce? Or will you stop him? Someone get him that infomercial spray hair. That's going to be in your hands. We get all done with all the evidence, we're going to come back and ask and there's many other clips of them saying we want him off air we don't want money for the plaintiffs we want to silence his future speech so even a murderer goes and does their jail time gets out in 20 years but no they're saying keep him deplatformed bankrupt him shut him down and don't send him money because we don't want money to the plaintiffs because they don't want me to have money for the appeals because they know there's a 98 percent chance this crap gets overturned Stephen. well you know what else they're doing this is something else they're doing that people don't uh, fully discuss is they want to make other people afraid to uh, even work with or for you. Makes That's it good. impossible for you to hire. Right. That's what they tried to do. They tried to do that with me to a lesser scale. It's harder to do with a comedian because they would try and run jokes. But what they're trying to do is also make it impossible for you to even recoup these losses. I mean, we do have to remember, it's not just Alex Jones. You have many employees there. Um, and uh, so, some of them are great. Some of them are assholes. 
but a lot of them are great. But this is the thing is they, <laughs> they want to make sure we all have them, right? I have some here. The Yakuza, he pisses me off half the time, but I love him. Uh, yeah, they want to make it impossible for you to do it. This is your livelihood. Now, I want to take, uh, a, if, if we can, I'd like to, and that is bone yeah, chilling. Yeah, sure, I got terrible. all the time in the world. Really appreciate you having me. Okay, so we'll take a couple of chats here, and then uh, then uh, I'll, I'll have to go to the bathroom. I've been drinking Gatorade. I, I had a horrible stomach virus. Be careful out there right now. It's going through Texas like a buzzsaw. Uh, Tokenown, let's grab a couple of questions from the audience here that we usually only do on Mug Club, but it's a special case. Yeah, our Mug Club viewer, Jerry, has a question for you, Alex. Uh, what do you feel was an appropriate penalty for what you said? Uh, nothing. It's it's better that 10 guilty men go free than one innocent man be, be, be prosecuted or persecuted. They got rid of my due process. The judge found me guilty. They lied about it all. They hyped up what I said. They exaggerated it. I never sent people to their houses. It's a lie. They're setting a precedent to steal your rights, not just your rights to listen to what you want to listen to and make your own decisions. They're literally setting this up to come after the general public, an FBI agent that I never saw, never covered, never said his name till he sued me. He admitted it on the stand was given $90 million because some people on the internet thought it didn't happen. I didn't create the story that it didn't happen. I covered it. Right. And so a man's getting $90 million. He won't get it. Right. Doesn't exist. He's getting $90 million of this made up mad money, this monopoly money. When I never said his damn name, folks, that's tyranny. That's dangerous. And also it's important when you'll get a lot of people on the left saying, oh, the right has a double standard because what about Nick Sandman and CNN? What about Kyle Rittenhouse? They said his name. The president of the United States had an advertisement, had an ad that went out that uh, associated Kyle Rittenhouse specifically with white supremacy. They said Nick Sandman was mocking somebody, uh, this poor Native American, Nathan Phillips, as I prefer my Native Americans to be called. Nathan Phillips. They said, yeah, he was mocking Nathan Phillips and he was, he was stirring up the crowd. They did call out these people by name and these people had to hire security. And these people had to go into hiding. There is a difference. You did not do that. And they did it repeatedly. They did it all day and all night. Not to mention what preceded Kyle Rittenhouse was the media drumming up actual hatred and uh, uh, and. That's right. Violence. And they, could, they never showed any evidence. I sent people to harass people or anything. Of course it not. was always what somebody else did. Right. Whereas what happened is Kamala Harris said they're not going to stop and they should not stop when answering riots. She said they should not stop the riots. The mayor of Seattle said, no, this is a summer of love. We support what they're doing. And then the media said Kyle Rittenhouse is a white supremacist who killed innocent protesters. They didn't mention the fact that it was a, uh, a pedophile uh, with a raging erection in a hospital bag. Uh, hey, uh, let's uh, token on grab one more question and then um, we'll uh, we'll take it to Mug Club. And when we go to Mug Club, I'm going to have to go. Uh, I've been drinking Gatorade all morning. Go uh, uh, relieve myself, Alex. But Gerald will take the chair for like two minutes. Uh, one last question here, Tokeno. Okay, Muck Club viewer Taylor Kohler wants to know, if people only knew one true thing about you, Alex, among all these lies, what would it be? That was going to be my last question. I mean, look, I'm a real person. I've got a lot of information. Sometimes I'm a little bit obnoxious because I'm trying to get through it all, like here today. And I really appreciate Stephen and the crew being so gracious so I can have a place to tell the, the, the truth. And I appreciate your courage because you do get attacked for having me on. And just that this is our rights being taken. This is a Hollywood production. I'm not saying Sandy Hook didn't happen. I'm saying the production of what I supposedly did and how big it became and you know, this, this, this huge event. I'm not the Sandy Hook guy. I'm the guy that wrote the number one best-selling book in the world, The Great Reset and the War for the World. That's why the globalists hate me is because I'm exposing their corporate worldwide tyranny. I'm exposing groups like PayPal that are back, by the way, saying, if we don't like what you say, we're going to fine you $2,500. I'm opposing 
their authoritarianism. I'm a populist. I'm a champion of the people. And folks can actually hear the real Alex Jones at Infowars.com, Infowars.com forward slash show or band.video. Go see the real live show. Go see the archives. Go see the guest. Go find out what I'm actually saying instead of little bitty twisted edited excerpts that the corporate media puts out. And understand the globalists see InfoWars is the flag they want to capture. They are more obsessed with it than anything else out there right now because when the globalists tune in, they get scared because I know what I'm talking about when it comes to the mechanics of the New World Order. Um, final question, then we're going to go to Mug Club and take some more chats. Uh, what's the next step? What, what are you doing here next, Alex? What's the game plan? Well, that's a really great question. Um, my biggest enemy is myself. I am absolutely exhausted. I'm burnt out. I drink too much. Uh, I, I haven't smoked in 14 years under the stress. I took up smoking again. Um, going out and watching comedy and hanging out with Joe Rogan. There's a lot of cigarette smoking going on. Uh, yeah, I don't so think I that's cigarette that. smoke. Well, I've done a little bit of the marijuana smoke, too. But uh, <laughs> I don't smoke a lot of it. But yeah, I, I smoke pot like once a month or something. Usually when I'm at a comedy club or go see a movie. Uh, every time I hang out with Joe, he, he smokes a pot. Uh, but so sometimes I guess twice a week, but I haven't hung out with Joe that much lately. I've been too busy, but there's some days we've gone on it like twice a week and get, get stoned, but a little bit of fun stuff there. But long story short, I, I asked your game plan, off. Alex, <laughs> ask your hobbies. <laughs> Anyways. Well, I mean, it's a little bit of a name drop to all the trendy liberals that think they're trendy and think they're cool and, and love the police state and hate free speech. I'm the real rebel. Okay. Let me pull up this Pattis clip. No, please let no, that please fight. Let that. Oh. Fail. 76. We are the counterculture, not them, and they can't stand that. And so that's what I want people to know. We are the counterculture. Stephen Crowder is the counterculture. The listeners and viewers of these shows that support independent media are the future of not just America, but the world. And people can find out what all the stinks about at InfoWars.com. So it sounds to me like what you're saying. Your next step is, and I, I, Alex, you know, I have a lot of love for you, but sometimes it is tough to get you to answer a question. I think no, no, you're, you're saying right. well, here's, here's your the next problem. step is you need, to get some, you need to get some rest is what you're saying, right? Your, your game plan is some yes. rest, recoup and come back. Not yes, come back. I'm more, yeah. listen, I'm more ADHD when I'm totally exhausted. So I've done Me a too. lot of interviews and I was up till one o'clock in the morning and I apologize. My brain's gone right now. So yes, I realize th this is what's coming next. I realize they want to take me out of the game. And I realize that I'm never going to quit now because they want to silence me because this is a battle of wills. And I know it's the right thing to do. But I also understand that I, if I take myself out of the game by being fried or burnt out, they right. win. So I am going to, in the next few months, do something I never do. I'm going to take off a week a month starting at the end of this month, November and December. I may take off two weeks in December. I want my listeners to understand why I've got to do it because I've got to rest. I've got to stop drinking. I've got to stop smoking. I got to go to church to recharge my batteries. I've got to take, you know, my, my daughter camping. I've got to, you know, go you know, uh, camping and shooting with my son and, and my other daughters. And so if you're asking what's happening, I'm going to recharge my batteries, get back to family, get back to God and come back in 2023 harder than ever. You know what? That sounds like a plan because uh, a lot of people know this has been a year and a half for me since the surgery. There have been some complications that people will never fully know about. And uh, yeah, you need to uh, you need to treat yourself as someone you want to take care of. But uh, you know what? You just mentioned something. Hey, when's Rogan going to have you uh, on his show? Why aren't you why, why aren't you doing his show today? You know, I don't want to be mean to Joe. Um, Joe told me uh, I was last time I was on the show was two years ago and it was one of the biggest shows he ever did with um who was on the show with me? It was a great comedian, really funny. Yeah, Tim Dillon. And Joe's like, yeah, we'll have you on a couple months, couple months, couple months. 
And then, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious what's going on. Just a little too much heat for Joe to have me on, which is fine. He had courage about the vaccines. He's had courage about censorship. He's been criticizing the power structure, but he's not as hardcore as Steven Crowder. And I'll just say it, but at least he overall defends free speech. And I just, I just don't think Joe can, you know, handle it. We were out at dinner about a month ago, last time I hung out with him. And uh, it's his pet peeve not to bring it up. And I just said, man, it really helped me with this upcoming court case because the whole media is against me. If I could get on there and explain things. And he just said, Alex, you got, you know, there's too much, too much craziness going on. Let's just get through this. We'll talk about it later. So I'm not really worried about it. Obviously, I'm the big interview he'd want. He even said, listen, you're like nuclear weapons. You know, I, uh, it's, it's, it's a big deal to have you on. I, but I'm not worried about it. It's really a question for Joe. Because no, I, I know. Day, I'm just, I'm just asking because you know you talk about how you're hanging out with him, and not, not only if not him, you know he has he has a bunch of friends who could have you on. He has a whole podcast network. You know, I don't I don't really have that. You know, you've been to our studio. It's it's really just me. I'd love to grow it uh, eventually with other people and be able to you know throw more su- support behind folks. But right well, now so it's me behind the desk. On the courage scale, on the courage scale, Stephen Crowder's a ten, Alex Jones is a ten, and Joe Rogan's an eight. And I'll, I'll take an eight all day over our enemies that are at a zero. Of, of course. Uh, and so I'm nothing but thankful to Joe. For all the heat he's taken having me on right and uh and, and so i totally understand it and you know what i don't want to give out any inside baseball here but i'm just going to leave it at this i'll tell you off air if you want but it's private um the very same people trying to silence me i'm I, you know what i'm, I'm not going to get into it on here but there's been some real harassment of joe and stuff yeah. uh, that's gone on oh i know yeah i know that's happened with him and you These know people are, and you know i'm on that you, you know i'm on that list as as well so i know we all deal with it and uh yeah it's uh it's not, that's why I say for people out there who are watching, if you're listening right now, by the way, on YouTube, please hit the like button, hit the share button, leave a comment below because you won't find it in the algorithm. And I do ask that you join up at Mug Club. I do ask that you go head or if you want to. This just is do the an information thing. war. It, it absolutely People should is. be flooding you with funding. You're one of the only professional people doing top flight comedy and analysis. I mean, it, I mean, it's better than the production on like these late shows that have giant budgets, 20 times your budget. People should flood you with support and more importantly, word of mouth, because I know that's the real currency we all want is to override the censors and to win the info war. So absolutely, everybody should support Steven Crowder, who's got the 500 pound testicles. <laughs> well, Joe's only got, Joe's only got, Joe's only got 400 pound ones. Well, okay? well, I, this- look, I admire, I admire Joe's balls. Okay. Well, but Steven, yours are bigger, bigger, and even more juicy. Well, gosh, you did say you've been drinking too much, and part of that has to do with the fact that I have the under uh, under the cabinet microwave. I've learned my lesson. All right, hey, Alex, no, no, no. I made a gay, I made a gay joke, so it goes viral, Steven. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, and you said you have to recharge your batteries. Alex Jones is a robotic homosexual. Uh, all right, look, Alex uh, Jones talks about Steven Crowder's juicy balls. <laughs> Oh gosh, yeah. When do I get my nine hundred million? Um, all right, look. Uh, if you have to take a, you want to both take a. We're gonna go to Mug Club here. You want to both take it? You probably need a. Do you need a bathroom break? I've been going for two hours. Well, well, well here, here's the thing. A oh, 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 great one. Tuning into Infowars today, hoping that you're gonna be celebrating and basking in our depression, our oppression, and the attacks against us. No. We've never felt better, actually. You, you've given us the biggest victory of all time. You've confirmed that everything we've been fighting for is, is, is real, or you've confirmed everything we're fighting against is real. You've only, you've only solidified our dedication to the truth. And uh, if you think you have defeated InfoWars, you have only defeated yourselves. Now, Norm Pattis, representing Alex Jones in this case, he was in the courtroom there. 
Uh, he has joined us on the phone now, so we're going to get his first response to this. Uh, $1 billion, Norm. It's time to start cutting the checks. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, <clears throat> either that or printing more Monopoly money. It was pretty astounding. And what's more, that's just the beginning. There will be an attorney's fee application, which could increase this by about 40% to the $1.4 billion. And then Judge Bellis will also have the ability to uh, make a separate finding on punitive damages. So by the time this is done, it could easily be two, two and a half billion dollars. Now, has there ever been, in your knowledge, a case like this with a judgment like this? Or is this number one all time? <laughs> Certainly number one in Connecticut. You know, I mean, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that we'll know tomorrow morning all the, the wits out there will have checked. But it, it's, a, it's a huge verdict and it sends a chilling message. Um, I think the message that it sends is, you know, if you are outside the mainstream media, um, if you're challenging the orthodoxy and the orthodoxy determines what you said isn't true, there's now a body of law. If this stands on appeal, by the way, and we will, I hope Alex takes the appeal, um, you know, that, that would say that you're responsible for what anybody says if, if you've uttered an untruth. Um, and so this creates a powerful club. This will make deplatforming look like child play if this verdict is permitted to stand. And I think the objective is clear. Um, there's a war on against this. There's a battle for the truth. That was the subtitle of Elizabeth Williamson's book about Sandy Hook. Um, and, 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 and so this is the opening salvo um, in the same way that InfoWars and Alex was the first to be deplatformed. Um, he's now been the first to experience this form of lawfare. And now is the time for patriots to, to put on their shoes and walk and pick up your bed and walk and take this court, uh, take this fight to the courthouse. You know, I'm aware of all I know how to do all of that, but it's an unheralded use of the Unfair Trade Practices Act to silence speech. Um, the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act. Um, it was a thin, um, thin rationale for the default that permitted al that, re that that permitted the, the plaintiffs to to avoid having to prove liability. The court issued rulings that held Alex responsible for things that he didn't even know about or people he never met. Um, the plaintiffs were able to present half-truths as whole truths, and they were able to gin this jury up such that the duck number in this case became a lottery number, and these people became the lotto masters. And payday was struck in a Connecticut courtroom today. A very, very, very depressing day for freedom of speech. Well, and, you know, that's where my mind goes. It's like, look, I got into media. I do what I do because I saw a country that I believe was corrupt. I saw a lot of problems, and... I think that just this just confirms it. I mean, most people would say that America is corrupt. Most people would say that this country has a corruption problem politically. And so then you would make uh, the statement. You'd say, well, how do you know who's fighting the corruption? Well, who gets attacked by the establishment the most? Who gets attacked by the deep state the most? Who, who do they go after the most? And once again, the name is Alex Jones. The, the institution, the news organization is InfoWars. Now, I, I don't know if you can get into the future as far as... Uh, you know, appealing this or whatever, because I know the audience is going to want to know, uh, you know, what what the future might hold as far as appeals are concerned. But, I, you know, I, I'd get your response to it like this. Let's try to put it into a real world situation for the future. Let's say that um, back in December of 2020, you go on air and you question the efficacy of the covid vaccine. 
Well, oh, now you're getting sued by the companies that made the COVID vaccine. But here we are a year later, and now they're admitting the COVID vaccines are not safe or effective. Folks, that's what they're trying to silence is somebody saying what they believe to be true, which might ultimately be the truth. They don't want it out there, Norm. Well, that, you know, that I think there is that danger. There was um, um, some saber rattling by the secretary of state of the state of Texas this week, suggesting that Alex is responsible and you guys are responsible uh, for harassment that, that electoral officials faced in the wake of the 2020 election. Um, and so there seems to be a growing intolerance for dissent in this in this country. And this case can be used in that way. Now, I mean, you know, they, there is some you know, there is a difference, I think, in this case, you know, Sandy Hook. You know, at one point, at one point during closing arguments, one of the lawyers for the plaintiff said, you know, there were two moments in our divided time that brought us together, 9-11 and Sandy Hook. And I, I say, yeah, 9-11, certainly. Uh, but we sort of sanctified uh, the, the surviving members of the Sandy Hook shootings and given them a larger role in American life than most crime victims families um, families enjoy. And I don't know why we're celebrating victimhood so much these days, but we are. Now, Alex made some statements about Sandy Hook that were untrue, um, and he could have better defended himself. I could have better defended him, apparently. Um, but this body of law, this body of law now exists, and it will be a weapon used against others. What about the precedent set that you can't even defend yourself? I mean, do you think we ever see anything like that again? Well, there are default judgments. They're rarely entered in Connecticut. I would not have entered the default judgment against Alex if I were the judge. I would have permitted the jury to draw an adverse inference against them, especially in a speech case. And, you know, and speech, you know, speech is an important part of, of, of the American character. Now, having said that, defamation is not protected speech and it's not protected by the First Amendment. But to deprive a person of the ability to defend himself um, because the claim is he didn't comply with discovery. Um, you know, we, we turned over tens of thousands of emails. There were more than 50 depositions taken by the plaintiffs in this case. Well, you were among those deposed. Um, you know, the hundreds of thousands of documents changed hands in this case. Um, if, if the plaintiffs didn't get everything they want, they had enough to try their case. And when they didn't get perfection, um, they, deterred, they, they got the judge to say because it wasn't perfect compliance, we should get to tell the jury any story we want to about Alex and deprive him of the chance to defend himself against it. That's just not the American way. That's a show trial. Um, I think that's what they used to do to dis dissidents in, in, in Stalin's Russia. Um, now, I, you know, yeah, the Sandy Hook parents were lovely people. They made good witnesses. Um, there were things to argue about in this case, but the court didn't want to hear argument about it. Um, I had to move mountains to, 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 to win the right to make the limited little arguments I was permitted to make in that courtroom. But the bottom line is, if I'd stayed home, Alex wouldn't have been much worse off. The court just didn't want to hear from me and didn't want to let the jury hear from me. Well, and since you brought it up, I'll just give a little more detail, folks. In this case, in the Connecticut case that just concluded today, I was deposed for 10 hours for less than 10 minutes of content. In fact, I think, I think it was about six minutes of content in which I never even questioned anything I just had mentioned the story and covered public comments that were made, public comments made on television, public comments published in the Washington Post, uh, less than 10 minutes of content. I think it was about six or seven minutes of content. And I was deposed for more than 10 hours, more than 10 hours. Norm, I got 60 seconds left in this segment. I don't know if you're going to join us again on the other side. Just I know it's hard to kind of release after this, 
but I mean, what, what is the release for you or are you still in litigation mode? Um, no, I mean, I've got an argument on vaccine exemptions in the, 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 the federal appellate courts in New York City tomorrow. So, I'm, you know, I've got to try to absorb this blow and get ready to go up and defend the right to say no to government when they want to force you to put stuff in your children's bodies. You know, I'm all about the fight, Owen. I'm all about liberty. I'm all about liberty, limited government. I'm all about the individual's right to chart his own course. And it's, today's a dark day for me. Today, today we got slammed. And, you know, there's another slamming to come tomorrow. But I couldn't be prouder than to stand with you. As I said to the jurors, the, the day of closing arguments, there's no place I'd rather be right now, right here, than standing next to Alex Jones and standing next to InfoWars in this fight for our future. Because if we don't fight for it, it's going to be taken from us. And we're going to live in a dystopian nightmare. And InfoWars has been calling that for years. And, you know... Because there's a lot of people tuned in right now that are, are tuning in just hoping that we wouldn't be on air. And they're shocked. What? InfoWars is still on? I thought we've destroyed them now. The big tech censorship didn't get us. They thought these judgments would get us. We're still here. So there's all these people tuning in like, what? How is InfoWars still alive? This is it. You guys really don't understand how the world works at all, clearly. So it's interesting in hindsight now that we kind of have the gist of they filed the lawsuit. They found in his favor. They then adjudicated openly with a trial and jury for damages. And they just assumed he's liable and they don't let him defend himself because he's so guilty. He doesn't need to have the opportunity to defend himself because he's made some mouth sounds that people didn't like over there. And I don't agree with what he did. I don't defend what he did, but I don't like this adjudication in this case and the politicization the executive and judicial and legislative are supposed to be separate branches. And they, they seem to be getting all mixed up there. But, uh, and you got a federal have, agency in the middle of the whole thing too, getting a hundred million. We don't have to agree Just with what Alex Jones for. says, but at the same yeah. time, and that's why free speech exists because then we can argue against that position. And as he said, he just covered it. It was sort of an impassing thing. Uh, he was something he took up earlier on around the time of the incident and the aftermath therefrom. But, you know, moving forward, especially later on with the Megyn Kelly situation, this was a hit job, 100%. And people could have challenged him as Jason Burmis did. And Jason Burmis, you know, I still, I think, host every once in a while, the fourth hour or whatever. So, like, they have, they've repaired that relationship. And it's Jason Burmis does a great job on it. But even, you know, when we had Jason Burmis on, he's like, this is not deep research. This was not deep research in regards to did um, uh, Sandy Hook, the school, exist? Did uh, Newton, Connecticut exist? The things in Fetzer's book, Correct. particularly, and the claims made by the the senior known as, known as Halbig, Senior Halbig. He was the yes, that's that's correct. So it's you know I, I just think it's important to go back to the fact that uh, it, it didn't it a lot was said. And we could have challenged people could have challenged him, and that's why free speech exists because people could have challenged him or other individuals that were, uh, you know, uh, building up this this theory that, and I won't even go into what the theory is about what happened at Sandy Hook, and that's why for, that's so important as to why free speech exists because you, you enjoying can challenge that chilling that, effect, you America. Take away, I know, right? That, there you go, right? Yeah, I just saw, I centered myself. I'm not even like fully conscious because I'm trying to make a point. Yeah, that's a 
that stops me right that there. might be a, a prudent sense but, but, but to your point it's like when we when we also did want to mention the um the attorneys the that were or the law firm rather it's you know there's a lot this is very hot and it's we have to be careful how we talk about it what we say everyone does I think it's a good example of what happens in these situations. That's exactly right. Because we need to talk about them, but now we're going to change our language and talk about them a little bit differently. So it's not so easy for the AI to be like, oh, these guys said X, Y, and Z. Because in a transcript, it's a whole different thing than the emotion and inflection of human communication between uh, you know human beings. Presented so, out of context, called quoting out of context. And also part of that context is the emotions, the inflection, right? The timber all the different sort of body language and uh, the phonetic sounds like this, the mouth utterances, like all these things play into how we communicate with one another, whether we're being sarcastic or cynical, whether we're being serious and literal, whether we're being metaphorical or analogical, you know, it's hard for the algorithm to make that determination. And when it's presented in a court of law, it's presented in the, we call this fallacy, quoting out of context or excerpt lifting. But part of that is also the nuance of human communication, which is all this body language that I just mentioned. And, and all the nuances that come with language itself in regards to timber and inflection that you just mentioned as well. So in that situation, it's still unfolding. They could tack another billion, billion and a half onto his, uh, his debt. And uh, I would say to them, good luck in getting it out of the guy. Your goal is to destroy him. You clearly haven't done that. He's a juggernaut. You haven't even slowed him down since you sued him. He's only grown his business. And now that you're putting him under attack, you're giving him an example to show the world how anti-fucking fragile he is. And those guys that with the spray on hair and stuff, they're, you know, lacking. So good luck counting that money you can tell all day that you did oh we're the you know we got this big payday but i feel sad for those families double plus sad at this point because again they were lied to by authorities whom they trusted and alex jones didn't have anything to do with that so while i don't defend the individual and i don't like what alex had to say in that particular situation i fully support people's right to say things that other people disagree with and so especially that they don't want to hear because denial of the ability to speak is denial of your own ownership over your body. It's slavery. Ownership of your body and ownership of your mind. Ownership of your mind as well, because it's language that we're dealing with. And that's, that's part of the mental realm. And Norm did everything, but call it a star, a star chamber in his description. Like if you just, you know, read up on star chamber and then look at what Norm's saying about that case and see, is there any validity to what Norm's saying? It's perfect. Analogy. Or is he hyperbolizing or is that pretty actually understated of what's going on? Understated, if anything. And it's not, again, it's not about the guy, Jones. It's about how that precedent could apply to you, your family, your children, your grandchildren, anybody else you know, love, work, associate with. And this started, it's interesting. This all started around 2015, 16, 17, when. You know, the first motions, the intimations in regards to these trials percolating in the background what started were with actually Hillary happening. Campaign against Trump. Right. Right. And when, this is when, the same uh, time when Peterson came out in Canada about Bill C-16 yeah. and the hate, the, the application of the hate speech laws. Right. And so like the, and in regards to um, uh, free speech or speech in Canada. And so like all of this was coming to a head in regards to the cultural movement. Now we're seeing sort of the the most egregious manifestations of it that I mentioned earlier actually happening right before us. And this was the warning that so many people have been trying to come out and, 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 you know, now I have this other layer to add to that. Now, 
you heard a lot of talk in the Alex Jones trial about the Google Analytics, Google Analytics. The other side wanted to know all about that. That's because the other side, they're all up into Google, Google Analytics. And let's rewind it back to 2016. Trump becomes president, uh, or actually he gets elected, and Google has a crybaby meeting that following Friday, and everyone's like, we'll never let this happen again. And with that goal, Google, with its infinite resources, probably said the next week, hey, let's figure out how Trump got all these votes. And they see Alex Jones's numbers going like this. And they're like, here we go. And then they mentioned that in a meeting. They're like, hey, Hillary, do you know this guy? Oh, that guy. Yeah, he says, you know, I smell like sulfur. And hey, would you like to get him back? Heck yeah. Why don't you mention his name a couple of times on the campaign trail? Well, what did that do? Well, a couple of years later, if she didn't exist, if Megyn Kelly didn't exist, the CIA would have to create her, will come along and she will take that thing you said and like make a, you know, like zoom in on a grain of salt and show you the Himalayan mountains. And Hillary's like, I've seen that before. I know that can be done. Many such instances in her history, especially you're going to hear it with Whitney Webb coming up, Vince Foster. But um, yeah, so from there, uh, they had public awareness of the case. They had family support of the lawsuit. The families didn't get full disclosure, informed consent about the amount, gravamen, or quality of the evidence, the weight, the quality of the amount of it that Jones was actually providing. And uh, you have what we just observed, a miscarriage of justice, a misappropriate, like that little thing that just went on in that trial makes the entire justice system, all the good judges, all the good jurors, all the good administrators look really not so great right now. And the American people think that thing they just saw represents that whole system. I would think, think about good the judges, involved, good lawyers. Like- and good other people in that system would want to come out and defend it and maybe call out and say, you know what? That wasn't exactly fair. If he's so guilty, can't we have a trial by jury before what? you find him guilty and penalize him? And by this, by their own logic, shouldn't YouTube and the executives behind YouTube be held guilty? Because like a lot of that stuff was said on that. They destroyed the evidence. Well, oh, they destroyed. They admitted it. They wow. got together. They conspired and they destroyed Alex Jones's evidence on this mm-hmm. case. And I, I think they should be held to account and and That's use the same point. ratio. Right. Use the same ratio for Google and YouTube. Whatever percentage, a billion to Alex Jones's two million exactly. is what to Google. Let's just do some simple math. I think we could figure that out. We could put are the decimal these, places in there too. Are these the same companies that supposedly did this? The secret history of the shadow campaign that saved the 2020 election. Well, Tony, it's a finite planet. I'm not sure uh-huh. what shape it is, but I'm pretty sure it's a finite planet. And there's only so many people interested in that particular outcome. And they might have even worked together and admitted it in Time Magazine for all with eyes to see and ears to hear. How convenient. But it's coincidental and it doesn't Let's mean Let's you know, look, in fact, they did. There was a conspiracy unfolding behind the scenes. One they use the word cabal. We might have to look that. I'm going to get a dictionary, Tommy. Revelation of the craft at this point. They're not even, they don't even want to hide it. There was a conspiracy unfolding behind the scenes, one that both curtailed the protest and coordinated the resistance from CEOs. Both surprises were the result of an informal alliance between left wing activists and business titans. The pact was formalized in a terse, little noticed joint statement of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and AFL-CIO published on election day. Both sides would come to see it as a sort of implicit bargain. An implicit bargain. The unions are all run by capitalists, Tony, so there's nothing to your point Uh, about who's doing this. That's convenient. Or wait, wait, wait. That's private interest. Unions are not run by capitalists. They're run by socialists and communists in many cases. Not the people themselves, but the people who run them. That act as though, but act as private interests. Hmm. 
these, these massive like corporations. It's like a public that, partnership where a few people uh, claim rights over the decisions of others, but they don't really check in with them, which is you know part of the popularity of it. I have the word cabal here, Tony. And you know what? Yeah, let's it's look an at interesting the definition here. It's an interesting little definition. I'm going here to the Oxford English uh, Dictionary because uh, it's the lingua franca of the empire. Mm-hmm. Cabal, a small group of people who plot secretly to gain political power. Now, were they in power when they did it, Tony? Yes, they were. In fact, they admit that here. Uh, both sides. No, would, but but sorry. like Trump was president. So they actually, they did it to gain political oh, I'm power. Sorry. Put, I'm sorry. I'm uh, sorry. Former confused. vice they're, president they're in, power in the, the White situation. House. That's right. I'm sorry. I got that confused. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Cabal. <clears> and then right below it, there's Kabbalah. Uh, not related. So cabal ends with gaining political power. Oh, origin, Latin word Kabbalah. I guess they are related. So that's a specific reference. They could have used a lot of words to describe a group, a coterie, oh, right? Kabbalah, There's all the sorts of, yeah, but the use of that word cabal in that article, I would have to assume is intentional unless they, you know, sl- sleep wrote it. Well, yeah, the right? idea is that they used it to gain political power and they were very close at that point, even before the election to gaining that, now, wait, they, I'm going to look up another definition because there's a definition in here. I, I think it was called terrorism, where you use uh, lies and terror to gain political power. It doesn't sound that far off from a cabal conspiring to determine the outcome of an election, not dependent on the votes, but dependent on their predetermined choice for everyone else. Right. Let me see if there's a cross reference here. T S T. Oh, we're getting there. Let me put it back over here so it gets more interesting yeah. for you. Oh, there it goes. Yeah, we got it. Now, I know I have it marked in a different dictionary over here, but I can find it here because I know how to spell. Almost there. Tetanus, ternary, terrorist, terrorism. Here it is. There we go. It's right under terror. So let's start with terror so we understand what we're talking about. Let's see. Let me pull this over a little bit. Terror. Noun. Extreme fear. Two. Cause of terror. Three. The use of threat or violence to cause extreme fear. That's interesting. Peaceful but fiery protests. Summer of love. Uh, a person who is annoying or difficult to control. It, it originates from Latin, from terrere to frighten. Mm. And then terrorism. The unofficial or unauthorized use of violence and intimidation in the attempt to achieve political aims. That's interesting. That's very specific, just like the word cabal, right? And if people said, I've been waiting for this because political on film and had a camera crew on the big pivotal day, that's the new 9-11, it would be like, I don't know, somebody being at Pearl Harbor with the camera crew who actually knew that Pearl Harbor was going to be attacked that day. Or like like some filmmakers being there for 9-11 to catch the first explosion at the towers. It's interesting. This, I mean, I'm sure that doesn't have anything to do. coincidences, right? It Nothing is. This whole book is a list of coincidences. You should read it. <laughs> what interesting Words specific. without causality or meaning. They're popular in this this book. That's an interesting definition about terrorism. You for should poli- read the legal dictionary, Tony. Gain. It's fascinating. The words because all have double the, meanings. Yeah. Well, that's... Well, that's what lawyers do, right? They it's not just the Led Zeppelin words pedantically lyric. in order to make everyone confused and to read their way to heaven. Come on, you young folks, listen to the, the lyrics. All right. So uh, do we have any other clips Great on solo, that topic? Because I would like to uh, be able to bring our guest. On. No, we're good. And we're good. We can go right to the guest at this point.
All right. So uh, we're going to need to get a moment. We uh, are getting our guest, and Whitney Webb is going to discuss. Let's see. Volume two. I'm done with this tie. It's been, you know, I've, I've had a tie on since uh, for 12 and a half hours. So I'm all set with that. We're going to this book right here. Let's get real pretty here. Clean up the desk for our guests. Get this all set. One Nation Under Blackmail. This is volume two. Last week, we talked to Whitney Webb for two solid hours about volume one. And we got through that. And this is the backstory. This is how organized crime came in bed, got in bed with intelligence. And then Epstein's like, hey, you guys are in bed. Let me film it. And then he set up the, you know, that's a little bit. Anyway, you got to read the book. It's a thousand pages. I can't summarize it in 10 seconds like that. We're going into volume two. In this volume, you get to see how that criminal intelligence network that spans World War II, Operation Underworld, BCCI, Iran-Contra, all comes together with Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein, Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton, Lynn Forrester to Rothschild, all the great winners of the globalist world order are in here. All the anti-American people who have been bringing you all the great news we've talked about for the past three hours, they're in here too. So let's go ahead. Give me a minute to set this up and we'll go to Whitney Webb. Welcome back to Grand Theft World. Tonight's guest is the same guest as last week, but we're going to talk about a totally different thing. Well, at least by different thing, I mean, we're going to go to volume two. We're going to go to volume two tonight. And um, with me is Whitney, Whitney Webb. How you doing, Whitney? And, hey, I'm doing uh, well. I am so excited to talk about volume two because volume one that we talked last week and last week's episode for two hours just really spells out the background of the interrelationships between organized crime and the intelligence agencies and maybe these robber baron kind of rich families that have nonprofit foundations and use them as cover to avoid taxes and engage in illicit trade around the world. And there's a whole lot of interesting history. I mean, you brought up Iran-Contra and BCCI and you're tying together Operation Underworld and the Lansky organization all the way up through Adnan Khashoggi. So there was a lot that we covered last week. It is uh, kind of the preface for what we're going to discuss today because your book series is really about Epstein and those connections and how he rose to power and who his handlers were and who mm -hmm. made him kind of untouchable. And everything we talked about last week is the contextual history to really flesh it out and make him into a real person and to understand more importantly, the personages around him that gave him yeah. his comeuppance during Iran-Contra and these sort of things back then. So uh, with volume two, what's the most prolific takeaway that you're hoping people, after we get into it and get through it, let's just cut to the chase. What are you hoping people actually realize from this that they haven't gotten from mainstream media? Yeah, so basically the mainstream media about um, narrative about Epstein is that he uh, you can only talk about his sex crimes from 2000 to 2006, roughly. Um, and that's pretty much it. They don't talk about his career before 2000. They want you to believe that he didn't team up with Bill Clinton until Bill Clinton left the presidency. They don't want you to think he teamed up with people like Bill Gates until Bill Gates was no longer really running Microsoft in 2011. And, and both of that is just complete, you know, 
it's made up. It's, it's a total joke, um, as I you know point out pretty exhaustively in the book in those two cases, but in other cases as well. You know, they're trying to treat him, uh, you know, as as basically a sex criminal who's the only naughty billionaire in the world and everything's fine because he went to prison and now he's dead. And then, oh, well, you know, they, the victims didn't have justice, but now they have Ghislaine Maxwell in country club prison and everything's fine. Go back to sleep. I mean, that's basically the mainstream media narrative, right? But, you know, in reality, uh, what you have is that Epstein was allowed to operate for decades and decades uh, and commit criminal acts, both in terms of sex crimes, but also in financial crimes. And the people that enabled those activities predate Epstein significantly, which is the subject of volume one. But they also continue to exist now that he is gone. Right. So that's basically um, volume two is meant to um I guess, disabuse people of those illusions that we have about the Epstein case, courtesy of mainstream media. So I do devote maybe, I I guess, um, one chapter to the sex trafficking stuff, which is, I I believe it's chapter 18. And even in there, you know, um, I talk about aspects of that that don't even get mainstream media coverage. There's like, in my opinion, two parallel sex trafficking operations Epstein was involved in. And one of those parallel operations doesn't get any coverage in mainstream media at all either. Um, And that would be um, what I sort of refer to as this effort to cultivate and develop uh, wives and girlfriends of the uh, elite that are sort of an Epstein circle uh, as this parallel operation to this group of, uh, of girls and and, uh, minors and teens who were abused and exploited the, the victims everyone knows about more or less. Right. But there's even subtext to that. that don't even get talked about in mainstream media. Like why were they specifically looking at, um, art students, music students, girls that were talented to exploit and abuse. Most of the focus has been on just this Palm beach, um, aspect, uh, to that operation, which was, you know, basically using, uh, targeting economically disadvantaged girls in that particular area. But it's, it's much more extensive than that. And a lot of places that were connected, uh, to the, uh, to this network through their patronage of the art world through Sotheby's or different museums or art academies and things like that sort of get written out of the equation. Uh, so there's just re- basically volume two is my effort to, um, you know, basically flesh out everything we know about Epstein and the people close to him that haven't been touched by mainstream media. Um, so, you know, Jeffrey Epstein's obviously the focus, but I spend a lot of time talking about Leslie Wexner and his network, which is obviously very important and has been pretty much totally ignored by mainstream media. They'll mention the closeness of Leslie Wexner and Jeffrey Epstein, but they won't get into who Leslie Wexner uh, really is. And you could essentially argue the same for Ghislaine Maxwell to an extent as well. They don't really talk about her father at all. They definitely don't talk about her siblings and they really should. So, you know, all of that, I tried to, um, you know, cover as much as I really could in in volume two without, uh, again, writing, you know, four volumes (laughs) or something like that. Because obviously there's a lot that you have to leave out in writing um, a book like this, because I sort of see Epstein as um. I guess you could see maybe a meta scandal Uh, you pull on different threads in his careers and it's going to lead you to all sorts of different, uh, you know, scandalous criminal behavior, some of which we know about and some of which we don't. Right. So hopefully that was a good enough. Isabel Maxwell, Ghislaine's sister is uh, working for the world economic forum and she's part of the whole great reset agenda. So there's a lot of like uh, parallel continuity of that family's activities, not just Ghislaine, 
but also like her sisters and brothers are out there doing interesting things after their after their dad's uh, alleged suicide off of the the yacht, the Lady Ghislaine. And even though he was a spy for multiple governments and had multiple people that probably wanted to kill him, it's a, it's yeah. a suicide, right? And that's interesting. Right. Also, um, when you talk about what's allowed to be in the narrative about Epstein, it's basically limited to 21st century activities. And one of those uh, yeah. whistleblowers or victims, Virginia Gouffre Roberts, she met at the Mar-a-Lago, right? Didn't she meet Epstein at Mar-a-Lago? So she they was like recruited to use that one from there. I don't think right. she met Epstein there, but she met Ghislaine Maxwell there and then was brought into the the fold from there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So people like to talk about that one because they're like Trump's involved. But I don't know that that's necessarily I mean, he yeah. knows Epstein. He's done business with Epstein. They party yes. together. But Trump mm-hmm. also doesn't drink. There's also other predilections he might not share with Epstein. And just because they're in a picture doesn't necessarily make them uh, yeah. you know, birds of a feather. But they might be. We don't know. Bill Gates is another person who's rode on the plane many, many, many times. And uh, all up in, um, you know, uh, Epstein's eugenics and Zorro Ranch and trying to impregnate, you know, a million women with his seed and all these sort of things. Right. So there's that aspect that's also interesting to it. Yeah. So I would say in, ter- in terms of the Trump relationship, um, you know, obviously a lot of focus on, you know, Epstein and Trump, Epstein and Clinton. I would say that the Epstein Clinton relationship is far more damaging than the Epstein Trump relationship. Um, and the Epstein Trump relationship seems to be based around Epstein's involvement um, from the 1980s on in New York real estate, which obviously is um Donald Trump's stomping ground. Uh, But Donald Trump also seems to have sort of benefited from that parallel operation I mentioned earlier about um, sort of elite girlfriends and wives that Epstein was involved in and procuring for some people in his social circles. Uh, I believe, um, well, Epstein's current wife, Melania Trump, allegedly introduced to Donald Trump by uh, Epstein and Maxwell and the girlfriend uh, that he had before uh, her, uh, Selena Middlefart, who's Nor- a Norwegian heiress, uh, was also one of these women that was like cultivated by Epstein in this way. Attend- uh, and a lot of these women in that particular parallel operation actually accompanied uh, Epstein on his seven, you know, several of his 17 White House visits during the Clinton White House uh, time. But then she starts, you know, basically after that gets connected with with Donald Trump. And it's just, um, you know, she's it, Trump isn't the only one to have benefited, obviously, from that particular what I see as a parallel operation. But he's definitely like in this um social circle throughout the 1980s and the 1990s. But there is truth to um, uh, Trump's claim that he parted ways with Epstein uh, in the early 2000s. And it it was about a real estate deal that went awry. Um, But, you know, the exact nature of what they really wanted that particular Palm Beach property for, why they were fighting over it. A lot of those specifics aren't really known and Trump won't talk about it. Um, But I think in terms of what's more damaging for Trump would be his relationship really with the Maxwells, because when you hear about, for example, mainstream liberal media likes to talk about Donald Trump and Russia and the Russian mob. But if you look at the Russian mobsters, they tie, they try and connect him to or his business empire to it's it's ultimately goes back to people like Simeon Mogilevich, who's actually a business partner of Robert Maxwell's. And then you look at the period of time in the lead up to Robert Maxwell's foray into New York City and Donald Trump is on the Lady Ghislaine uh, partying with Robert Maxwell and, you know, 
people um, that have, that were in Epstein's world, for example, like Stephen Hoffenberg, have alleged that Trump was much closer to the Maxwell side of things than the Epstein side of things. And that seems to check out. I mean, if you consider over the past couple of years, uh, Epstein's arrest and before his quote unquote suicide, uh, you have Donald Trump uh, publicly really trying to distance himself from Epstein, saying he wasn't a fan of the guy and all of this stuff. Um, but then Ghislaine Maxwell gets arrested, you know, roughly a year later. And he says, I wish her well. You know, those are pretty much polar opposite reactions. Right. And, uh, well, you know, Q&A, I thought they'd react more to that, but they, you know, yeah, sure I, always took, some took that, I wish her well, like you've you've made your bed and you're going to lay in it now type of time. I mean, that's a poorly chosen pun for this situation. It wasn't intentional, but I I think he was saying, like, you're, you'll get no help from this side. is kind of what I saw. But um, in many oh, ways, maybe, I saw Donald. It. Oh, sorry. <laughs> The orange man says a lot of things that can be interpreted, but I think one of the other things that I wanted to bring up there is uh, in Epstein's apartment. One of the first things I saw after he got busted was his picture of Clinton. And that to me says that guy's got, and this is an advertisement that you're got. And anytime I need to remind you that you're got, you know, here's the painting on the wall. He didn't have one of those, a Trump. It reminds me of Sir Evelyn de Rothschild poking Prince Charles in the chest. It's like one of those things, like just in case you forget how things work here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's possible for sure. Well, definitely. If you're looking at the Clinton relationship with Epstein, like I said earlier, it's much more damaging for Clinton uh, than it is for Trump. And I think, you know, sort of what we talked about last week, Donald Trump's mentor was Roy Cohn, who was yeah. very adept in uh, the land of um, sex blackmail, among other things. So, you know, I'm sure Donald Trump was educated about how to avoid you know, those types of situations and who, you know, in that particular uh, network would have been involved in those types of activities and how to not get ensnared by it and operate, you know, um, in, in these types of milieus in, in New York City. Right. So, you know, I think that might be part of the equation as well. And then uh, the relationship between uh, Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, Sir Evelyn de Rothschild and the Clintons is very tight. They honeymoon in the White House. Mm-hmm. Yes. And when you were bringing the them up, mm-hmm. I made the note on the page. And then again, you covered it like two paragraphs later. So we're on the same page with all that. And they're very also, also very close to Epstein. So there is yeah. this little love triangle that they got going on, which is very interesting. But let me break open the book here. Let's uh, let's go to just the beginning because you had me. If the publisher's forward, Chris got me right here with this quote. Uh, and you can see it on screen. All right. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, for although the act condemned the doer, the end may justify him. So it's Niccolo Machiavelli from his discourse is saying the end justifies the means. I was like, okay, that's an interesting quote. And let me punch in. Let me see if I can get it on here. Um, the illegal we do immediately. The unconstitutional takes a little longer. Laughter. But since freedom of but since the Freedom of Information Act, I'm afraid to say things like that. Henry Kissinger, <laughs> 1975. But this was my favorite. This is attributed to Karl Rove. Um, we're an empire now. And when we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality judiciously, as you will, we'll act again, creating other new realities, which you can study, too. And that's how things will sort out. We are history's actors and you all of you will be left to study what we do. And I remember buying that book so I could get that quote back in the day because uh, Karl Rove said a lot of great things uh, that should be studied, not for the reasons he said them, but for propaganda and, <laughs> and uh, how, they, how they work people over. All right, so let me put this over here so I can actually see what I'm doing on screen. All right, so we got your table of contents here. The rise of Jeffrey Epstein. 
That's interesting in and of itself because it ties into things you tied into uh, in the first yeah, volume. It's, it's basically Epstein's early career up until around the time he meets, um, I guess, Leslie Wexner, more or less. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then the property developer and then the world of Leslie, Leslie Wexner. So this is going to tie Wexner into organized crime and, uh, you know, uh, gangsters who might own malls and big uh, shopping centers and things like this and banks and banks <laughs> and offshore banks. Yeah. And then the dark side of Wexner's philanthropy starts to get into his, uh, his the Wexner, found, Wexner foundation, how mm-hmm. he's basically been doing what the world, the WEF is now infamous for with the young global leaders program. Uh, yeah. Wexner has been very busy in that regard for a long time with a major focus specifically on Israel's government and then later expanding uh, beyond that and creating an organization that collaborates very closely actually with the WEF and the Young Global Leaders Program. Yeah. So it's not like accidental or coincidental. It seems no. very purposefully planned over many decades. Mm-hmm. And then we get into Ghislaine, uh, the, the second generation. She inherits uh, this espionage empire kind of th- from her father, and knowing yeah. and being brought up and used in sexual gambits in the past. Yes. Uh, crooked campaigns. We'll get into uh, the next one is Epstein's enterprise. Now this is tying into the Iran Contra enterprise. Yeah. That's why volume one. Well, there's several reasons why volume one is really essential reading specifically for chapters 11, and, but also for 16 and 17. And a lot of that is because it ties back to either BCCI or Iran Contra stuff. And a lot of the people discussed in in the context of the Clinton's power nexus uh, when Clinton was governor, who, of course, you know, uh, play an outsized role in some scandals of his presidency. And then as we get to the the uh, the crescendo of the book, Predators, the Prince and the President, it starts to get a lot more interesting. You start to close all those like all those open loops that you laid out in the first two volumes all start to converge. And we're getting to like the the center Mm -hmm. of uh, their uh, web. That is a pun, intended pun. And then from Promise to Palantir, <laughs> this whole under theme, it's a sub theme of the whole book of them using software to infiltrate, to compromise, yeah. to blackmail, and that it's not just Inslaw's promise and uh, a couple other pieces in between. Uh, there's also Palantir, which is like the standard a couple years ago through the Snowden leaks of uh, our NSA and DOD. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's marshal the new all promise, the information. Yeah, it's, it's, it's how they yeah. uh, marshal all that information they collect to actually get actionable data. And as Michael mm-hmm. Hayden, formerly of the NSA and CIA, said, we use metadata to kill people. So just in case people were like, yeah. my metadata doesn't matter. It's like, no, they they use it to kill people. So and they're unabashedly- and for more. They use it for they're going to use it for pre-crime soon. <laughs> all right. So uh, you start volume two with the arrest. And this is something like this is a great touchstone for people, because a lot of people, even if they don't know the details of Epstein, they do know about his arrest. And there was something funny and it was in July that summer and there was a lot going on. They don't remember because it's like pre-COVID. Right. Uh, it's like that that world before COVID. But then you start to help refresh. Right. Uh, the power elite sexually abused and exploited female minors and young children in this kind of systematic manner. And he's like uh, the super pimp of it all. But he's not the orchestrator and he's not really the power player because Ghislaine is the power player with all the yeah. connections. He's middle and- management. And he and Wexner had Mm -hmm. uh, their connections and then they kind of blend in with the Maxwell second generation connections Mm -hmm. and make this Mm -hmm. new Roy Cohn thing. But they do it in a a house that Wexner gave to Epstein for a dollar or whatever. Instead of the plaza, instead of the plaza hotel to Blue Suite, they now have Epstein's, you know, mansion on wherever that Bill Gates and Prince Andrew stay. Yeah. And and well, and more than that, they have the apartments um, that Mark Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein's brother, uh, 
ostensibly owns. Anyway. Yeah. And didn't uh, Epstein and Bill Gates share like a Russian attorney or something like that, where there were some connections. I remember seeing the photos. You know who I'm talking yeah, about? That may have been so, but I don't believe I included that in in the book. Um, sorry. So it's not- for volume three. That's what I was going mm-hmm. to. <laughs> All right. So picking up here, though, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell is now serving a 20 year sentence. Others uh, known to have been intimately involved in this in his illegal activities continue to play, uh, enjoy protection from the so-called sweetheart deal or plea deal that followed Epstein's first run in with the law for his sex trafficking activities in the mid 2000s. Now, when that was going on, the FBI had a guy like a lawyer that was investigating Epstein. And then that lawyer flipped and then started representing Epstein's kind of lieutenant lieutenants. And then that was the same judge that they used recently in the Mar-a-Lago raid. Yes. And that, but a week before he had uh, recused himself of the situation because he had a conflict of interest with Trump, but then he's all involved in that warrant. So also the other subtext through here, going back to volume one, is the connections between this blackmail uh, operation, organized crime, and intelligence agencies, because the FBI continues to keep coming up in all these sort of things and not in the yeah. right way where they're busting people and holding people accountable. It's yeah. more like they're the cleanup and cover-up crew. They are. Well, cases. I think that's a theme in volume one, too, is that consistently they, they come in to cover up for this particular you know power network we're talking about. Um, just into the book on page two, we got this information on Donald Barr. Now, Donald Barr... Uh, was the son of an economist and psychologist who had joined the OSS during World War II. He's alleged to have been a member of an OSS target team in Germany and to have worked at a prisoner of war camp. His son, William Barr, would subsequently follow, let's see, can I get it on the screen? Can I do it right? Uh, follow his father into the world of intelligence and served in the CIA from 71 to 77, which overlaps the last few years of his father uh, being headmaster at the Dalton School, including the year Donald Barr is alleged to have hired Jeffrey Epstein. Well, I find that interesting because like this guy, William Barr, is a player today, all these decades later. And it's almost like uh, some sort of, you know, old boys network operating behind the scenes. Yeah, I would definitely say that. William Barr is like the CIA mop up man. Every time he's been attorney general, it's been to cover up major scandals. The first time under Bush senior, he covered up Iran-Contra, Promise, the Franklin scandal, uh, you know, huge amounts of, of scandal uh, during the Reagan and, and Bush years. And then he comes back as attorney general under Donald Trump. And, you know, he's there at the time, you know, Epstein is taken out. Which is interesting, I think, to say the very it, least. This is the magnet for the collectors of coincidences. They're all here. Whitney has them all in these two yeah. volumes. I love the uh, your coining of the Epstein bar connection. Because I think that was obvious when that was going on back then. And it is kind of like a virus. And I, I'm, yeah. glad that, <laughs> I'm glad that that, uh, that made it out to the public. And now it's going to be like a thing. People can just rep- you know, refer to it as the Epstein Barr connection instead of the Epstein Barr virus. It's similar, but different. Uh, Donald Barr would later become the headmaster of the Dalton School. So the Dalton School is an elite school in New York City where the... Mm-hmm. The CEOs of all these companies sends their send their sons send their and daughters kids. to become right yeah. to become leaders. And here's this predator working among them. And this is like a, a theme. I think there's still cases like this going on today. Uh, yeah. Re- well, as re- I as I note in the book, um, a lot of students at Dalton, when they were asked about Epstein's activities, they'll talk about weird things he was doing, like going to kids parties and all of this stuff, trying to drink with his students and all of this stuff. But a lot of the students also said, well, it wasn't that weird. Like a lot of teachers did it. 
or, you know, the, the New York Times will highlight, for example, other behaviors of Epstein that were apparently controversial at the school. But then it'll also be qualified by a student at the time saying like, yeah, he wasn't the only one that did that. It seems like Dalton, at least in this period, had, you know, Epstein fit right in instead of being an anomaly, even though they've sort of tried to cast him as an anomaly at that particular institution for obvious reasons. Right. And could he have been recruited when he was working at Dalton into the CIA? And that might have been. I think it may have been earlier. Well, you sort of skipped over this part, but I open up chapter 11 talking about how Epstein took a trip to Britain in the early 70s. And somehow he becomes involved with um, a violinist who uh, named Jacqueline uh, Dupree and claimed to have a relationship with her uh, of, of some type. And uh, she her patron was uh, Queen Elizabeth II. And he alleged uh, in The New York Times, actually, when I was writing this chapter, alleged that he had forged his first connection to the royal family back in the early 70s, around 1971 or so. And um you know, it's definitely uh, possible that it happened during that period because you see these these weird connections with British corporate raiders from a very early stage, uh, like James Goldsmith, who later ends up in the Robert Maxwell uh, orbit. And he's, you know, seen in the early 70s playing piano at Goldsmith's mansion in New York. And this is at a time when Goldsmith had... Um, because of financial problems in Britain had tried to uh, basically establish a new mini fiefdom in the United States and Epstein's there straight away. Uh, That shows connections from, you know, even before he was at the Dalton school. I think it's even possible as well that he may have had some sort of connection as early as age 14. Um, Because as I also, as I note in the beginning of the chapter, um, he attended this place called the Interlochen School for the Arts, mm-hmm. uh, which is in a sort of an elite music institution. And he later returns there to recruit girls for his operation. So some people have speculated that, you know, maybe he was recruited or abused there. And that's what led him to be interested in, in doing, you know, sort of returning to the scene of to that particular uh, venue to, to, you know, uh, attempt to recruit girls for his uh for his sex trafficking stuff um but he was a gifted high schooler right so he i think he graduated at age 16 from high school and then you have someone like donald barr who's ex-intelligence and goes and sets up these talent preservation programs targeting talented high schoolers in new york city uh which to me given the Barr family connections and and what that particular program was about could very possibly have been an effort to recruit talented intelligent high schoolers for intelligence And there's a lot of programs like that that we know about either in the U.S. or, you know, also in Israel, like the Talpiot program, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, that that seek out specifically, uh, you know, high schoolers that are talented in math and science. And that would have been Epstein in that particular era. And then to have someone like, you know, Donald Barr pop up later in his career and he has all these coincidences, you know, from a very early age, even though he doesn't finish college, but, you know, from college age on, he's, he's popping, he's hanging around with very influential, connected and powerful people. Um, So, and Bill Barr uh, getting his Juris Doctorate while he was in the CIA Right. Like, you know, they sponsored him to be created as a tool. And when he's attorney general or whatever, he's still acting as that tool that they created back then because his dad was a good serviceman for them back in the day. Right. Mm -hmm. Multi-generational. All right. So Mm -hmm. since you brought up uh, Jimmy Goldsmith uh, over here on page eight, let's see. Uh, So it's it's talking about the Claremont Club. 
which is uh, from volume one. Yeah, it's uh, basically this organized crime intelligence linked uh, gambling club in, I I believe, London's Mayfair district. And a lot of the people there Mayfair um, set. Yeah. Are the, yeah. Also known as the Mayfair set, a lot of them. Um, but also you have people tied to the Profumo affair, which we talked about last week. Um, and pretty much uh, a significant number of them end up, you know, orbiting Robert Maxwell Goldsmith being one um, and another one being tiny Roland, as he's mm-hmm. often called um, and some other, you know, prominent businessmen in that particular network. Yeah. So Adam Curtis relationship to Lionel Curtis question mark. I don't know. Uh, made the Mayfair set and a whole bunch of documentaries. That's why I first ho- yeah. heard Tiny Roland and James Goldsmith and started the catches. But what they don't, what they don't tell me in that excellent documentary that might be funded by MI6, is that uh, <laughs> the, the takeover was actually the brainchild of Rothbard, <laughs> and it's then President Robert Peary. Goldsmith was a longtime yeah. business associate of the Rothschilds and a distant cousin of the family. And then you get it. So you have this layer of organized crime, and then there's a financial layer right above it that continues to feed it. And it might even be that network might be carrying out the actions of the financiers who fund it. I don't know how these things work, but I'm willing to learn here. One of my conclusions sort of from in in writing about Robert Maxwell's um, entry into New York specifically, but a lot of his big business moves in the 1980s and then also Goldsmith, um, you know, they were orchestrated by Rothschild Inc. Um, And they're really open about that. I mean, that's from a Robert Robert Peary interviews with the New York Times <laughs> talking about uh, yeah. why Ro- uh, the Rothschild family decided to take back direct control of Rothschild Inc. in roughly 1980 or so, what their um, motivations for doing that were and how they chose to use British corporate raiders as their vehicles to gain prominence on Wall Street. And that they, they basically named Goldsmith and Maxwell as being their main vehicles uh, for that. And uh, yeah, that's pretty significant. A goldsmith was also an arms dealer, though, too, right? Um, Am I remembering correctly? Mm, I thought I thought he I'm was also dabbling sure. in some of the Iran Contra, but Tiny Roland definitely okay. was, but he's not okay. part of the Rothschild Inc. group, as far as I uh, know. Goldsmith may have been, but I'm um, hmm, sort of blanking on it, uh, to be honest. That's all right. Um, but I think the context in that um, we're looking at. Uh, here on this page talking about uh, Crown Zeller back. These are the people that are tied up with the scandal that leads to Epstein leaving uh, Bear Stearns. So again, you have, um, it's interesting that you have people that are involved with Goldsmith there. Cause as I mentioned earlier, Epstein's in, probably the biggest name he's involved with earliest on is, is Goldsmith. Right. From the so that was 70s. like his, his vetting into the circles. And then as he performed, mm-hmm. he can get closer and closer to the inner circles, which it seems like yeah. he did over a couple of decades. Good for him. He, he knows how to work a business plan. Uh, bad for him. He used uh, human trafficking and sexual predation to do such things. Right. It's crazy. Trying to make fun of this. Uh, notably, Khashoggi, he comes back into the picture just a couple pages later. And it gets into BCCI and the Kerry Commission. Now, John Kerry, in my mind, Skull and Bones, and Skull and Bones is funded by the opium monopoly. And there they are investigating the money laundering and the opium monopoly. I said, oh, what a clean yeah. job, right? So um, we don't have to go too deep into this section. I'll just read from the top here. Notably, notably Adnan Khashoggi's infamous yacht would be sold to Roy Cohn's protege, Donald Trump, in 1988 with the involvement of the Sultan of Brunei. Now, that's around the mm-hmm. same time the Sultan was involved in Iran-Contra, so I think that needs more investigation by the world. Uh, yeah. as, soon, as will be me- mentioned in the next chapter, the Sultan of Brunei 
would become Epstein's landlord in the office he shared with the Evangeline Guletta's, uh, Guletta's Carrie. And as we'll see in Chapter 19, the Sultan of Brunei makes other curious appearances in the Epstein-Clinton relationship. Now, Clinton wasn't even really involved in Iran-Contra, but the Sultan definitely was. And Epstein's involved through all of this. So I think that's a really interesting uh, little tidbit there. And we're only like 18 pages into the 500-page book. So, yeah, the Sultan of Brunei connections, I don't really know what to make of them, but it is interesting that he pops up repeatedly and that he himself has been accused of engaging in sex crimes similar to that of Epstein. And in one case was going to be you know, charged with it, but he was granted a diplomatic immunity because he's the head of a head of state of Brunei. So. And I think the other aspects you brought up on the next page that a lot of people think BCCI was just like drug money laundering and stuff, but there was also a lot of human trafficking. It was a private on. intelligence apparatus masquerading as a development bank. That's what mm. I would say about BCCI. Yeah, because I mean, they're involved in, um, you know, as I noted in volume one, too, they're not just doing all this shadow banking stuff. Um you know, and, and, you know, legal and illegal banking activities, right? They're also um, helping Pakistan develop their nuclear weapons program, right? Directly. Um, they have a philanthropic arm they use to move money to all sorts of things, involvement in arms trafficking. And, and here I waited until um, this particular part to get into the BCCI sex trafficking operation stuff, where we're talking directly about Epstein, because if you look at how BCCI sex trafficking activities, what is known about them is described in the BCCI uh, report, the Senate report um, about BCCI. It is just eerily similar to the operation that um, Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell would later engage in. So um, I don't think it's a coincidence that there's that uh, degree of overlap at all, because as I note in the book, the the evidence for Epstein being uh, linked to BCCI in the 1980s is pretty compelling. So he likely would have uh, <laughs> known about these aspects of, of how the bank uh, of how this particular uh, bank was operating. Yeah, you need somebody bent to do things like this, and there's not that many bent people like that on the planet. So they they collect together in little coteries or cabals and they do such things. I want to read a little bit of this into the, into the sure. record. The prostitution handled by B BCCI was, uh, was carried over uh, from practices originally instituted by the BCI, BCCI founder for years. Rahim would take 50 to 60 of these girls at a time from large department stores in Lahore and Karachi and get them outfitted for clothes. Given the size of Rahim's revenue and her uh, spending habits, $100,000 at a time was not unusual when she uh, she was engaged in outfitting her charges. Her activities became notorious in the Pakistani community generally, and there were substantial competition among clothiers and jewelers for her business. According to the U one U.S. investigator with substantial knowledge of BCCI's activities, some BCCI's, uh, B BCCI officials have acknowledged that some of the females provided some members of the Al Nayyan family, one of the ruling families of the United Arab Emirates, were young girls who had not yet reached puberty and in certain cases were physically injured by the experience. The official said the former BCCI officials had told him that BCCI also provided male, uh, males to homosexual VIPs. And that's the end of the quote. And it goes into your commentary. This BCCI run sex trafficking operation has some obvious similarities to the operation that would later be run by Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. 
with Maxwell's actions in that operation, paralleling the actions of Begum, Agser, Rahim to considerable degree, see chapter 18, that's the Predators chapter, returning mm-hmm. to the matter of Epstein's past claim uh, to not have been tied to the CIA during this period. There's also evidence that of Narinko specifically working with CIA assets to arm the CIA-backed Mujahideen in, Afghan, uh, in Afghanistan. So it's like Operation Cyclone connected. Like you could even connect that up to 9-11 and then you get into Reconosciuto and Promise. So there's all these connections that are in like a 30-year-old BCCI money laundering case that people still are not aware of what's yeah. like what, what that means today. It never well, ended. So, so really evolved. quick, I want to add that yeah. Narinco is a Chinese uh, state-owned uh, weapons enterprise. And their main market in the 1980s for the for the Chinese military industrial complex was the Iran-Iraq war. They were selling to both sides. Right. So obviously, um, you know, there was some overlap then with Iran-Contra networks. Right. Because obviously they were focused to a significant degree also in arming both sides of that same conflict. As far as we know about the Epstein, Adnan Khashoggi and also Douglas Lease relationship, um, Epstein was involved in selling Norinco weapons. Uh, to the Iraq side of that conflict in the 1980s and allegedly also involved uh, through lease and arming of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan uh, to an extent. And Douglas Elise is alleged to have a relationship with British intelligence. Um, but Epstein in this period was claiming to be affiliated with the CIA. Um, but he also, as I mentioned earlier, had connections to to Britain. So it's hard to know exactly um, if it was just the CIA um, or if it was Britain or exactly which intelligence, um, you know, network in this period he's he's most closely associated with. And it's also been alleged, you know, that shortly after this, he becomes, you know, closely associated with Israeli intelligence, if not around the same time, just very possible. But Narinko and, and what I write about them in this chapter and subsequent chapters is important because when in, in trying to untangle what Epstein was doing with Southern Air Transport and his Clinton White House visits, which is chapters of 16 and 17, Narinko comes back in a, in a big way. Yeah, because uh, Southern Air Transport is just one of many operations like Air America where they were using. Uh, well, it is Air America. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it was uh, the rebranded effort of Air America, yes. wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. So um, Epstein at this point, he's getting in bed with Wexner. Wexner's got this uh, funky philanthropy, and they get into real estate. And then eventually, Epstein gets his place where he can do blackmail from, and then that trickles up to him getting busted. Uh, how do you want to uh, unpack that situation? Because the part that I found interesting was um, the Israeli Prime Minister. And, and people sure. like that staying at these places. And that reminds me of Jared Kushner. And he had a couple of Israeli prime ministers stay at his place, too. And yeah, maybe, like Netanyahu. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's like yeah. a, a theme of this because they can't get hotels in New York. They have to stay at places like Epstein's mansion. Yeah, a bit odd, isn't up. it? So yeah. um, I guess I would say um, go back a little bit. The reason I wrote this property developer chapter goes back to when I was trying to dig up uh, old scrubbed media reports about Epstein a couple of years ago. And I noticed that in I only had an excerpt from the, a specific article I was trying to find. And it eventually led me to numerous other articles from the 1990s about um, Epstein that had been scrubbed from the Internet. But they referred to them in this one article that's very important. 
and published in 2000 uh, by the Evening Standard. Um, it talks about, or 2001, sorry. Um, it refers to Epstein as a property developer. So, and in, in stuff, you know, 2003 on, Epstein is often referred to as a billionaire or a financial advisor. He has, you know, different um, titles, right? But before the year 2000, it's almost exclusively Jeffrey Epstein, the property developer. And this is pretty significant when you start looking at his real estate connections. And obviously, you know, in this chapter, it ends up covering the the Epstein uh, Trump relationship because of the real estate overlap. Uh, but there's there's a lot to be said about um, Epstein's relationship in real estate. And I would argue that, you know, after he sort of moves out of this period in the 1980s, after he leaves Bear Stearns, he claims to be like a financial bounty hunter and all of this stuff when he's involved with uh, apparently BCCI and people like Edna and Khashoggi and Iran Contra and Douglas Lease and all of this. Um, he, he basically starts moving into the world of real estate. And this is at a time when he teams up with the Galetta's family who are from Chicago, uh, very much seem to be tied up with organized crime elements of Chicago. And then one of the Galetta's siblings, Evangeline Galetta's, mm-hmm. um, moves to New York. And part of this is related to her marriage to uh, the governor of New York, uh, Hugh Carey whose family uh, pops pops up a couple times in volume one and then pops up again, of course, in in this section because of the connection. It was actually Steve Hoffenberg with whom um, Epstein basically helped plan one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in U.S. history. It was Hoffenberg that set Epstein up with the Galetta's family. And that uh, team up takes place the same year that Epstein and Wexner are alleged to have begun their relationship around 1987 or so. Though some claims from Epstein or Wexner, depending on the year, place it at 1985. It's really hard to know exactly when. Um, but anyway, you have that association takeoff. So once he stops being a financial bounty hunter, he describes himself as a property developer. And I think that was basically uh, his cover for his continued uh, involvement in financial crimes like money laundering and things like that, um, because obviously New York real estate and also Palm Beach real estate, which what do you know, the, the main places where Epstein has real estate um, are, you know, pretty much um, well-known hubs for um, real estate facilitating financial crimes. So now, now in this situation where uh, Wexner has the limited and, you know, he's uh, running with the Bartolo, who's a semi Bartolo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eddie, Eddie DeBartolo was uh, and then there's Junior. So when I grew up, the DeBartolo family was known because they owned the San Francisco 49ers, the Pittsburgh yeah. Penguins, and they were in Youngstown, Ohio is where they had their headquarters. I grew up like a half hour from there in Pennsylvania on the other side of the line. So when you bring up that family, I'm like, it was known that they were in some organized crime construction, real estate. Like that was a known thing when I was in high school, mm-hmm. but I didn't, we didn't know about the the limited. Uh, we just thought it was a mall store, like a, you know, place where chicks get clothes. I didn't know. Sure. Yeah that the people running mall stores are in the mall of an organized crime family that owns the property development makes sense though. Right. And then he's Wexner's yeah. getting real estate from these guys who have built these big shopping centers. And that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. um, the Epstein connection of using, uh, you know, using his multi faceted offerings into that kind of network, which grows into the mega network, which is another philanthropic organization of people very close to Jeffrey Epstein. And then when people are staying at these properties, I don't remember Ehud Barak getting blackmailed. I mean, I don't remember hearing about that. So either he was checking in on his operation 
or he was a subject of that operation. Yeah, I don't know. He was he was either um, partaking. Yeah. Yeah. In the spoils, uh, you know, basically having sex with underage girls housed in these apartments he was seen spending the night at um, because that these particular apartments on 66th Street is uh, that's where I mean, it's I, I know all the the reasons um, for this in, in the book, but the evidence is pretty overwhelming that this is the main place where a lot of the women who were trafficked were housed. So uh, why would Ehud Barak, uh, you know, a well-connected former head of state, be spending the night there when he could easily afford, you know, very ritzy and luxurious um you know, hotels or any other number of places to stay or even Epstein's, um, you know, uh, massive private residence that he was given that Wexner gave to him much more, um, you know, uh, nicer digs for sure than this apartment complex. So why is he spending the night there? So, yeah, like you say, it's either he's, you know, he's looking at the kind of room overseeing, service. supervising the operation and, you know, the women, and girls involved or he's partaking directly and there hasn't been a lot of interest in getting to the bottom of that from mainstream media that's for sure now the other part is uh, i'm going to read this paragraph into the record those apartments at 301 east 66th street would play a role in epstein's sexual trafficking and blackmail activities for instance ehud barak former israeli prime minister and israeli military intelligence chief was a frequent visitor to this location so much so that the daily beast reported that numerous residents of this osa properties owned apartment building quote had seen barack in the building multiple times over the last few years and nearly half a dozen t- uh, more described running into his security detail and quote the daily beast report also noted that quote the building is majority owned by epstein's younger brother mark who has been tied to several of the financiers alleged new york uh trafficking ring so my question is it, what happened what's what's the story with mark epstein has anyone asked him about these things yeah so um with mainstream media, they'll ask Mark Epstein stuff and he just denies everything, you know, mm. and, and they leave it at that. Um, I didn't really get into his connections. He has some connections to like U.S. foreign policy circles. He was involved with something called, I think it's a, the Humpty Dumpty Institute. Uh, one of these. Um, it's not exactly, a, a you know, as big as like the CFR in terms of think tank land, but it does have yeah. some influential, you know, Democratic or Democrat party, uh, you know, people affiliated with it. And he was on, on the board. And I didn't really get into all of that in the book, um, uh, you know, for various reasons. Um, but uh, he's definitely an interesting character and other people. So also properties is the company he ostensibly owns and the other people that are, that were at the top of, you know, um, that company at the time were people that worked directly with Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein before then, um, I think uh, these two brothers specifically from South Africa, uh, last name is Barrett. So um, anyway, there's some interesting South African connections in Epstein's network that haven't gotten a lot of play at all that, um, you know, get discussed later in the book as well. But the Barrett uh, brothers are part of that and they seem to be part of this, um, you know, company ostensibly managed by by Mark Epstein. But there seems to, of course, be more to what's going on there than anyone's really bothered to look into. And, you know, no one's really held Mark Epstein's feet to the fire. But the same could be said for a lot of other people that were obviously involved, um, like Leslie Wexner. He gets a pass. Mark Epstein gets a pass. Um, and they're well, not the only ones. And the, the gentlewoman mentioned in this passage, because if one asks the question, how did Epstein meet Bill Clinton? <laughs> One could come up with this answer. I want to read this part. Perhaps the most notable mention over the years of Epstein's connection to foreign currency markets can be found in a letter written by Epstein's close friend, 
Lynn Forrester, who was later Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, married Sir Evelyn de Rothschild, to then President Bill Clinton in April 1995. In that letter, Forrester wrote, Dear Mr. President, it was a pleasure to see you recently at Senator Kennedy's house. There was too much to discuss in too little time. Using my 15 seconds of access to discuss Jeffrey Epstein and currency stabilization, I neglected to talk to you about a topic near and dear to my heart. And then she goes on with her second pitch. But when she had her up and like she's she got up to bat, she says, meet Jeffrey Epstein. And a year later, Lynn Forrester de Rothschild marries Sir Evelyn de Rothschild and they honeymoon in Bill Clinton's White House. They like literally stay, they they stay in the White House for their honeymoon. So Lynn Forrester's relationship with Epstein uh, precedes uh, uh, Bill Clinton's time in the White House, though. Um, Lynn Forrester allegedly got unspecified financial help from Epstein during her divorce from Andrew Stein and Andrew Stein uh, through. I guess you could just call it another coincidence is uh, related to uh, the descendants of uh, Louis Rosensteel, Mm -hmm. specifically um, the one that with Roy Cohn uh, attempted to basically uh, steal Louis Rosensteel's estate, which involved uh, Roy Cohn basically having a comatose Louis Rosensteel sign a piece of paper. (laughs) It's just a silly story. Uh, I mean, Roy Cohn eventually gets disbarred over that. Um, but this is the guy, Louis Rosensteel, that helped him, you know, run sexual blackmail stuff and helped make his career. And then, you know, they they screw each other over <laughs> at the end of it. I mean, you know, it's just very dog eat dog uh, in this particular uh, world. But Lynn Forrester was um, I think Andrew Stein was trying to be a politician in New York at the time and failed to get elected. And then she basically was like, you're not, you know, as, as you know, uh, she's a climber. Like, she knew she could climber. I'm trying yeah. to say it nicely. So yeah, that's probably the best way to, uh, to put it. And so Epstein apparently stepped in in 92 or 93 or so the same year when his name uh, was dropped from the case of the Ponzi scheme at towers financial. Mm-hmm. And when he starts getting involved with the Clinton White House, uh, he steps in to help her financially. But apparently they knew each other before, uh, but it's not exactly clear how um, how they met. So, yeah. So for everyone playing at home, uh, Lynn Forster, later Lynn Forrester to Rothschild, she in 2013 created this inclusive capitalism movement that had uh, one third with of the, the world's and. Well, the Pope came onto it later Later, with COVID and the Great Reset because they had to rebrand it. Mm -hmm. It went nowhere when they did in 2013. But she had Christine Lagarde introduce her in this meeting. And she says, we have one third of the world's investable wealth in one room and poverty is a problem. And we rich people should take care of it. And it's basically like the prelude to the Great Reset. And so it's the same people. Lynn Forrester's inclusive capital movement came at a time when she was really uh, closely associated with Deutsche Bank, which interestingly enough at the time was Epstein's bank of choice by that period. Um, And it also followed um, her creation of a, uh, I don't know if you call it an investment firm. I think it is. It was, it's called uh, or was called uh, Bronfman Rothschild LP. It's basically, you know, Lynn Forrester with I think Matthew Bronfman, Uh, joining forces and then she goes and makes this inclusive capitalism whatever which is basically you know global stakeholder capitalism uh yeehaw fun time uh party group and deutsche bank also (laughs) i think was involved in some insider trading on 9-11 
So I'm sure that's just coincidental. Yeah. And like- also um, one of the main 9-11 insider traders, uh, traders, um, Buzzy Kroengard is one of the people involved with uh, Leon Black and Apollo Global Management. And this is the guy that uh, wrote the report saying that Leon Black did nothing wrong in his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. So that's comforting. Yeah. Sarcasm. I like when they I like when they own up to and just say, yeah, what I did is what I did. And I take ownership over it. I mean, it never. No, I will say me. that no one's really been interested in the details of what Leon Black said about his relationship with Epstein. And there's some very interesting things in there. For example, Leon Black says the reason I got involved with Jeffrey Epstein and let him manage my fi- my family foundation is because David Rockefeller personally appointed Epstein to the board of Rockefeller University and thought the world of Epstein and and no one wants to talk about the Rockefeller relationship with Epstein or the trilateral commission membership or any of that stuff. So anyway, um, you know, add it to the list of things mainstream media won't talk about when it comes to, to Jeffrey Epstein, I guess. Well, I mean, when you get into this uh, by page 60, you're talking about the CFR and some of these other people. Um, first off, uh, where is it? Uh, Gaith Farron from uh, BCCI mm-hmm. and the connections to not Rothschild Inc., but it was uh, Baron Edmund de Rothschild who has his own bank. So it's just another member of the family. Yeah, so it, it, there in, in this paragraph, I'm talking about the the Gunsbergs because um, I'm talking about the, the financial network. So, um, Wexner and Epstein both basically, you know, there's the infamous house on, uh, I guess, 71st Street, but they also bought that was like the penthouse and the one that was raided by the FBI. But originally they also bought the neighboring property, which is also a mansion. And eventually that mansion was sold off and that uh, sale involved this fund uh, or this family fund uh, of uh, Mindy Bronfman, who became Mindy de Gunsberg and was, um, you know, married into that particular family. So they're pointing out the connections of the the, de Gunsberg family. They had ties to the Rothschilds and also, um, you know, BCCI uh, people. Uh, as well and this particular entity of Bronfman de Gunsberg wealth was managed by a guy named uh, Guido Goldman who was one of Henry Kissinger's best friends forever actually planned his uh, super awkward 50th uh, birthday party and uh, it turns out Goldman in addition to managing Bronfman uh, trusts and family wealth um, is the son of I think one of the first heads of the World Zionist organization and he was basically the um, CFR's liaison to the cia so that's a powerful dude there and it's worth pointing out too epstein i just mentioned that he was part of the trilateral commission but he was also part of the cfr for several years um i think at their top donor tier and uh, the cfr didn't let epstein go after he was arrested for sex uh, crimes only because he stopped paying dues at some point. <laughs> yeah. On the next page, you also have the, uh, the, not just the trilateral, but you had the Rockefeller university connections. And I yeah. heard that mm-hmm. someplace, but I'd never seen it substantiated. So I'm glad that you were able to find that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then HW uh, Bush made a little appearance. And, and, and so it's a, it's a reinforcing back on Iran Contra BCCI and enterprise over and over again, all these people that you keep bringing up. I'm like, I've read about BCCI frontman Gates for own for years but never in context of Epstein. So I'm really grateful. It's, that it's the same network. That's what I'm trying right. to show. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. right. I'm really grateful that like in Ghostbusters, you're crossing the streams and we're going to blow up this marshmallow man. <laughs> right on. 
Can I still get in trouble for saying I blew, blew up a Stay Puff Marshmallow Man? I don't know. What year is it? <laughs> it's 2022. It's getting close. I like to uh, compare the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man to Augustine Carson's of BIS. I feel like they are basically the same <laughs> at this point. Okay. I want to talk about Wexner's demon, self-described demon on this. Yeah. Page. It's wild, isn't it? Yeah. I, did you, did you go and look at the actual New York magazine article that I'm talking about here? Because it's no, a trip. I had not gotten to that yet, but yeah, let's unfold. I this recommend it. It, it. it got an exclamation point in my notes here. Not just like a, a star and a tab. It was like, Whoa, what is this? So, uh, and people like David Ike, uh, some other people do talk about things like this. So you're just pointing out there are things in folklore that are somewhat descriptive of these situations. And you're pointing out more importantly that Wexner self-described being in one of these situations that comes from folklore. Yeah. He chooses a very specific Yiddish term that means something very specific, which is when it's translated into English is roughly translated as demon possession. And there's other words he could have used, you know, if he wanted to talk about some other entity that's, attached itself to him or that he feels has attached itself to him. As I, as I note in the book, he could have picked any number of terms that describe that in a positive light. Uh, there's Yiddish terms, for example, that refer to um, the righteous spirit of your ancestors sort of attaching it to you. It's it, it, they're themselves to you and any number of things, but no, he chooses this particular term, which is uh, always negative, always negative. And it basically means, um, it means a demon. Uh, it, it's in some places it's referred to, you know, um, as a cleaving of a pious soul into pious section. And then the de book, which is the, the term here, the demon. So you basically have like a split personality and that's what Wexner describes, not just in using this term to describe himself. Um, but he describes the de book as looking like him and being an, ent uh, an entity that basically controls him and tells him what to do and is responsible for him wanting to, um, accumulate more wealth and power uh, nonstop. It gives, it, it causes him anxiety and nervous habits. He can never be at ease. He's constantly, and this is in the article. It's from the 1985, August 1985 issue of New York magazine. It's the cover story. Um, and he's basically just telling this journalist, like I have a, uh, a split personality and, you know, um, I have the pious part, which he calls the stunted treasured boy son part or something like that. Very, bizarre terminology um and he says that part of himself is stunted and that the, the book basically dominates him so you know you either the only ways to look at this is either leslie wexner has a spiritual affliction that he describes as a demon possession and he's very open about that or he has split uh, split personality disorder and thinks this you know depending on on how the reader you know approaches it you know those are really the only two conclusions what i find fascinating is why would you say this to new york magazine before 1985 uh, wexner was very press shy he didn't do profiles like this in 1985 which is around the time he was linking up with epstein uh, he undergoes a metamorphosis where he goes and he does all these puff pieces and major publications. And this is one of the first ones. Why did he want to signal this to so many people and to whom did he wish to signal to? Those are unanswered questions here. Um, but it's obviously deeply concerning when you consider the fact that uh, Leslie Wexner it claims to be possessed by a demon and is one of the most influential figures in Jewish American community development in the United States. So, and also in Israel. 
So I would sort of describe this, for example, um, think of um, imagine a, I don't know, a Catholic charity that trains a massive amount of Catholic priests in the U.S. and I don't know, perhaps Rome. Right. Um, and then they come out and tell New York Magazine that they're possessed by Satan. Would that make waves? These days, probably not. So. Even. <laughs> <laughs> but you would think so. Right. Because that's essentially what Leslie Wexner is doing here. Yeah. Right. He's um, the Wexner Foundation is focused principally on uh, developing leaders for the North American Jewish community and the Israeli government. And he's a man that is openly saying he's possessed by a demon in the Jewish faith. He's rec- as a, as a Jew, he says, I'm possessed by a demon. That's his spirituality that he's describing. Is that the kind of person you want shaping your um, religious life? Personally, no. no. Yeah, personally, no. <laughs> you know? But he does have followers. Uh, he has lots of followers in the mega group. And well, I what's even just- more disturbing is that this is the guy whose philanthropies have trained the top people at APAC, which is arguably the most uh, powerful foreign lobby organization in the United States that should have been registered under FARA, but never has been. And you could argue pretty easily that uh, bad things have happened to people who have tried to get them uh, to register, you know, as foreign agents under FARA, including the Kennedy brothers. So, um, you know, it's um, it's very telling. I'll just leave it at that. The, uh, the quote that you chose from the New York Magazine article reads, Les Wexner picks up his heavy black case and flies off to uh, off in his Challenger, that's the type of jet, with his, with his dibyuk sitting next to him, taunting and poking him with impatience. That little demon he really loves, the dibyuk turns his face. What does he look like? Me, says Leslie Wexner. <laughs> So it's like he's riding around a a demon doppelganger. But this is literally I really encourage people to go and read this 1985 New York Magazine article because that's the ending paragraph. The whole thing, the main motif of the article is the book that Wexner talks about repeatedly. And he talks about it in terms as an entity. It's separate from him, but it joins with him and controls him. And he identifies it as as something he had in childhood that his parents recognized as a child as a childhood demon possession. It leaves for unspecified reasons. Potentially an exorcism took place. And then he says when he's 40, uh, it returns during a near death experience near his vacation home in Vail, Colorado, which to me sort of sounds like um, he made some sort of you know, deal, quote unquote, to like, if you save me from death here on this mountain, I shouldn't have climbed up in at nighttime in a freezing place, you know, I'll, um, you know, sort of sell my soul type, you know, deal. It comes across like that in the article, but please go read it. I'm not making this stuff up. And that's just the last paragraph of the article. That's, it's, that's what it's I always say. I'm not that creative to make this stuff up. I'm just showing you what's out there. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Harvard eventually starts to reject Epstein's donations. But prior to that, huge donations, not just to Harvard, but to MIT. And why do you think he has such like a interest? Was this part of his image creation in the early 2000s to make him like get close to Bill Gates? Or what do you think it was driving that? So with Harvard, there's a lot more there because he um, gets involved with making donations to Harvard um, in the early 1990s. um, And a lot of this is around um, a figure named Henry Rosofsky, who is sort of in 
you know, very close to Israeli heads of state. And then Epstein also gets involved with people like who later become big figures at Harvard, who at the time in this early 90s period, I believe, are teaching at Harvard and are involved sort of in this rape of Russia economic stuff post uh, Larry Soviet Summers Union collapse, like like Larry Summers. And then you also have like, um, you know, several. Yeah. And Ruben. Yeah. And uh, you have a lot of these other Harvard characters popping up all in that particular uh, period of time. And this is just a few years after Leslie Wexner created his um, I think it's called the Israel Fellows Program, where he's basically training 10 Wexner fellows who are top figures in either uh, Israel's government or their national security apparatus. And that involves uh, that fellowship involves them, those fellows spending a year at uh, Harvard's Kennedy School. Um, And so that began, I think, in 1986 or 87. And then you have this uh, big donation to Harvard's Hillel um, in 1991 that they've attempted to distance Epstein from. But there's evidence from, you know, old uh, Harvard Crimson magazines and photographs of plaques that have since been removed that Epstein was one of the was one of the main donors during that that particular period. Um, And, uh, you know, by the time we get around to, I guess, 2006 or no, early 2000s, the Center for Public Leadership, uh, which is run by David Gergen, is basically created by Leslie Wexner with money from him. And then again, in 2006, most of the funding for the CPL comes from Wexner and then people in the Epstein Wexner orbit, like Glenn Dubin, Leon Black, they get on the leadership bodies of the center for public leadership. Some of them like Glenn Dubin start making their own you know, global leaders training groups at the CPL. So it basically becomes the CPL is basically a hub Um for people in this network to, you know, follow them, the round table movement model and seed their, their leaders and, in you know, various uh, positions of power. And so it's, it's worth noting too, that in the same period, 2006, between 2006 and 2009, the Clinton global initiative with at which Epstein allegedly helps make facilitates major donations uh, to the world economic forums, young global leaders program that see the YGL program uh, hold summer seminars at the Harvard Center um, for Public Leadership that Wexner has uh, created. So, you know, and uh, actually that that rather infamous quote now of Klaus Schwab saying we penetrate the cabinets and all of that. He's saying that while speaking at the Harvard Center for Public Leadership that Wexner funded and created uh, in conversation with David Gergen, who the Wexners chose to be in charge of that particular um, institution. And uh, if you watch not just that clip, but the full speech, it starts off with a lady introducing uh, Schwab and Gergen and saying that uh, the CPA works very, very closely with the World Economic Forum and has for some time. So it's interesting when you again consider what you alluded to earlier that other people in the Epstein-Maxwell network, specifically Isabel Maxwell, have uh, no shortage of ties to the World Economic Forum. But then you see other groups like the Clinton Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation sort of swim in these same circles. And as I note later on in the book, Epstein basically helped set up those foundations. So... Yeah. So even like uh, Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, Great Reset, it's all it's all attached to this story. Like you're penetrating the cabinets, you got it in here. And then uh, the mega group. So mm-hmm. the mega group is almost like a, a small like a smaller spinoff of World Economic uh, Forum. Right. World Economic Forum has a coterie of, uh, you know, uh, corporations from around the world. 
right? Uh, the mega group has a collection of well, a coterie uh, of billionaires that share yeah. similar similar policy girl goals as it relates to the U.S. Israel relationship. Um, so I would I wouldn't really compare it to the WEF because I sort of see the WEF as um, well, they describe themselves as the premier promoter of public private partnerships. Mm. So what the mega group is really about, I would say, is not necessarily promoting um, you know, the fascist model of stakeholder capitalism, but more or less um, promoting uh, Israeli supremacism as it relates to U.S. foreign policy. Um, and they, they, they were criticized even before, you know, the Epstein-Wexner uh, stuff came out um, for basically operating as a lobbying group. So sort of like imagine them as APAC, but instead of just, you know, APAC as being this big organization with all these, these paid people, this is a group of billionaires that come together to basically fulfill that same function, but they uh, dress it up as philanthropy, but it's all, um, you know, very politicized philanthropy. And as I note in the book, um, we don't know the whole membership list because as far as official information on the mega group, all we really have to go on is a 1998 article from the wall street journal, but it was, this is a group that was created in 1991. So they waited like seven years to basically reveal themselves to the public, which is uh, telling for, you know, several reasons, but of the people they list as being members of the mega group in that article, um, a majority of them are associated with either intelligence and or organized crime. So that's pretty significant. So is it really about philanthropy or is it about expanding the influence of these organized crime intelligence networks? So I think it's pretty obviously the latter. And then um, John Mearsheimer had done a treatment on APAC in in his book a couple years ago. He was a Harvard professor. And I think that was really the first thing that puts it on radar of Americans. You know, they see it on book TV and they think, oh, there's a group from Israel that has lobbying here. No big deal. Because like there's lots of lobbyists in America. Well, there's lots of people who want your congressman organization well, though <laughs> they've been caught in so many espionage scandals i mean it's just ridiculous right so the front honest. veneer is they're just a lobbying group but on the well, inside yeah. it's like they might be doing espionage <laughs> and just like other people in this network i mean they might be up to some activities yeah. of collecting power and uh, insulating their position from attack right yeah it's very it's machiavellian es- it's espionage masquerading as philanthropy um, in the case of the mega group. And then in the case of APAC, it's, you know, uh, espionage masquerading as a, as a lobbying organization. The mega mystery. What, what do you want to, I don't want you to blow any uh, big spoilers for the book or anything, but what's the mega mystery. And uh, so I forget the exact year. I think it was 90, 97 or so um, that there was uh, basically an intercept, I guess, by the NSA, um, of a phone call that was going on between a Mossad agent and uh, I guess someone at the Israeli embassy. I think it was the ambassador, but I can't remember their exact position. Someone pretty high up there. And they were basically based on the uh, the transcript that the NSA intercepted of, the, of, of, of this intercepted phone call um, in Hebrew. They're basically discussing how to get this particular document they want. And I think this is uh, related to sensitive negotiations that the U.S. was involved with between Israel and Palestine. And they, they, they said um, one of them said, should we go to mega uh, to get this document? Uh, something roughly like that. I can't remember the exact um 
you know, phrasing of the phone call. And so when this was intercepted, people in the national security state in the U.S. Uh, feared that this was someone like Jonathan Pollard, who, uh, you know, is a, a considered one of the most damaging spies in U.S. history. He was a spy for Israel. He passed on a lot of uh, very sensitive military uh, research and military secrets, secrets to Israel. And um, so the concern is that there was some sort of mall in, in, in the U.S., uh, government that was passed that that was being used um, to help um, Israel Israel's government or their intelligence service ob- obtain sensitive uh, documents. Right. And by that so, time, Angleton was dead, so they needed new people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, but it, <laughs> you know it's pretty complicated. So basically, you know, this uh, espionage scandal was basically memory hold, and it, it it happened at a time in the late '90s where there's just a plethora of Israeli wiretapping of U.S. government institutions, including the White House, um, and then stuff that later sort of resurfaces around the time of 9/11, like Amdocs, Converse, Converse Infosys. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure your audience is familiar with that type of stuff, so I won't. Um, get into it so much. But when it comes to mega, the person that was contacted by like the LA times and the Washington post to sort of explain away what mega was, was Rafi Aiton, who ironically enough is Jonathan Pollard's handler and also Robert Maxwell's handler for the promise scandal. I mean, probably the guy that did more to undermine us, um, um, I guess, uh, military might and in national security than any other person in Israel ever, <laughs> I guess you could say. And that's the person they go to, to explain what mega was. And as I note in the book, his explanation uh, doesn't hold water because he claimed it was some particular, um, I guess, mechanism through which the CIA and Mossad communicated, but long before this call was intercepted, that particular group was disbanded. So couldn't have been them. Plausible and why denial. would you trust Rafi Aiton anyway? You know, I mean, it's he went to the joke. boss of the guys who did it. And he said he, they didn't <laughs> We're worried do it. about a new Jonathan Pollard. Let's ask the guy that handled the old Jonathan yeah. Pollard. What's going on? I mean, it makes no sense. It's just he's sworn to lie to us. Let's believe him yeah. over, over here. Notably, af- uh, a year after the mega spy scandal, Israeli prime minister Netanyahu. Oh, we just heard about him. Uh, sleeping yeah. at Epstein's place, right? Yeah. Was alleged to have used blackmail against Billy Bob Clinton to gain leverage during the Y plantation talks between mm-hmm. Israel and Palestine in 1998. It was later reported by author Daniel Halper, relying on the rec- uh, relying on on the record interviews with former officials and hundreds of pages of documents compiled in the event that Lewinsky took legal action against Clinton. So there's this whole thing that goes on around Clinton, and mm-hmm. when they ha- when Epstein has him in the dress with the red shoes. That's probably a painting that comes after such things, not before. Right. I try to piece, yeah. the, piece together his decor and the timeline with uh, with what we know. So do you think that a foreign nation was blackmailing an American president while a seated U.S. president? So, yeah. What do you think? <laughs> I yeah. think I think I think that's pretty clear from the facts. Yeah. But I mean, uh, there it wasn't that hard to blackmail Bill Clinton. Let's be honest. Um, he kind of helped you know, out with it. But this is this is tapping of phones. So even under Trump, you had the situation where all these stingray devices, I think they were called that were being run by Israel, were discovered around the White House and like nothing happened. And there were people, uh, top uh, counter intel officials from like the FBI and other stuff that were like, yeah, it's Israel. And then Israel denied it. And, you know, Trump loves Israel, so he didn't do anything about it. Uh, but I mean, this is something that they do. Right? So if, uh, if they had uh, some influence on the White House under Clinton and uh, Lynn and Evelyn are staying at the White House, there's a chance that uh, the, the 
the government's under some influence, right? Not saying deep capture that. Yeah. Well, let's wait till we get to the Vince Foster stuff and all of that, because I mean, I would argue that from the very beginning of Clinton's presidency, uh, there was really shady espionage activity involving the Clintons in Israel, um, you know, pretty much from the off. And this would all foreshadow anything that happened on nine 11. This would be all the structure that's in place politically and lobby wise for an agenda But to add some things that didn't, you know, I didn't yeah. add, add to the book because of tangents, you know, after 9-11, uh, you have basically Israel's national security apparatus operating a bunch of front companies uh, that these days masquerade as cybersecurity companies. And they basically uh, run a lot of the infrastructure that the NSA uses, that our military uses. It's all, you know, basically uh, backdoored by a foreign power, that foreign power being Israel. So one of the companies that had mentioned on, on that page you were showing a bit ago, it, it said Amdocs and Variant, a Variant mm-hmm. formerly Converse Infosys. Um, the NSA, I believe under Michael Hayden, tapped Variant to be one of the companies that put backdoors for the, developed the backdoors for the NSA uh, into um, basically all major Silicon Valley products. So um, I do you think they didn't pass that on to Israel? I mean, that would be so naive <laughs> right? Uh, to think that, you know, didn't go back to them, uh, especially considering that they have, you know, major uh, military intelligence connections, as most Israeli tech companies do. A lot of them go back to Unit 8200 and other uh, groups like that. So. All right. So you brought up Vince Foster. Um, what do you think was uh, we asked? I mean, I, I did bring him up last week and I asked, what did you think was suspicious about his death? And you said uh, it looked like his body was moved and there's a ver- variety of other things in there in the context of Israeli espionage on the Clinton White House. How do you think Vince Foster plays into that narrative? OK, so there was a, the top investigator, investigative reporter at, in, at Forbes. In 1995 was a guy named James Norman and James Norman wrote this piece that he called Fostergate and it was very well sourced, uh, though initially, you know, they tried to prevent it from being published by saying the sourcing wasn't good enough. But then he shored up his sourcing and it was pretty undeniable. A lot of the claims uh, he was making were, were rock solid. Um, but this was also at a time when Malcolm Forbes, you know, who owns Forbes and, and whatever, was trying to run for political office. And basically people um, calling Malcolm Forbes put enough pressure to get the story killed. And Norman, you know, basically had to take a severance package and publish this piece elsewhere. And the piece itself is impossible to find. And even though James Norman and I share the same publisher, uh, he didn't want to talk to me, uh, maybe because of the nature of of this story, because it is very disturbing. So um, it's pretty complicated. And I'm trying I'm going to do my best to summarize it. Um, But essentially, uh, Vince Foster had the Swiss bank account. And he shared it with Hillary Clinton and they, it appears that they sold secrets uh, of the NSA and the American military to Israel and then Israel passed them on to China. Um, And that this is one of the, um, you know, examples of espionage intrigue that is related to uh, the death of Vince Foster, which was, you know, as we mentioned last time, poorly uh, investigated to say, you know, to put it nicely, it, it seems more like it was a cover up. Um, and then, you know, other evidence uncovered by Norman and also 
um, an economist teaching at a very uh, prestigious university. I can't remember which university. Sorry. I think it was Wharton. Um, J. Orland Grab, mm-hmm. uh, working with sources in the national security community, claimed that there were Israeli intelligence people uh, with Foster the day of his death, but they didn't think that Foster uh, was killed by them, rather that they were um rendezvousing as as part of this sort of espionage um activity that involved passing sensitive uh secrets um of the u.s national security state to israel and then uh, once they're in israeli hands uh they seem to find their way to china for whatever reason so and then uh jay orlin grab reported that there was a Mossad agent with foster in his apartment during his final hours yeah yeah mm-hmm. he, he but he doesn't that, think that, right. that he, uh, she killed him yeah well, that's so he stays alive. Well, allegedly, per Jay Orland Grab and, and his investigations, which I link to in the book, they're preserved on archive.org um, and are impossible to find elsewhere at this point. Um, and it took uh, him and Norman as well, uh, working together several years to piece this together. But it seemed like um, Vince Foster was killed in a car. Uh, while he was being pleasured by some sort of honeypot and a guy in the backseat uh, shot him. And that the neck to mouth wound that we talked about last time was uh, neck to mouth as opposed to mouth to neck. Right. So mm-hmm. um, that's sort of uh, how they piece the evidence together. And apparently this was known uh, to other people, you know, in the national security community at the time. And um you know, but what's interesting here is the role that Hillary Clinton played in this, of course, um, because she obviously played a role in managing the immediate aftermath of Foster's death and allegedly, you know, uh, per, per these people was involved in this espionage activity herself. So uh, and this is at a time that Barry Seal is smuggling cocaine in the this is after. Oh, this is after. Mm-hmm. OK, uh, this is the early days of the Clinton White House. Um, so. But I'm thinking Vince Foster worked at Rose Law Firm during those days. They were using Promise Software. He's working with Hillary. They got some Swiss bank accounts. Yeah, and he so I mentioned last time that Vince Foster at Rose Law was involved with Systematics, the Jackson Stevens company involved with Promise and and all of that. And so he was managing the Systematics NSA relationship. So the nature of that, it it Mm. seems, is what he passed on to Israel, which then passed it on to China. And at the same time, I think we talked about this last time as well, uh, the owner of systematics jackson stevens and other companies tied up with systematics are making big inroads into the chinese financial system including china's central bank so there's a lot of uh crazy stuff going here and i honestly didn't expect it there are so many israel china connections that sort of um come to more or less dominate a lot of the stuff going on in chapter 16 and 17 um you know it was uh surprising to me but you know I, well, I, I rather I didn't expect to find it rather. Um, but, you know, obviously have to include it. It's a it's a pretty crazy story. I mean, so um, as far as the Foster Gate stuff goes, you know, maybe this sounds kind of fantastical to some people. But, you know, I would encourage you to read the book and not just listen to like a five minutes <laughs> synopsis. Right. Of, right. It's those of what's going on here. Yeah. Those cartoon summaries is what gets <laughs> if you learn outside of that and find a couple inconvenient pieces of the narrative that are evidentiary, evidentially uh, evidentiary and substantial, then mm-hmm. that breaks the narrative. And then you have to go ask the question, what happened? And you have to go find out. And um, 
Yeah. Uh, when you get to the part about friends in high places, it's uh, deep about uh, Lynn Forrester to Rothschild's relationship with Epstein and also with Hillary Clinton. My notes at the end, because this, this whole page is just marked up with their activities and we're getting short on time. So I want to point out that it's there. But my questions were, do you ever see the, the WikiLeaks uh, Hillary Clinton miss you emails with? Yeah, yeah. In the re- requesting penance. I don't know if I included that one or not. Yeah. 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 Miss you. XO XO hugs and kisses. So they're, they're pretty close. They're very close to say the least. Mm -hmm. And then busting into the last couple hundred pages here. um, In QTEL is also involved with all that we've talked about heretofore, right? Uh, It's the venture capital arm funding some of these like systematics corporation. I don't know if that was in QTEL, but it's definitely like, well, in, in QTEL didn't exist until relatively, I think, a year or two tops before 9-11. It's not that old. Um, but the guy that made it for the CIA wasn't part of the CIA. He was the head of Lockheed Martin named Norm Augustine, who is being talked about um, on this page because of his relationship with a guy named Bernard Schwartz, who owned a company called Laurel. And he uh, basically merged a lot of laurel uh and and spun off parts of it um so he spun off a part he remained in charge of that was mostly dealing with satellite technology and the other part he he gave to uh, norm augustine and lockheed martin in just a few years prior lockheed martin had only come into existence through another mega merger itself right? right um so this is basically you know the creation of one of the the arguably the most influential bodies of the military industrial complex in the United States. Um, And Laurel has plays a big role here because Bernard Schwartz is part of this bigger scandal that I only really got to scratch the surface of in the book um, that a lot of conservative, I mean, really only the people, the only people that remember it these days are conservatives and they call it China gate. I think it's a misnomer. Um, because it's not really just China. You have um, Israel, you have this organized crime intelligence network involving Israel that Epstein was a part of and Mark Rich and the Maxwells um, and all of this on one side. And then uh, you have uh, Chinese, the Chinese military industrial complex. And in that same mix, you have the guy that Epstein is um, the bulk of his meetings at the White House are with the guy in the center of this quote unquote China Gate scandal named Mark Middleton, who dies very suspiciously earlier this year, only a few months after the revelations about his closeness with Epstein for whatever reason. Um, but it, so, you know, I, I don't think we have time to really get into China Gate um, and all in Mark Middleton and all of that. I recently did a podcast on some of the background of Mark Middleton and why he's intriguing um and a lot of it revolves around the riotti family the business partners of jackson stevens we talked a little bit about last week um but there's a lot more to uncover in this particular uh regard and i may end up having to do volume three just because of this um this stuff alone but a lot of it ties back to stuff that came up as early as chapter one with a lot of these um uh, British networks in Hong Kong and intelligence and all of that. But to focus on Bernard Schwartz, uh, Bernard Schwartz was basically involved in the legal technology transfers of sensitive military technology from China to the United States. And one of the ways he did that 
and other people involved in this broader operation doing the exact same thing uh, did that was by uh, funneling a bunch of illegal campaign contributions to the Clintons, buying access to the Commerce Department that was then run by the notoriously corrupt Ron Brown, who happens to look almost exactly like Lando Calrissian uh, for whatever reason. And uh, Ron Brown uh, eventually agrees to cooperate with investigators about scandals that unravel a lot of this. And uh, he ends up dead in a very suspicious plane crash. Um, but anyway, uh, basically, Bernard Schwartz undermined U.S. national security to a hugely significant degree. And behold, uh, he is the guy that is responsible for Joe Biden being president because he rescued his primary campaign in 2020. Um, and is the only reason really that that is the guy they used. Uh, they 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 used Biden over Bernie Sanders because of a win that was financed by Schwartz. And, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff about Biden and China, all of that. Well, it's very telling that Bernard Schwartz is uh, one of the main backers of of Biden specifically. They picked up a president at a discount. That's what they did. They're like, yeah, oh, it's but, available only for that. I'll buy that. Yeah. So this is sort of, you know, he's one of these examples and he's also tied up with the neocons. People like Richard Pearl and Doug yeah. Feith were working for him. And, you know, like I mentioned, there's this um, Israeli intelligence subtext and Richard Pearl obviously has a long, long history of undermining U.S. national security to benefit Israel. And at this time was writing things like a clean break for Netanyahu and all other uh, sorts of stuff. Well, I should also mention uh, Netanyahu's uh, 1996 prime minister win was financed by an American, Ron Lauder, um, who's also part of these same uh, networks. So it's a very transnational uh, thing you have going on, basically. And a lot of it, as I know um, in the book, seems to involve this pre-planned effort to engineer the rise of Eurasia at the expense of the West and basically the hollowing out of American power uh, to have, you know, uh, in, in, uh, while at the same time building up uh, China. Basically. And at the same time, holding up Likud and PNAC goals, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, there's a lot of, well, I know anyway that uh, in the book that that particular network um, in, in including people in Israel, like Shal Eisenberg and, and people that were closely associated with Robert Maxwell for some time really had a, a vested interest in building up China militarily. Um, and that Israel's relationship in that regard with China goes back to the late 70s um, and has been um, kind of a theme uh, for a long time, though, you know, it's not necessarily known about now. But, you know, I, I cite things like from 1993, the CIA director saying uh, Israel passes our most sensitive technology. We give them as part of the quote special relationship to our ostensible adversary in China and stuff like that. And, you know, it's still going on. Yeah, it is. No, let's uh, let's wrap this up by talking about the edge group, transhumanism, cybernetics, all that fun stuff that Jeffrey Epstein brings in right before he uh, doesn't hang himself. What did you uh, what did you make of this section? Were you surprised to get to transhumanism and cybernetics in a search about like a sex trafficking network? No, no, no. So um, when you're looking at at the transhumanist network around Epstein, it's very there's just so much there. And I, again, only really got to scratch the surface Um, some of the. Biggest names in early transhumanism pop up um, in Epstein's network, like more than Minsky, uh, for example, some of the pioneers of artificial intelligence. Um, you have a lot of Epstein connections to supercomputer firms where a lot of people seem to, um, again, overlap with transhumanism. Uh, what you had there with the Edge Foundation, specifically John Brockman, who creates Edge, um, is an avid supporter of um 
of transhumanism going back decades and decades and decades um, and basically creates this symposium network where people can develop ideas like that and, and other ones. And one of the main things that edge was doing was what were previously the millionaire dinners. And then in 1999 became, became rebranded as the billionaire dinner. Um, And by the time it becomes the billionaire dinner, Edge becomes almost exclusively bankrolled by Epstein and is basically operating as a front for Epstein. And the people that attend these billionaire dinners are the top people at Silicon Valley, a lot of whom end up dining at Epstein's residences later. And this includes people like Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn, Mark Zuckerberg, um, Elon Musk, um, Sergey Brin of Google. I mean, some of the biggest names in tech really um, circling around here. And uh, I mean, there's just a whole bunch of unexplored stuff with Edge. But anyway, John Brockman is nominally a publisher, uh, but he also has intelligence ties, past ties to the Pentagon, all sorts of stuff um, in the same period where he links up with Epstein, which appears to be the early 90s or 1995, um, if not earlier. And Epstein basically uses Edge as a vehicle to get close and seemingly uh, potentially entrap or, you know, recruit into his uh, uh, start funding basically um, scientists that are of interest to him and the scientists he picks uh, almost always are involved in some sort of eugenics related research um, or transhumanism or things with uh, potential applications in transhumanism, uh, gene editing. Um, one of the most important people in that regard would be Eric Lander, who up until relatively recently was the top science advisor to Joe Biden as president and was actually elevated to a cabinet level position while he was there. But he um, Eric Lander originally worked for the supercomputer company with ties to Epstein called Thinking Machines in the 1980s that uh, Marvin Minsky also were also worked at. And then Eric Lander gets involved with the Human Genome Project, which was actually the brainchild of a man who was a member of the British Eugenics Society um, called Walter Bodmer. And it was still the British Eugenics Society at the time Bodmer came up with the idea. Um, And then, you know, a few um, years after that, Eric Lander becomes infamous for basically uh, toasting a guy that um, had basically um, become persona non grata after going on the BBC and saying that black people are genetically inferior to everyone else. Um, and, but it was okay. They said when he got put in the Biden administration, because the person directly under him was an African-American woman. So it doesn't matter that he thinks racists are great. I think that Um, makes it even worse. (laughs) Yeah. They don't get it. Anyway, that, that was the excuse they gave about why it's okay now. Um, but that's basically, you know, the person that was put in, uh, in charge to be Biden's top science advisor. So a lot of this stuff is still very important today in this particular network. But I mean, Eric Lander is not the only one. I just mentioned him because, you know, it's a very clear connection to the present. You know, some of this may seem like ancient history to people, but really it's uh, definitely still informing our present. Um, and there's some things with the Epstein transhumanist stuff I unfortunately did not get into in the book. One of this is his funding of the World Transhumanist uh, Association, which has since been renamed Humanity Plus. Us. And also, I think, relates a lot to the very, very underexplored relationship between Jeffrey Epstein and Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. 
which is very significant. And if you ask me, I think that probably plays a role in why Epstein was allowed to be arrested in 2019 and killed, uh, why he was taken down. I think a lot of it has to do with the power plays in Saudi Arabia between the person, uh, Mohammed bin Nayef, that Mohammed bin Salman deposed when he came to power and the different factions, because John Brennan was close to that guy, the CIA director, right? And then you have um, Jared Kushner and that whole nexus being very much involved with uh, Mohammed bin Salman and, of course, Epstein, as we know now. And uh, when Mohammed bin Salman first came to power, he's like, I'm going to move um, Saudi Arabia into this post oil future and vision 2030, which is basically agenda 2030 for Saudi Arabia. And one of the first moves after announcing that was to give this robot Sophia citizenship. And it turns out that one of the top guys at humanity plus that was heavily funded by Epstein, Ben Gertzel is the guy that made Sophia the robot. So I would suspect that Epstein was sort of responsible for that little move and the idea of personhood on robots and all of that stuff from an early stage and was using Mohammed bin Salman sort of as a vehicle for some of that. Because uh, if you look, if you look at the timeline, the, the Jamal Khashoggi stuff is all say. very <laughs> murky. This is Adnan Khashoggi's nephew, yeah. a lot of unanswered questions about what's going on there. And then you have Mohammed bin Salman being pumped up by the media. And then he has this huge fall from grace that sort of parallels, you know, Epstein's own fall, not that long after. I would really sort of, I think there's a lot of factional stuff going on behind the scenes there. And that ultimately is part of why Epstein was taken out. Um, if you ask me, but anyway, um, cause I was going to ask did uh, MBS is he the one who had Jamal Khashoggi uh, reporter for the Washington post hit over there in that embassy and they carried him out in pieces. Right. And the answer is you just said yes. And I was sitting there trying to remember, I was like, Jamal Khashoggi, Jamal Khashoggi. Then you said his name. I was like, yeah, let's talk about that. Cause I think it is relevant to whether or not people think Epstein killed himself. I think that's a, a murder that they just made look. There's a lot of crazy like intrigue himself. stuff going yeah. on in the last couple of years. And it's very interesting, too, that Epstein, a major funder of transhumanist stuff and tied up with people like Bill Gates in a huge way and a major influence on the type of science that Bill Gates was involved with, for example, gets taken out just months before COVID gets sprung on the world and mRNA, um, yes. you know, vaccines and all of that stuff gets um, well, he's rolled dead out get, in a big way. Careful. Yeah. So there's there's a lot going on. But I would say that some of the biggest revelations in the book for, you know, the lay person uh, was are probably some of the stuff about Epstein and, and, and Bill Gates specifically and also the Clinton Foundation. And I think that's one of the reasons why even if you're, you know, mainstream media uh, doesn't talk about anything before the year 2000, really, with Epstein. Um, they try and keep the the scope of what they do talk about after the year 2000 very limited in order to avoid talking about how Epstein basically set up the Clinton Foundation, set up the Clinton Health Access Initiative, set up their HIV AIDS mm. program, and also um, basically uh, claimed later on to do a lot of work in Africa, even though he had no philanthropic presence in Africa and claimed that Africa was the perfect place to experiment. That's something totally normal for a eugenicist to say, isn't it? And uh, so he was either basically my conclusion uh, working uh, in Africa through either the Clinton Foundation or the Bill, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And so powerful was Epstein in this world of philanthropy um, that uh, Bill Gates goes to him to try and get a Nobel Prize. And Bill Gates uh, basically has his philanthropy money directed by Epstein when he doesn't need to have it directed by Epstein. For example, uh, Bill Gates uh, donations to the MIT Media Lab 
were managed and planned and executed by Epstein. Um, and Bill Gates didn't need Epstein for that. So the question is, why did you have Epstein involved in that capacity? And that's a question Bill Gates still can't answer. So. Well, and I also, I also thought it was weird that Bill Gates said, yeah, I went to Jeffrey Epstein to raise some money. I'm like, well, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't he be coming to right? you for money? Like, yeah. Why are you going to, mm-hmm. why are you going to Epstein thinking he can help your fund bill? Be- because what, what you have that? to understand what I explain, what I try and explain yeah. in the book is that this new era of philanthropy that roughly starts with the year 2000, which is when more or less you have Antitrust. the Clinton foundation and the Bill and Gates foundation created and the Milken Institute, Michael Milken, and like all of these guys get into philanthropy. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's basically this model of philanthropy. That's not philanthropy. It's impact and investing. But the unlike impact investing, where they promote the social good impact of their investments, it's uh, framing philanthropic, uh, framing uh, actual business investments as philanthropy. So if you hear Bill Gates talk about vaccines, for example, he'll be like, I'm sure most people in your audience have probably seen him uh, say, you know, I don't get a return on investment on anything better than, you know, vaccines. It's the best ROI I could ask for. Right. Yeah. And if you look at things that he's behind, like the Gavi Vaccine Alliance on their website, they say we're about the health, promoting the health of vaccine markets, the health of the market, not necessarily the health of the people. And, you know, that's basically uh, a, a subtext of this whole philanthropic movement. So Epstein is really the money man and the financial architect behind that. And if you look at the trajectory of Epstein's career, this is a guy in the 1980s that was a BCCI shadow banker basically. Um, then he creates one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in U.S. history with Stephen Hoffenberg. Then he gets involved in some of the most controversial fundraisers in the entire Clinton presidency, and that's saying something. And then after Clinton leaves office, he sets up his political slush fund, the Clinton Foundation, and then gets involved with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and creating this new era of philanthropy. He is... Um, you know, a big, big financial criminal. And it's a major, major obvious fact. I'm looking at the Epstein case that no one wants to touch. And the last person in the world that wants to touch that is Eric Weinstein, because Eric Weinstein likes to go on about Epstein and intelligence and all of this. But at the time they were supposedly meeting, um, Eric Weinstein was like a hedge fund guy. And so why was he going to meet with Epstein about financial stuff? in the early 2000s. I think it's pretty clear. And I think it's pretty clear if you actually look what Eric Weinstein does and doesn't say about his meeting um, with Jeffrey Epstein. Basically what he says is I knew that guy was an op, but he doesn't say why he doesn't say what they discussed. He doesn't say why he was going to meet him. Um, And if you're a wall street hedge fund guy and you're going to eat with someone uh, with Epstein, with someone like Jeffrey Epstein, you know, you're probably getting into stuff like tax evasion or some other sort of, you know, shady financial stuff. Cause at this point he's a financial criminal kingpin. Um, well, in the late end of the 20th century, in 1999, Bill Gates was on antitrust. They were about to like slap him down. Yeah. And Warren Buffett came and said, hey, let's do this giving pledge and give all our billions away to ourselves. And then Gates became yes. a philanthropist and rebranded. Yes, it's rebranding. Yes, yeah. that's that's really all it is. So um, but the Epstein Microsoft relationship dates back even before that antitrust stuff was going on. And that has been very underexplored. Um 
that evening standard article that calls Jeffrey Epstein, the property developer, the first one I found anyway, that I mentioned earlier, um, it's a very inconvenient article. And one of the reasons for it being so inconvenient is because it says Jeffrey Epstein has made most of his uh, millions through his business links with Leslie Wexner. We all know about that. Donald Trump, you know about that. And the third one is Bill Gates. But supposedly Bill Gates and Jeffrey Epstein didn't meet until 2011. So how did Epstein make millions of dollars with Bill Gates if they hadn't met by that point? But we do know from The Guardian and other UK media outlets that Bill Gates had a very close relationship with Isabel Maxwell uh, in the 1990s and the year 2000. But um, what they also don't tell you is that Jeffrey Epstein was very close in the 1990s to Nathan Mervold, who's the chief technical officer of Microsoft and one of the closest people to Bill Gates in Microsoft in the 1990s, who co-writes books with him and basically charts the path of Microsoft in this period, including the antitrust period and all of that. And they uh, Jeffrey Epstein accompanies them on their delegation to Russia, the Microsoft Russia trip in 1998. Um, And a lot of really weird things seem to have been going on there, including um, the passing of supercomputers and sale of supercomputers that were illegal to Russian nuclear plants and all other sorts of uh, crazy tech transfer stuff, which seems to be a, a major theme, um, you know, of this this latter part of, of volume two specifically. Um, there's just a lot of really crazy stuff going on with the Microsoft stuff, but I would say um, that it's even more um, it's even more than that. It looks like to me that um, well, if I do a volume three, I think I'll finally get to the bottom of the millions of Jeffrey Epstein and, and Bill Gates in the 1990s. But a lot of it seems to do uh, seems to be related to Isabel Maxwell um, and the Maxwell sisters. Um, twin sisters, Christine and Isabel, more specifically. And um, uh, I don't even know. I mean, there's so much other stuff I could say about the Microsoft stuff. Melanie Walker is a person to look at who went from being Jeffrey Epstein's science, science advisor in the late 90s to being Bill Gates' science advisor in the early 2000s. Again, somehow they didn't meet until 2011. But, you know, they yeah. obvious, that obviously makes no sense because Bill Gates interviews Melanie Walker. Oh, I see your resume. You were the science advisor. Most recently, you were the science advisor for Jeffrey Epstein. He'd have to know who Epstein was and what kind of science Epstein was into to hire yeah. her. Yeah. Right? Pesky things like causality and timelines mess them up. Yeah. But no one challenges Bill Gates on this. I mean, they're literally just like, okay, 2011, that's uh, the, that's where it all starts. It's, it's at least a, you know, well over a decade prior. Now do you think Gates gave Epstein the little app for his phone? So it's like in case of death, press this and I upload you into my computer. Do you think he got that privilege or no? Hey, I don't know. Well, you know, a lot of these guys in in these networks that are in this transhumanist stuff like Epstein, their ultimate goal is to have their brain in the cloud. Right. So would they have done that? I don't know. I mean, just as a joke, he's sitting there pressing it as these guys come in. He's pressing it. It doesn't work. And Gates is like, ha ha. I see you trying to press it. It doesn't work. You fool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I mean, that may be. Um, you know, <laughs> if someone ever makes a movie of possible death scenarios for Epstein, I think that would be a good, <laughs> yeah, it's a good chapter. It'll be like uh, Tarantino's four rooms. Whitney, where can people find your books? Okay. So the best place to buy uh, the books, um, if you're in the continental U S and you want a physical copy is obviously going to be direct from the publisher, which is trying day T R I N E day.com. Um, you'd have to look under new releases. You can buy volume one and two separately or for a reduced price buy both together as a bundle. Um, the ebook is going to be available in about two weeks as I understand it. Um, and then after that, um, apparently the audiobook company, 
can only record the audiobook once they have the full ebook, which um, you know will begin recording soon. So I assume that the audiobook will follow maybe one to two months roughly after the ebook is released, though I'm not a hundred percent on those dates. But those are going to be volumes one and two together. So that's probably most cost effective uh, for people. Uh, meaning the ebook and the audiobook are both volumes, right? Um and you can also buy it, you know, you don't have to buy it from trying to, you can buy it from Amazon or any other, you know, bookseller of your choice. Um, some people have had trouble sourcing it outside of the U.S. because of high international shipping. Um, but we're, you know, trying to iron out those, uh, iron out those details. If you have any uh, queries about that, I would get in contact with Trying Day directly uh, and they'll be able to point you to the, the best place to buy the book if you're not in the U.S. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for taking uh, time out of your busy schedule to help enlighten us on volume two of One Nation Under Blackmail. And I think that people, once they read both books, once they get through the second book, they're going to see all these things you're talking about. They're still going on out there. Nobody's really challenged them. And thankfully, you're at least pointing them out to people. And I look forward to seeing you on Patrick Bet David's platform and a whole bunch of other people uh, that have millions of followers and can really get this message out there. But I really want to thank you for helping the Grand Theft World audience understand these in detail because we think of ourselves as like doing a little bit more deep dive than the rest of the show. So thank you so much and uh, come back again. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much. I'd be happy to come back another time. Thanks, Richard. And with that interview concluded, I mean, I think she's just got mind blowing information from page one all the way through page thousand. I know it's a little intimidating. What was the last time you read a thousand pages? Oh, my computer froze up. How about that? Is that better? Yeah. All right. Anyway, because my OBS froze up. All right. So, um, that thousand pages might seem intimidating, but just think of it like that. Get the books. So you have them read a chapter and then see what happens after you read a chapter. If you don't like the beginning of the story, jump to the second volume and like get into the gist and then go back and fill in your contextual information of how that all happened. You don't have to read the book in order. In other words, to get a whole bunch of value. And I think knowing more about Iran Contra or BCCI, like look them up before you even get the books and say what I like to know about the people that are doing these things, because those orchestrations will have power swaying over us today. And the people who gained power from covering up such things are the ones who covered up Epstein's whole thing. And they're precipitating down unfreedom on us today. Yeah, Epstein was essentially a uh, a patsy in this entire Ponzi scheme of intelligence. Well, he's not innocent, but he's definitely the scapegoat. No, 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 hung I guess out I shouldn't say to make it sure that no one by goes saying after. Patsy, you're right. I shouldn't have used and that. What term. happened to Jean Luc Brunel? Didn't he have but, like but some sort of uh, no John innocence. McAfee situation or something? He perhaps he oh, passed yeah. away. Yeah. Oh, well, a number of uh, I've, I've showcased Brunel a didn't Epstein um, himself. I don't know what happened. There's a number of individuals. She mentioned was it Frazier? There's another individual she was talking about in regards that was also mysteriously uh, found suicided. Well, that and was Vince Foster. Pe- Vince Foster. Foster, not Frazier. Yeah. Foster. Thank you, Vince Foster. And we were, t- we were talking about that um, uh, just recently, but privately. So what's interesting, yeah, not a patsy. That's a, that's me talking at two in the morning. But the point is, like, he's a pawn. That's the word I'm really looking for. Not patsy, but a pawn in a larger system that's been going on for decades well, really, arguably, probably centuries going back to what the yeah, British he was Empire servicing was bishops and kings and queens. That's a good century. chess. That's a good chess metaphor. Well played, Tony. She, she made a good point too. Yes, yes, that's right. She made a good point about uh, volume one, like read chapters 11, 16 and 17. And you get the gist of his connections with BBC, BCCI being like a sort of shadow. And inve- was it? I think that's I might be getting a lot of things confused right now. It's late. 
I think talking about his uh, narco terrorism, drug money laundering, human shadow investments. Yeah, BCC run by yeah. intelligence companies, covered right. up from national security, and that'll give the good high. context for jumping into a lot of the material in volume, volume two, which I thought she did an incredible job because she's much more conversant, I think, in that, that particular history in regards oh, to yeah. I've seen in his network. Um, whereas last week, I know she didn't feel well, but it's also not her specific focus. She had to build that. I ran contra happened before she was born. I'm That's, pretty sure if I was doing the math correctly, she's I was, 32. And I was I born contra. when it happened, which is kind of yeah. crazy to think about. Yeah. So yeah, roughly you know similar ages. Uh, incredible work by Whitney Webb. Um, but to Rich's, Richard, to your point, you know, I, I know Maddie in the GTW community, she started a Discord server for a book club to go through the books. So I think we're going to start that maybe next Friday for those that are interested. And for those that don't have the time, you know, obviously audiobooks, that's huge, especially if you travel in a car a lot, you know, just keep it on until I consumed a lot of my information, especially in regards to um, the research I'm interested in. And uh, if you don't have time for that, there's nothing wrong with going to the specific facts you're interested in and sort of building it out non-linearly. You don't have to read the book necessarily from front to back, to your point. You can go to the index. You can look up some of the references you're interested in and start building it out from there. Much like start the way reading you about your Roy brain. Sure, right. There you go. Roy Cohn, what you talked about one last person. week. Yeah, absolutely. Let me know when you get the Trump and Epstein. There you go. And they, all of a sudden, it'll branch out much like the way in which you built your brain model. It wasn't a linear process. No, right? of course not. Learning, real you learning, natural learning is not a linear process. It's a non-linear process that has linear outcomes, meaning you can make a clear decision and take uh, actions that get you from A to B. But the process of delineating how that's all going to happen, that's very non-linear. That's right. You think forward, you realize you don't have a resource. Who can we ask? Oh, do we have that? We're going to go get it. Okay, let's try again. Oh, we don't have this or we didn't make this. Oh, let's make this improvement. Okay, this, the cord's too short. Let's get an extension, right? Like yes. I almost I almost threw away these adapters the other day. I probably did. Uh, they connect RJ 45s together and we almost mm. needed them last night at 3 a.m. in the morning yeah, when we were we trying did. to fix the internet situation. Oh, I was, like, I was thinking about that. Yeah. I'm like, man, we right? can actually See? use some of those adapters. Yeah, the things that have to go on to make this show work. But Unlike also, Crowder, I don't think Crowder is running his own uh, RJ 45 cables, you know? Yeah, I think he has a couple of employees that will help out yeah, with that little operation. I know he wants to grow it, as he said when he was interviewing Alex, but, you know, he's not in a bad position, I would say. Yeah. Um, but I think we're right behind Crowder for uh, comedy with analysis, long form <laughs> content. We're right that's below one way to look where at he's it. at. That, you know, it is yeah. one way to look at it. That's the yes. way I was offering. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. I, I would also point out that when you read non-linearly, reference the index, use the, rather the index as reference, um, it might actually help stimulate your uh, memory paradoxically better than just reading it from front to back um, because you're starting with inputs that you're very interested in or you might have familiarity with and that will also help to form associations in your own memory as you branch out and form these larger connections from this reading from maybe starting the middle of the book or at the end of the book, wherever the reference leads you to. You and might go to the index and find a guy like, I don't know, Jules Kroll and say, yeah, that's sure. interesting kind of character. I'm not so sure about this situation. Let me learn more about what he's done in his life. And, what about the uh, bar family? That was interesting, right? Well, that was Only pretty interesting and, too. Yeah. And right. his dad. Yeah. How That's people best. come to power and how there's multi generational aspects to it. And, uh, you know, it's a big show and we're not in it. It's a big club. We're big not in club. it. That is they right. beat us with so, both. Incredible research. They got incredible but... production value. I mean, look at those Marvel comic movies, but we can't find out who Epstein's clients were. I mean, ama amazing. We can do anything over. Sorry, we can't do anything for you over here. I don't know. Human intellect works over here at Disney and Marvel and things like that, but not over here on 
law and jurisprudence. Yeah, it seems as though it's only allowed to work in certain industries. Mm. That means it's a slave, right? It's not free. Mm. Otherwise, it would work in all instances. Yeah. Or, yeah, there'd be equal opportunity in regards to the meritocracy associated with each one and actually being able to express one's creative energy in those other industries. But no, it's all one-sided. Interestingly, Do we all have equal opportunity to have our uh, lives subjected to the will of ignorant people? Is that an equal thing too? Or is that just for some people? (laughs) Asking for a friend. Uh Uh-huh. Just off screen right here. He's right over there. No comment. No, that's you're behind the wall. I'm not alluding to you. I was I was pointing over here to the droid uh-huh. that keeps me cool in this room. It, it has feelings, nice. but it can't speak back to us. Oh, but don't worry. Under they're gonna, the electromagnetic consciousness act of 2027, like I have to treat it as a person, and they prefer they them over here. But that's robot logistics and and robot. So that's what they're preparing movement. us for, right? For the trans. Right. Uh, actually, that's, that's, that's the inversion of reality because they they're getting trans identity with uh, robots. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Who wrote the book on it? Who I wasn't sure how to address, so I, I I don't know what to do about that. But he 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 covered that story in the past couple of weeks. Look at transhumanism plus Burmese, you'll find it. It's like uh, in regards to almost like the postmodern credos, where they're the complete inversion of reality is the preparation for the transhumanistic goal of the con the essentially expressing contradictory states of being or manifesting contradictory states of being, where you know, um, where one could arguably through AI be is or isn't in regards to uh, what's. Well, it's so contradictory. It's like my mind can't even parse through the contradictions. Because no all right, let me take you here for a second. Let me it's take basically, you. Let me take you boating. Like you ever see them do those big races where the boat capsizes, but it's specially weighted hull lets it flip back up or go all the way around, mm. right? And they keep going, right? So uh, my question is this: Is there something like because the uh, the Constitution is kind of like our ship of state guidance? And is there something if the Constitution got turned upside down and inverted? that it would keep turning around and essentially write itself after a period of time. Might we just be in that little capsized position right now? And if we don't panic, it's just going to turn itself right up or, or have they turned those safety systems off and they're preventing things from uh, maybe being judiciously balanced out and they're trying to hold America under and drown it and sink it. We'll have to wait and see, but I will wait and see. Uh, we'll address this last Hold point. Hold your breath, everybody. That, um, Wait and see week by week. What I'm trying to say in regards to the postmodern credos in regards to transhumanism is like the idea that you can upload your consciousness or you can change your biology in some capacity uh, to manifest what essentially is not a part of one's uh, genetic structure in regards to the way in which they came to be at, on this earth, in this galaxy, in this universe. So in other words, they can they can prepare the person mentally to get ready psychologically for the ability to become whatever they want to be, I guess, in that capacity, whether it's done digitally or whether it's done through uh, machine interfaces or implants, nanotechnology. That's what I mean by it. So there's a psychologically preparing us with this sort of this destructive and contradictory philosophy for embracing this idea of transcending our biology. What do you say? Uh, what did the Yuval Noah Harari say? Uh, Homo Deus? Man is God. That's what they want to move toward. Of course, that's, I such a fo- that's such a folly. It's such a folly. It's going to backfire. In some sounds way. like you know, a talking- bunch of hooey. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like a bunch of hooey. Talking to someone um, of Whitney's age made me realize this, that back around the time she was born, uh, they had the movie War Games and they had the oh, movie yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. 
And in both movies, they're able to use a computer and change some grades, right? So back then you could change biology grades. Today, you could actually change biology in your DNA, in your mRNA. That's the point I'm trying to make. That's a a lot. Like, it's not just like, hey, it's a graphic uh, calculator because it went from calculator to like solar calculator to graphics calculator to uh, CERN. Like, there's big gap technology going on in the past 30, 40 years. (laughs) Big is an understatement there. But don't read this book about the technotronic era and America's role or non-role in it back before I was born written. That's oh, sorry. not only that book, but her at the end of the interview you did the uh, the amalgamation of connections in regards to transhumanism and t- I won't go into the technology specifically. It's like the end of the eighteen twelve over Epstein. <laughs> it's true. That's kind of true. That's an interesting analogy. Pretty good. Yeah, we Very might well even said. just leave it there for that story. That's just the way. Good way to end it. Eighteen twelve yeah. overture here. You can uh, cut that in. Probably get some. This should be any copyright now. Um, all right, so we got a long way to go Let's and a short time to get there. Board. I'm gonna close yeah, the bandit. <laughs> Sorry. And what do you think, LD, uh, of the stories that we have left to cover? You know the the main stories that we were talking through. And Tony, you got the outline too. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think's? Uh, what do you think we got to hit in the uh, time between here and out? I want to make sure we play that. Uh, the Star Chamber clip from Aaron and Melissa Dykes because that's not anywhere oh, yeah. probably in the plans. See, I had to recall that from like a couple hours ago. Like, yeah, Star Chamber, that's a theme. A so I want to bring that full circle so people actually see that like they're, they're and the reason they're mentioning it is because of King Chucky the third. Like KC3 is the reason they're bringing it up. So if you don't think it was a thing before he took the seat, it might be a thing even more so uh, now that he's here. in the big chair with his you know, uh, right hand Sausage so, finger Klaus. <laughs> oh god, that's disgusting. In <laughs> so many ways, disgusting. it's disgusting. Yeah, that's so fucking disgusting. That's what you get on this show at two thirty in the a.m. After yeah, a full day of working really with working. autonomy students, well, I come I, here and I would throw in a vote for that uh, T Lab clip. Uh, we got yeah, some we help from the community. To uh, it's yeah. about fifteen minutes long, um, but I think it's it's pretty important. Let's T Lab it up the... with Ryan Christian. Is that what we got? Yes, sir. Oh, and thank well, you, um, Sugar Cube and Biscotti. Thank you, Sugar Cube. I think it's Sugar Cube. Not just used to carry LSD anymore. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Don't. Yeah, just yeah. Hey, there was a time. Oh, not good in details. So. Are right, you want to hit that clip and then? Uh... Oops. That gives a whole new meaning to the spoonful of sugar making the medicine say... go down. <laughs> sure does. I mix metaphors live. I'm here all night. Try the veal. It's a comedy show. Um, it is. We have to say that because we live I, in an age where I, I think we should it's dangerous cover to the, speak the, truth the, to power. The, the two would be if there's two things to cover. Here's honorable mention, real quick. I'd say the Elon. Oh, we can Musk. cover more than two. Well, but, but then we have. But then also, Aaron and Melissa Dykes oh, yeah, is yeah. covered. We got justify stuff yeah, with facts. So Elon Musk nuked Ukrainian government. That's a temple thing. But then so he he, goes, he reneged. Yeah, so that's not because what happened was the guy was. was like, you know, it's it's lost in translation with the texts, right? So Elon's like, hey, how about peace? And they're like, fuck off, bro. And they're like, ha ha. But he missed the ha ha, so he shut off their Starlink, and then they had to call him on the landline. So and it was like, all crackly, and they're like, bro, dude, we were laughing when we wrote that. And he's like, oh, okay, reversed, you're back on. That's all. <laughs> I'm sure Move it went along. down exactly like that. Um, 
the FBI exposed trying to bribe ex-foreign spy with $1 million to dig up dirt on Trump and shocking revelation. Oh, we got to show that. And right, we also got to show the whistleblower because bit- there's a clip of the whistleblower I just saw earlier today. And yeah. as a whistleblower who's been through similar circumstances, I found him to be credible. That sounds like the order of operations of raising concerns and getting retaliation and raising concerns, getting retaliation, and then questioning your integrity, whether or not you're going to comply with that bullshit or you're going to blow the whistle. So if, he's, also, a, if he's a fake, at least somebody wrote him a good script there. I would also say legit. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I agree with you there. Um, I would also say we should, if we have time, we should cover that Pfizer, the EU, Oh, we um, got to cover all that, dude. So, we're, so there's we're four major clips. It. There's four major clips, but we just two thirty in the morning, so we're gonna have to. Prioritize I can turn them down because I know where all the the nuggets are in those clips, so we don't have to play the entirety. We can just be like, yeah. look, I want to hear the first, third, and fifth person with in this the, panel. Yeah, and, with the, right, because yeah. no one with else. The Pfizer really that should be five minutes. That's that. There's a major, especially at one of an hour in about an hour seven that you found that I have in there. I think that'll cover that. We only need five minutes of that. Yeah. The other ones. Now, the Tim Pool clip, maybe we just play five or 10 minutes of it to get the gist of what the FBI. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because there's a 20 minute clip. And Tim then... does 20 minute clips. We only need 10 minutes of news in that format. So let's, thanks for the extra. Let's go to the T. Which do you want to save the Aaron Melissa Dykes for the last clip? Or do you want to do that first and then come back for the other one? How do you want to? There's four clips, uh, including Aaron and Melissa Dykes' presentation in regards to what is. And that? does that count what LD had mentioned earlier? Yes. When we first started asking. Okay, yes. cool. All right, so um, King of have we queued up Aaron and Melissa Dykes where they're talking about the Star Chamber? Because I was watching it at a live preview. I didn't get so that far like into backwards it. time. You have to... So like 15, 20 minutes into what I was seeing as the premiere. So it had like a, a backwards time of I don't know because the premiere wasn't done yet earlier today at 5 o'clock. All right. And oh, if you how... think that's too nebulous, we can play another clip while we find the exact time code that would suit the audience. Go ahead and play the T Lab clip. We'll come back. T Lab, that's right. That's, we'll what, try I, to that's find what I was trying to figure out. Right, T Lab, and then we'll find the time code for that, and then we'll keep moving through the news. Who's Ryan Christian? The news. Let's Here's an interesting on. video, and this overlapped in my mind with the bio biomass discussion, or just simply, you know, you guess biomass specifically. TikToker exposes the truth behind garbage feeding. Basically, this is feeding garbage to pigs. And then we eat those pigs. Watch for yourself. TikToker exposed how plastics are getting into pig feed. Now, I should be clear, not just garbage, because pigs eat lots of stuff, but plastics and dangerous things that then could potentially translate into what you eat. Stuff like this. It says they fired me today for spreading this, basically for exposing this. Just put it in here. Plastic and all. Don't even matter. Plastic, cardboard boxes, pallets, everything. Ground into this right here. Guys, that's biomass. That's what that is. I mean, other than like the pellet version of it, they're grinding up everything, plastics, everything, masks. Like you saw, there's a, there's masks in that picture. The point is you're taking things that are supposed to be biohazards, grinding them up into a paste or whatever it is, and feeding that to animals that then people consume. I mean, what if there's some kind of weird mRNA vaccine overlap in there? I, I, who knows? It's just trash. The point is, that's what he's concerned about. He says they send this stuff to be eaten by the pigs, and then we eat the pigs. They send this stuff off to be uh, eaten by the hogs, and then the hogs are killed, and then we can kill. I felt like I had to tell the world. Y'all believe me now. Walk the line. So 
of that big shit called the grind. The grind's it out and turn it into that shit. And then the hog eats it. This is what it looks like when it's done. I took the video down like, I've never seen nothing like this. This can't be like legal. Says, the practice of feeding retail food waste to animals is known as garbage feeding. This is an FDA fact sheet. It's legal in 27 states. Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. You know, occupied territories. But the legality of including packaging from food waste is less clear. A 2004 publication from the Association of American Feed Council. Where is it right there? Come on. Oh, from the from the Association of American Feed Control Officials. It includes plastics as a list of substances that are legally used in U.S. animal feed. Now, look, you can make an argument for why it might be important to make use of these things that are otherwise piling up in areas we don't want. But that's not the way you treat a problem. That's treating a symptom. If we want to stop the problem, you stop producing the garbage, right? You stop overusing plastic. But this is the same point as before. You, address, you attack organic farmers instead of the people actually causing the problem. So in this case, the problem is not finding a place for it. The problem is stopping the use and the overuse of how dangerous and problematic these things are. But it all falls back to the overuse of oil. That's the same reason. These are oil, that's oil-based petroleum products like our pharmaceuticals and everything else on the sun, it seems. And that's the, pro, and that's the point. And that they have no interest in going away from that, despite the argument. That's why the UK, as I keep pointing out, has made oil and gas green under the ESG direction. Only for them, though, not you. But this is dangerous. I told you guys. That are allowed in animal feed in America. So let's look down here. What does it say? Plastics. Plastics, plastics, plastics. I told you. Okay, let's look a little more. What does it say? Other metal compounds. Restaurant food waste. Contaminated, adulterated food. For those of you who don't know what that means, that's horrible. You know what blows me away, guys? That he missed by far the most important part. You see what it says right there? Antibiotics, byproducts of drug manufacture, other medical components, minerals, vitamins. My God, that's, that's the story, guys. They're literally allowing antibiotics, medical, treat, medical byproducts of pharmaceutical drug manufacture, and vitamins and other things inside the feed they give to pigs they then allow to be fed to you. My God, that's crazy. So it says that there's a ruling that says they're not allowed to use these in certain feed, but they do anyway. I kept hearing, that's a recycling plate. That's where they take the trash at. I'm like, are you serious? Like, I'm showing you step by step. Like, in these videos, I'm telling you what you're looking at. So like, All right, see, this isn't the point is always, right? That he's showing, he's showing people, and they just go, no, 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 that's this. Oh, okay, so you're ignoring what you're looking at and pretending, and you're just feeding me the narrative you're supposed to say, right? No, 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 they're safe and effective. <laughs> that's what's happening. The reality is they're doing things you're not supposed to. 
and nobody seems to care because we're apparently in the wild west at this moment about all sorts of things where it's rampant lawlessness across the board. And all they want to do is enforce on the average people and not the corporations that are overlapping with the government today. That's crazy. Welcome to your antibiotic-riddled, pharmaceutical drug-riddled food products being pumped out by the government. Good times. Now, this is the human biomass now reality point that shows you that they're already using, it's already happening, where they're burning bodies in crematoriums, and this is specifically in Bath, England, in a couple of the locations, and using that as energy. That, it, that's human biomass. And it's what I predicted before, that when he first brought this up, and let alone, you show, you, big surprise, that's already being discussed. But the point is the overlap of how they can use these things for other food sources. And I just think that's a very interesting point to make. As again, the first, the first major evaluation of Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's controversial efforts to expand capital-intensive high-input agriculture in Africa found, shockingly, the 15-year effort has failed to achieve its goals of improving food security, which means it either stayed the same or got worse, just like in India. And yet, here we are letting them do it with genetic manipulation for injections and everything else. It's all genetically modified organisms. It's the same problem. These are the same people. Here he is again. We need more money for seed innovation. So we're doing it all over again, apparently? Exactly what everybody's asking for, right? Seems to be suspicion around this area. Uh, there is a lack of uniform or harmonized regulation around the world. What's holding it back? Well, we had the great success of the Green Revolution uh, hmm. in the 1970s, where India, in particular, uh, when they were able to get fertilizer with the new wheat, the new rice, the new maize, uh, uh, defied expectations of food shortage and actually raised calories per person because of this productivity. So that, you know, it's a miracle. Uh, some foundations at that time, Ford, Rockefeller, were partly involved in funding the warlock. We need to do that again, but this time, you know, we know that sometimes fertilizer can cause negative effects. We know we need to get to the smaller farmers. We need to think about ecosystems that are unique. Uh, I mean, it's, just, it's incredible that we're letting these people speak on these topics. You failed repeatedly, and you're talking about seed innovation, right? The, the group overlapping with genetically modified organisms, the Monsanto direction, the Terminator seeds, all this stuff that's very clearly re- I've proven this, by the way, despite their dismissing it. Even Monsanto's own statements say that they did do this, it just was never used. The point is they created stuff. They, I mean, the Food Inc. Document, documentary proves this. That you have people having these seeds blown over to their fields, and they get patented, and they, get, they lose their farm. And the point is that these are manipulated, genetically modified organisms, and they, you have to buy seed from Monsanto every year. This, these are the people we want to control the future. They're controlling the food supply. These, these people are the problem. It, I mean, there's just no way around it. And here's what they're trying to create. MRNA meat is on the way. Look at this, a mixed vaccine burger. That's the joke, obviously, but this is not a joke in regard to what's actually happening. MRNA vaccination of animals expected to begin by the end of the year, right? So now we're going to have animals with MRNA. It's just like the idea of 
the blood crossover. There is an issue here, as we just talked about in the context of of the other, uh, where was it? In this, in general, the idea that these things are in the animals. The mRNA specifically is a provable point. Right? This is something that can be transferred, and, and nobody seems to care about this. Or how about the, the fact that we're talking about vaccinating them, which could mean spike proteins as well. No big deal, though. But here's another example. Would you eat milk and meat made in a lab? And so here's our point. This is what they're driving you into. Now, I think I'm going to wrap it here. I'm going to rapidly go through some of these last points. Now, one of the main points I wanted to get to is here's a positive, right? Here is what's happening in Maine. And I'm so adamant about how important this direction is. October 2nd, right to food. It says, in the U.S., runaway inflation and out-of-sight food prices seem to be a new uncomfortable norm. And I, I mean, that's just because they're driving that into reality, but that's what's happening. But Maine, the state in the United States, the first state to embed in its constitution, what they're calling the right to food. Now, I was a little concerned with the way they were framing it, but listen to what they described this as. Pamela Young says, quote, I think we should encourage people to grow their own food and have lots of homesteaders, right? Exactly the opposite of where I thought this was going. And I think we can thrive together and take care of each other in small farms and small homesteads rather than these big corporate farms. Thank God this is my point about how local, even maybe state level, you can find people that are actually fighting for you. That's why I think the lower you go, the elections and the, and the process there has more effect. From a presidential, state congress, or you know, congressional level, I do not think your vote matters. We'll get into that more as we get closer to the fake elections coming up. She supports the recent right to food amendment to the state constitution. It declares that everyone has a right to produce and consume food of their own choosing for their own health. Love it. It, pa- it passed with bipartisan support in Maine's legislature and 61% of the vote. Supporters say federal policies and corporate ownership of farms, processors, and food in general could make it harder for people to produce and buy what can be harvested locally. I love it. I mean, I'm just I'm so glad to see something happening like this where people, even from a government level, are seeing the problem. Now, I want to reiterate this again. I hope you'll read the entire article. I wrote this actually long before this, I believe. It was, I said this last time. I, I'm pretty sure I wrote this before 2016. I usually put a marker in there when I republish it, but I don't see it. But let's just say October 10th, 2016. Ending food waste can solve world hunger, and it's where France was taking a direction in, in the right direction. But the main point is the, the misunderstanding about the reality of the food supply. This is easily provable today as well. And it's only got, I mean, it was, it's got to be slightly different. It has to be because things have changed in 2016, but it's still the same point. The world already produces more than one and a half times enough food to feed everyone on the planet. That's enough to feed 10 billion people. We're still not there. The population peak expected by 2050. Currently, one-third of the food produced worldwide ends up in the trash every year for a variety of reasons. The United States is by far the worst, with about 60 tons of food wasted annually. This means that world hunger could literally be solved by simply utilizing the 33% of the world's food that is wasted. Now, I think I accidentally said that it was the U.S. throws away enough to feed the world. At, at the time, I meant the context of the world, but the United States being the worst. This is my point to before about speaking off the cuff and mistakenly you know, making you know, 
and being framed as fake, whatever. The point is we have a right to be wrong and I make mistakes like anybody. But the point is, this is the truth. And the reason this stuff is thrown away is for a variety of ridiculous reasons, one of the most insulting of which is that they're not perfectly shaped or colored. We've been conditioned to see this perfect display, and the problem is they throw away misshapen food and then dump bleach on it so poor people can't eat it. That's a real thing, despite the fact that there's been legal precedent to show that they're not legally accountable for food that they give to people via donation. Yet, it still doesn't happen. There's coordination there, in my opinion. But the main point is, currently, Americans waste almost... 40% of their food, this was 2016, I'm sure it's worse than that today, that's $165 billion worth every year, about 20 pounds per person every month. This wasted, yet perfectly edible food, could fill 730 football stadiums. The percentage of waste has increased by about 50% since 1974, in a time when California at the time, and still probably today, is struggling with its own resources, throwing away usable product is a negligent waste of the state's labor and natural resources that went into its production, such as water. This gravely needed sustenance then rots in landfills. Now think about that context in the water problem in California. If you weren't throwing away that much food every year, you might save that water. The bottom line is, guys, we're misled about the reality of the food problem so people like Bill Gates can stand there and tell you we need to change everything for the interest of our own agenda. Okay, so I think that uh, one of the most profound things in that story, aside from like the content of the story, was Ryan's observation that he has a right to be wrong. I, I wrote it down. I think that should be a t-shirt. I think that's something we need to be able to defend. If you don't have the right to be wrong, you don't have the right to learn. You don't have the right to challenge authority or authoritative narratives with actual evidence that might contradict such things. Aside from that, I think people like us, we see that and we're like, oh, I'm going to find a better, cleaner food source because that looks like mm, set up for failure, whoever's eating that stuff. And then the second thing I observed is not only did they make people wear the theater masks during the COVID, but that turned into a bunch of pollution brought to you by mandates who claim by people you know, mandates from people who claim to get rid of the pollution. All those microplastics in the masks and all that stuff now going to be in animals, now going to be in people's food, right? Cause they don't care about the animal. The animal's going to slaughter and they don't care about you. Cause what, you, what, what are you going to do? What's your future? You'll get nothing and like it. You'll eat the bugs while they eat. Uh, I mean, they're making 3D printed steaks for themselves over there at World Economic Forum. Klaus isn't eating the bugs. Go look it up. World Economic Forum 3D printed steak. See how that works. Because they know they're poisoning the food supply. It seems from their actions and the evidence. That's not my opinion. I'm just observing what the story just was as a and conscious human no, being who this eats is food. No, yeah. I mean, this is nothing new as well. Let's not act as though this is I'm not a great report by T-Lav and expose by that individual in the video who exposed what's going on at these feedlots and the biomass production, what's going into um, the creation of this biomass that's being that that is being fed to the cattle and the livestock. And that's not general. wrong, but filming it is. We live in that world already. <laughs> that's the, really the difference at this point. But this stuff has been this stuff has been going on for quite some time. I mean, I remember researching stories very similar to this going back over 10, well, around 10 years ago when I was working with you guys back. Yeah, in the absolutely. System. I'm not saying it's, just, new it's, evidence it's ramped helps up. It's understand. Yeah, oh, right. absolutely. It's exacerbated since the, the pandemic. I'm sure it's much worse, especially with the supply chain, especially with the costs uh, increasing due to inflation and due to lack of production and all these factors that are contributing. It's like a hundred fold uh, increase in surgical masks in the, in the dumps. 
Yeah, you got it. Just and also, it's and their bullshit policies that have nothing to do with anything doing with your health. And we know that they don't do compliance. anything at all as far as stopping SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. When they when they uh, put the masks on the Gitmo oh, prisoners man. in their orange jumpsuits, it's it's for their health. It's not anything to do to subjugate them. Farmers for a long time have been under pressure for finding cheaper food sources. I remember a long time ago there was a. Um, uh, I think a truck spilled a bunch of gummy worms that were then being used to feed oh, yeah. cattle. To that was something we finishing had to, the cattle, right? Yeah, I remember that was a long time. Hey, ago man, I'll take the gummy, the, gu- the gummy yeah. uh, bear finished cattle of ten years ago over plastics, antibiotics, right? and all the other junk. But that stuff was already quick. in there because, like, the bigger concern I have that wasn't covered um, is the use of mRNA vaccines in livestock is going oh, live a big market Tony. within, within the, that. within the, the animals can't of... talk back and there's no vares for animals, bro. That's a big market. Don't begrudge them poisoning the food supply system forever, for everyone. That's going live in the, in the next couple of weeks. So for everyone that is afraid of, uh, the mRNA juice or has concerns about it, I shouldn't say, you know, in regards to safety, effective, uh, efficacy, all those sorts of issues. Well, it's going into our food supply. And at this point, it's very, you have to essentially know your farmer, know where you're sourcing your, your, your food from, and also be wary when you travel, like what, what you're eating, uh, because that's going to be a reality. Uh, I just saw an article about it. I believe I have it up on many of the, all the different web tabs I have open right now in regards to that becoming a reality very, very soon. I mean, I'm talking within the month, um, mRNA vaccines are now going to be the platform used for the majority of vaccines uh, administered to livestock. So chickens and cows and pigs and, you know, um, goats and sheep and deer and all that, whatever, you know, ducks, whatever. They're playing Bees. God. Could be anything at this Could point. Anything. Picture so- a creator without the wisdom or consciousness aspect doing a whole bunch of stuff. How's that going to turn out? They sure think they're wise and Frankenstein. Uh, go ahead, Justin. You said you were popping hey. in. A piece of historical context as well, uh, laid out in one of these food, food documentaries that I'll find a link to to the show card. Uh, Monsanto, where we're talking about them being a pollution, I think it's worth pointing out that they spent nearly a decade looking for a microbiotic that was resistant to their poison. And then they had to go through a process of either electrolysis, uh, shooting it with gold, or making it pathologically or genetically corrupt. They, they had to actually damage the organism to make it receive the new genetic modification correct um and bind it with uh, an e coli that they found um and so these are other you know in, in my estimations it's like here we have other human beings that are acting on the capacity as pathogens in a biological environment um so i mean it's interesting that they have to damage either the dna or the environment itself in order for the expression of the the microbiota to change like that's curious right seems like there's some self-correction going on unless you have or they don't know how it works and they're false yeah well i know the way in which they came up with genetic modification is essentially using lasers and genetically damaging the gna or the excuse me the dna sequences of you know various plants in this case corn and soy and alfalfa and things like that so the scene in Idiocracy where they're doing the intelligence test and they're like trying to pound the square peg in the round hole. <laughs> that, this is what Justin just described that. Like they don't really know. They just have to break it to fix it is how they have to do it. They don't understand how it works, but they can fix it and make it better. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm just, I'm back off people. Like, you know, I'm just saying that doesn't make, if it makes sense to you, write me an essay. 
express yourself verbally. Nature is way too effective to be of good use in a 21st century business plan. Yeah, let's not yeah, understand nature. Good, let's just improve upon it. it. That's a good description. Wait, let me look up because uh, there, there is a definition in this book I should look up well now said. that I think about it. See here. Oh, nature, like what, what? Like what do you? Situation. What definition? Well, it's in the section of R, E, T. Uh, <laughs> this is a comedy a, show. I forgot about that already. T, oh reticulation, reticule, mm, restraint. No. So uh, rethink. No, nope, that's not it. Retinol. No. Nope. Retire. Well, we're getting close. Retort. Hmm. 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 How woke is that? Retardant. Okay. Retardant. He is, and that's why he has to pay a billion dollars. <laughs> that's not very woke. I mean, how could you charge a billion dollars to a retarded individual? In the verbal form, not the noun form. To retard is to hold back the development or progress of someone or something. Do we see that happening on a mass scale in any way? I think civilization is being retarded by those in positions of power who lead from ignorance and not from knowledge, experience, skills, and the consent of the informed whom they govern over. And I wouldn't say it's just... And it was a verbal form. That's the verb, not the noun. Don't try to take it out of context. It's not just what you think, too. It's uh, what you're able to present with facts. So you have a lot of facts backed up behind that theory of yours. I'm just it's the Queen's English. King's English. King <laughs> Chucky III's English book. I'm sure they'll get the updated version uh, with his name in it and, and what whatnot. But uh, as, as powerful as the king might be, Oxford's a thousand-year authority, which gives, gives the king power. And legitimacy to rule in the first. It's all place. that privy council, bro. It's a privy council thing. It's, so, you know, yeah. it's not the king, right? Because I've always said prior to King Chucky the Third, just kings in general. I don't fault the person who thinks they're mandated by God to rule over everybody. I fault Blind all the kings. other people who know better and who give that person it. legitimacy through saying, "Yes, that's true." That's here's a crown. Exactly. The Sit belief on this chair and in don't the crown. Move. Let us control who sits around you and has access to you and you're in control. Maybe it's part yeah. of the simulation testing out the rest of us to make sure that we outgrow that obnoxious. I would like to think that this simulation is an intelligence test and there's cool people on the That's other side. The douchebags to, yeah. stay, you know, yeah, pr- pretty much where they're at. I agreed. Just wait for the next bus. It'll be short. <laughs> now that is not related to the verb. Don't be... Oh These are completely different sentences and paragraphs in the transcript. Yeah, Your Honor. If you want to be comforted, you can always go to Costco. Welcome to Costco. I love you. I love you too, Costco. Although I haven't ever... Really, I don't think I've been to a Costco. You can get your mRNA meat there soon, I'm sure. <laughs> there we go. But their brand is called Mr. Na, so you don't notice it's the mRNA meat. Hmm. It just says yeah, Mr. Na. That's very convenient. <laughs> Very convenient. Yeah. Spaces and commas can really change context. And you know, we call that amphiboly in uh, logic terms, you know, the ambiguity of language, especially written. And yeah, because like, like just a, if you leave a comma out of a sentence, like people are like, it's punctuation is no big deal. Oh, all right. Tell oh, me if it's a big deal or not. Logic horse. Yeah. See how much of a deal. I heard you helped your uncle Jack comma off the horse, or I heard you 
help your uncle jack off the horse. Now, which of those might be slander or libel and get you a billion dollar fine? And which of those might be an accurate description about you and the, your uncle jack getting on and off the horse? He needed a hand. No comment. Uh, it's like 97. Now, if you watch, where you place that comma, if you watch yourself some Yellowstone, you can have Jimmy pay off that joke and he can tell you take it afterwards, too. <laughs> and that's a classic example of infibulate. That's not bad. 3 a.m. reference. That like is that. pretty good. Yeah. That's funny if you've watched it. And the not, reference I have is it. not funny. It's very academic, but that's a funny reference. That's a perfect description yeah. of what Amphibly is. So kudos. Hell yeah. You got to know who the character Jimmy is and what what is uh, his what is role at the the three nines ranch or whatever that is. The four nines, the five nines. Oh, I forget. It's been a while since I saw that episode. So I think we're ready for LD. Uh, back me up. You've seen Yellowstone. It's probably six nines. I can't remember either. I think a uh, new season starting soon. That would have been a funnier name for the ranch, but maybe a little too lewd for their intended audience. They should have named it Zora Ranch. It's a little too literal. I mean, I don't understand. I mean, I don't understand like what the dude in the mask and the cape had to do with Epstein. Can someone piece that together? Why were they at Zorro's ranch? <laughs> oh, what? Wait a minute. What? That was Bill Richardson's ranch, the governor of New Mexico. Oh, What's it have to do with sword fight? No, don't act. Not that type of show. Can't explain that one either. It is a comedy show. It's everyone. like a Lindros thing. It is helping to remind yeah. everyone that. Yes, speaking which, uh, behind, being behind Crowder is not in a position I want to be in. Sorry, probably not in front either, but maybe side by side. Side by side. Neither above nor below in this mm. relationship of yeah. freedom. Yeah. Neither master nor slave. There you Might go. just be a spectator. <laughs> don't know what you're doing over there. <laughs> Time to check out Charles the First, maybe, and the Privy Council. I like making and... jokes that only people who have seen something thirty episodes can get, because like for those five or six people, like we res we resonate for a moment there. What bro, you saying, you, it's it's a bro moment, you know. We're broing out, broing out. Uh, time to get to uh, KC one, right? Privy Council, King Chucky the First. Spoiler alert! I'm pretty sure he uh, met his demise at the hands of the people. Huh. King Chucky the second. I wonder, I wonder if they've learned from that, Rich. Do you think they've learned from that? Probably not. So what they do mm. is uh, this is a video from True Stream Media. Let me set it up. It's from earlier today. It was premiered. I think they probably put it on their uh, subscriber only channel because it referred to when the king is coronated. I'm pretty sure he's already coronated. And they go through the history of how he purposely he has like five names, but he made sure it's King Charles. So he's King Charles the third. And there is a, a, an intentional symbolic legacy that's being carried forward by the king using that name and serving in that position at this time in history so it's only very interesting and i don't want to take away or like you know blow all that fine work they did at the beginning but i do think this particular section with the star chamber even without the additional context can be understood and people could take uh stock in comparing on your scales right you're going to take an assessment of the situation this thing from the 1600s that should have gone bye-bye when America was created because we have the fifth amendment. Uh, we got this right uh, not to search and seizure and uh, not to incriminate ourselves not with to the government under, ourselves, right. under being in torturous situations. Some of the January 6th people been under held indictment. in inhumane situations. Oh, like yeah. there are terrorists from Afghanistan from 20 years ago. Right. So that's, that's going on. It's the relevant subject and we're taking yeah. some history and we're smashing it into those current events and we're going to see what everyone thinks. And it's up to you what you think. I'm not telling you what to think. I'm just showing you 
how to think by comparing and contrasting, which is the only way the brain can think. And when you're denied one of those sides of compare and contrast, that's control. And when you have multiple options and can use your five senses to assess what evidence does exist and what's meaningful and substantial to the argument, that's called self-reliance, thinking for yourself, logic, reason, all the great things of freedom, entrepreneurism that's ever happened in this world are responsible because of those things manifesting through conscious individuals. And without that, you're going to have something that looks like 1984 plus Brazil plus idiocracy plus the Gulag Archipelago, which is so awful they would never take a take the time plus to make Brave a movie New about World it. Plus 1984, they'd be want to throw in some book references. Like they made Doctor Zhivago, but they don't really ever show you Gulag what Archipelago, about, what, the 12 what about year the series. Island of Doctor uh, Moreau? Moreau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, oh, that's just that. H.G. Wells and eugenics and transhumanism in the late 1800s, Tony. There you There's go. no need to know about that with what's going on today with the Julian Huxley yeah, legacy of UNESCO and the there. World Eugenics Forum, uh, bringing, bringing us uh, Klaus Schwab and the Great Reset. And you'll take the, the mRNA Institute. and like it, and if not, you'll eat it and become it. Don't forget about the Golden take Institute. It. I mean, uh, the eugenics. Take it. We're going to call this the Take It podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm going to talk to Senna about her role in finding that clip. <laughs> yeah, it was a hard clip to find because, like, it's a scary internet search. You have to type in have New York plus take it, and all sorts clip. of things come up on the internet when you do that. So, <laughs> Senna's pretty brave to find that clip. Oh boy, I'm gonna have to reprimand her. Not, not what we're looking for to find it. First, uh, finding such things. Yeah, it's a gem. We'll keep just. <laughs> There's there's that's like a hundred clips on the soundboard, but we'll play that one Christ. five times a show. Yeah, we will. That's true for every show. And really, we don't even have to think about it while we're doing that because it's like an automatic thing that just happens. You don't, don't have to think about it, dude. See, and every time, like Ethan Klein, he's like always like five seconds behind, which is very Ethan Klein of you, right, Ethan? Thank you for that that time. Uh, it would be cool to get Alex and Ethan on at the same time, but I don't think they talk to each other. So limited. <laughs> See what you know, a lot of people sitting in the participants gallery and, and Zoom and everything. Ethan now and only they talks unmute. to Steven Crowder, apparently. So, you know, when it's all set up nice and proper. Or I'm not even going to address that. It's a waste of <laughs> my breath. All right. So getting to the things that we want to make sure we play into the record for this time capsule and this week in history and grand theft worldage that these people are carrying out. Um what, what do we have left on the table? Well, let's do you want to play the clip from Truth Stream Media? Or? Yes, please. But I oh, wanted yeah. to think about what we're going to do after oh, we play that clip. So after the clip, it comes down to uh, what did I mention? So obviously, there's the fight, the EU court, or not court, it's the EU. Um, oh, right, 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 right. Set okay. up the, talking about the Pfizer executives. Uh, that one's only going to be like five minutes, maybe. I just have a. We can it'll be five. Little... It'll be five minutes plus another five or eight minutes from the other clip of that. So EU. Oh right, cool. with uh, press for truth <clears throat> and Dix uh, talking about it. And then after that, there's we're going to have to skip over the Jake Tran documentary. I think he's talking about. What we can save that for next week. Yeah, yeah. That, I thought the same thing. It was really powerful um, though. And you wanted to cover the <clears throat> uh, Tim Pool story, or that's Tim Pool covered rather a story talking about the FBI exposing the uh, the one million dollar. Sort of one million dollars. Funny how the, steel the three zeros matter. But okay. <laughs> so billion, million. Uh, so those are really the two we it. have to get to, I would say, at this point. Right, oh, there's cool. also real quick, there's yeah. shout out to Jay Dyer. Obviously, there's the this is the real secret society behind the Great Reset. I don't think we'll get there. 
Um, but yeah, yeah he was kicking the and he was yeah. kicking the New World Order guys in the balls with the Fabian yeah. Socialist book he had, and I thought it was uh, a clip worthy uh, of merit. It's on the show it, card. So it's in the show card. You it it's in the intermission it. section. Yeah, and uh, more fine work come from Jay on the Fabians. I'm sure. So I want to watch it because I haven't watched that whole clip yet. But we another honorable mention is uh, Dr. Joseph Ladipo, um, the uh, Surgeon General of Florida. Yep. Obviously, the uh, risking his job and his Twitter account. It's a very interesting study that came out. Obviously, there's a lot of questions behind it. A lot of people pushing back, but very interesting. And there's a lot of circumstantial evidence beyond that study. Um, but. Tony, maybe to he's just like another, data. maybe he's just another white doctor from Florida who supports Trump. Sure. Um, I just uh, heard he's a, he's not, uh, yeah, he's, he's not, he doesn't he's definitely a doctor from Florida, but he doesn't fit that other category. So I guess they'd actually have to come up with some evidence against him instead of using his skin color or lack thereof against him in that situation. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bet after they figured that out, they probably gave him his Twitter account back. Might be, might be. I mean, it certainly hurts the woke narrative uh, that's being perpetuated. In the the culture, woke so. narrative hurts the woke narrative is what's yeah. going on. It's itself cannibalizing or rather cannibalizes itself. So snake eating its own tail or Boris style. Or- All right. Well, without further ado, let's go to Aaron and Melissa Dykes and their fine work over at the truth stream of media. And let's learn about the star chamber. Wah, wah, Do you want to just let da, it? Da, da, da. Oh, it's a James stop. Bond theme. Do you want to stop it like whenever it, what it's coming yeah. in and say? Cause I don't have like an f- official time. Stamp. No, we don't have an out time on it. We have an in time on it. Uh, Hopefully. They're in the 1600s of British history and there's some unfair dealings going on. Uh, and they'll explain it on their own. Cause that's what they do. We'll see how I did here. I think you did well already. Yes. It's going to be good. It's magical. Magical. And the whole idea that people had moved to the American colonies for greater religious freedom to avoid religious persecution, this is part of that story. The Star Chamber was the secretive extrajudicial body that ultimately went down in history for its reputation as a tool of political and social oppression that wielded arbitrary power was capable of levying accusations and and punishing those in their inquisition with or without the pretense of law. Even the U.S. Supreme Court has noted that the existence of the Star Chamber was a direct inspiration for the Fifth Amendment of the Bill of Rights. For example, the Star Chamber indicted Puritan minister Alexander Layton for authoring a book that referred to the Anglican institution of bishops as satanic. Layton's torture and abuse included 15 weeks in irons, in solitary confinement in an unheated cell open to snow and rain, described as being full of rats and mice. His hair fell out and his skin began peeling off. He was tied to a stake and whipped 36 times on the naked skin on his back with a heavy cord. He was placed in a pillory for two hours in the November snow. He was branded in the face, his nose was slit, his ears were cut off. And then he was sentenced to life and imprisonment. In fact, it's incredibly disgusting just how many stories there are about people's ears being cut off as punishment by the church under Charles I's reign. As Americans, we hear quite a bit in school about the pursuit of religious freedom by these early pilgrims and people coming over to the new American colonies. Not so much about the ears being cut off, though. 
Paying a spiritual tax through mandatory religious worship as a, quote, duty just for being a British subject to the crown of an absolute monarch tyrant has to be one of the highest forms of taxation without representation or consent that's even possible because it's a tax on your soul. It goes against your own conscience, your own beliefs. If you go through this grand remonstrance document more thoroughly than this summation permits, you will find corollaries to basically all of the first 10 amendments to the American Bill of Rights all over this thing. There's a long, thoroughly documented history of monarchs violating these inherent rights long before they were enshrined and put to paper after the American Revolutionary War. Obviously, there was a buildup here. Almost forgot to mention that news and media were only allowed under royal license, and all information, especially about the crown, was tightly controlled. When it comes to the Grand Remonstrance, it's surprising Charles I even felt the need to reply at all, but in his short response rejecting the Remonstrance, the king appeared to be the most upset that the House had directly printed copies for public distribution, noting that he was, quote, very sensible of the disrespect, end quote, of allowing the commoners to even know what had been said at all, than he was about actually responding to any of the specific allegations, because again, as a divine absolute monarch, he didn't even feel like he was required to answer to these accusations, or answer to any other human being on earth at all whatsoever. So the Grand Remonstrance, because it dared to question the king in writing in such a public way and raise these issues and confront him, was a groundbreaking document. And as his relationship with Parliament continued to deteriorate after it was issued, Charles I raised an army. In response, the Parliament called for the militia. A civil war ultimately ensued and... The king was captured, put on house arrest, and then put on trial for high treason. He was charged with the, quote, wicked designs, wars, and evil practices that have been and are carried on for the personal advancement and upholding of a personal interest of will, power, and pretended prerogative to himself and his family against the public interest, common right, liberty, and peace of the people of this nation, end quote. So his charges were based around the dynamic of power in a fundamental way that, that addresses the philosophical points. The indictment held that Charles I was found guilty of all the treasons, murders, rapines, burning spoils, desolations, damages, and mischiefs to this nation, acted and committed in the said wars or occasion thereby. Some 300,000 people had to die during the Civil War to get this point across that absolute monarchy is not okay. This is like 6% of the nation's population at the time, a very high price to pay. The king was found guilty and beheaded, and more importantly, the point made its way into history. But he was then replaced by Oliver Cromwell and his version of the Commonwealth, um, which was run by a military dictatorship. And in attempting to correct the imbalance brought about by the system of absolute monarchy, embodied quite literally by Charles I, uh, the Puritans aspired towards a sort of democratic theocracy, where the only distinctions among men were moral and religious, and there was no law but their interpretation of God's word. Puritans canceled all holidays as superstitious, and the theater, where they considered actresses to be whores, was closed down. 
in attempting to correct for the imbalance caused by absolute monarchy and what they felt were the loose morals of the age, they then overcorrected and took the imposition of their brand of religion and morality way too far in the opposite direction, ultimately showing themselves to be just as intolerant and dictatorial as those who had previously shown intolerance to them. And that overcorrection allowed for a vacuum of the people's sentiments to support the return of monarchy just after it had been brought down. For the audio listeners, uh, the on-screen text, one of the strongest natural proofs of the folly of hereditary rights in kings is that nature disapproves it otherwise she would not so frequently turn it into ridicule by giving mankind an ass for a lion. Thomas Paine. I think it's the... Common sense. I think it's the inbreeding. would be restored under his son, Charles II. A restoration which came complete with a touch of the mythical. The story about how Charles II escaped England unscathed as his father was dethroned has gone down as historical fact, even though it sounds like a fairy tale as good as anything Disney has ever concocted. The story goes that the future king had to hide from Cromwell's soldiers in an oak tree on September 6, 1651 after a failed bid to regain the throne at Worcester in the final conflict of the Civil War. This particular tree later came to be known as the Royal Oak and the basis of a new government holiday and holy day within the Church of England called Oak Apple Day, May 29, 1660, the day of Charles II's 30th birthday, the very day they perfectly timed for his return to England to resurrect the monarchy 11 years after his dad was beheaded. If Charles III's name wasn't a significant enough symbolic connection, back on September 6, 2001, he even participated in a ceremony where the man who would become Charles III planted a descendant acorn from Charles II's royal oak right next to his predecessor on exactly the 350th anniversary of Charles II hiding in the oak tree from the soldiers. When Charles II was brought back, he didn't just restore the monarchy, however, he resurrected the aristocracy's political power in Britain in one fell swoop. The coronation was put off until St. George's Day the following year, the feast day of the patron saint of England, a powerful and important British holiday indeed to host what some still consider to this day to be the most consequential coronation ever to take place in British history. With the royal hereditary monarchy reinstated, certain royalists most loyal to Charles' father were rewarded with dukedoms, such as William Cavendish, Earl of Newcastle, who wrote a treatise on how Charles II should go about ensuring that the restoration took. And it's important to look at this so you can see the mindset through which this monarchy was being restored under Charles II. In the view of royalists of the time, the worst evil above all others in the attempt at abolishing monarchy and establishing a more republican form of government had apparently come from what they referred to as, quote, the mixing of classes. 
A set of two historical volumes entitled England Under King Charles II, published in 1934 by Oxford University at the Clarendon Press, sums it up. Quote, The immediate danger to the newly restored monarchy came from the towns, especially from the metropolis. London should therefore be disarmed and controlled by two forts, one on each side of the Thames. These precautions with a well-fortified tower would serve to keep the commercial classes in their place. As for commerce, the Duke stated that when everything is cheap, there's scarcity of money, and when everything is dear, there's plenty of money. It might therefore be deduced that it was good policy to keep prices, and therefore rents, high. Sound familiar? With means of physical control in place, quote, the next thing was to set in order religion. Lay preaching must be discouraged. Schoolmasters should be such only as the bishop's license. The parson is to preach weekly from a printed sermon, this being the work of either a bishop or a person approved by him. The episcopate thus provides the ruler with intermediaries through whom he can exercise control over both clergy and laity. But this is not the sole advantage of the Church of England for the purposes of statecraft. Religion, in fact, must be the first concern of the statesman, because the enthusiasm of the common people breeds revolution. The Duke wrote, quote, The Bible in English under every weaver's and chambermaid's arms hath done us much hurt. The power of education was also attacked for raising common consciousness to a level that was at complete odds with a system ruled by the marriage of church and state under hereditary monarch presiding over a society that was basically a caste system where the aristocracy wanted to make sure class distinctions were kept clear and the privileges of the nobility maintained. Quote, there are too many students at the universities. If the colleges had but half their numbers, these would be better fed and better taught. The same is true of the grammar schools where syntaxes are well-thumbed while horse and plow are neglected. Consequently, the schools should limit their numbers for their only justification is that they serve the needs of the church and those of the law and merchants. Education has its uses, but like everything else, there can be too much of it, end quote. Continuing on the unholy wedding of church and state, the Duke notes, quote, With the help of the church and the law, Englishmen would be kept in order, and a recurrence of such an episode as the interregnum made impossible. Thus, the bishops in their diocese should act as intelligencers, reporting to the government, while in the universities there should be spies to search out the unorthodox and the seditious. But I'm sure you probably think listening to this that none of these attitudes still applies today in contemporary society, right? Under Charles II, the Duke goes on to talk about how parliaments are only justifiable if the king was able to control them. Period. The permission to allow weekly news was also a problem. I just heard that part where she, where Melissa was talking about uh, union of church and state and control of education and spy networks in the educational system to subvert the individuals. And I thought, man, that's the 1600s. Glad that stuff never happened. And then I thought, oh, wait. This book, Cloak and Gown, Scholars in America's Secret War. Guess where the secret war took place, everybody? In the universities. And guess who, you know, whose way of life lost to communism and collectivism? Uh, average everyday individual people at the behest of top-down intelligence agencies subverting you, just like King Chucky II was planning. 
way back then. So I'm just saying, uh, we're here on this planet for a short period of time. The people we're playing against, they they Oxford's a thousand years old. That's like an artificial entity that's been alive for a thousand years, fed off a lot of not privilege, not freedom in this world. I don't want to say slavery straight out because the East India Company, they did other stuff. They traded some spices, but the main spice they traded was uh, opium. And the main uh, thing they spiced with it was people's addictions around the world for 100 years, at least. I mean, that goes back to Queen Elizabeth II and the origins, transitioning from the Levant Company into the East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, the competitions and compromises they made along the way. But it just bubbles up to top-down infiltration of universities to not educate, but rather indoctrinate and subvert uh, real creativity, real solutions to the problems in the world so they can keep making money off the old stuff like fear, war, death, murder, those sort of things that they well, do. Well, you know, the Duke said this will help prevent the interregnum that took place. So as long as they just uh, control education, you know, first through uh, the, the churches specifically, where they have to make sure they construct the entirety of what to be what is to be read and limit the numbers and and the uh, teaching of grammar and the the schoolhouses and we can make sure that the peasants go out and plow those those fields so it'll that'll all prevent the interregnum that took place in the 17th century between kc1 and kc2 now we're up to kc3 and for anyone who says oh well that's just one reference rich that's just one. I got at least 10 <laughs> books on that topic. I got Imperial Brain Trust. I got Cultural Cold War, the CIA's war on uh, letters and university and stuff like this sort of thing. No, education is the thing they're after the most. It's about controlling the mind and breaking the will. Right. So there exists a group of people. They believe in slavery. They believe they are the masters. They, they are well-funded and they got plans and their plan. plans are not being adequately resisted thus far. So they've gained a lot of ground. But it's like uh, being in the tug of war and finding yourself, you're getting dragged along. But then you guys get in sync, you get your footing, you start pulling together, and you can put up more of a fight, All at least some of a fight. I mean, I'd reaction. like to see what happens when the team gets on the field. All I've seen is they, they score open nets. Let's play well, some defense. I think the problem is they take out the people's legs that, are, that do wake up. They like take out their minds first, though. Well, the metaphor... For the yeah. mind in this case would be their legs because they have a lot of people that stay on their side because the tug of war, right? they tell them things like, well, that's just one piece of reference and that, that's not a real thing. Instead of actually being incredulous and looking into it for yourself where you'd actually outgrow that small modality of thinking. You would unrestrain yourself from the situation. It's a form of freedom. You should try it. Okay. So uh, now we got to get to this EU members of parliament. Everyone saw like the result I want to lay it out before you see the result. So they did a press conference. They said a bunch of things and they said the things after they had the, uh, the inquiry. So I want to start with the inquiry, which is the video with the green border. And we don't have to watch the whole thing, certainly, but we're going to show you like, here's the setup. There's someone from the EU on the panel, this woman, there's a woman next to her to uh, stage, right? I think if you're fa- I don't know how it goes. I'm not, theater person but to her right on screen is the Pfizer representative who sits in the place of Albert Borla who had more important things to do than answering the questions of the people he injected with his experimental gene therapy without their permission so he neglected to show up he showed uh, he he had some woman come who thought it was just like she was just giddy to give you the answers of how they didn't 
you know, do the right things, but they told you they didn't. Sorry. They didn't tell you that two years ago to make an informed decision. And um, then they also have a doctor from Pfizer who comes in and tries to patch all this stuff up. And she had this phrase, uh, real world data. I don't think it's in this dictionary. I mean, I can look it up, but I think they just recently rebranded the thing that Hitler did back in the uh, experimental days of Dr. Mengele. Mengele, he gathered a lot of real world data. You could that say he did that he did. It's part of eugenics. Obviously, Maddie, uh, shout out to Maddie, who's done incredible work in the COVID collaborators and the COVID collaborative planning group. Um, she exposed this. It was Dr. Robert Califf, who was really the initiator and uh, innovator of this whole initiative out of Duke University, who worked uh, intimately with uh, Klaus Schwab, not well, with the World Economic Forum, and has met Klaus Schwab. And I think has and done no CM Ralph Barrick was that the same place. Yeah, well, uh, Ralph Barrick. Well, I mean, they share camp. They share a part of uh, the campus that's part of their science lab. They so, like UNC, North Car- UNC, North Carolina, and Duke University share some sort of uh, science labs together. And um, a lot so, of financing. They're very close. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. And there's obviously I don't want to conflate, here. but they are close. Oh, very, very close. Um, uh, let me see here. So you're going to hear real world data, and he's really the one who I think you came up. If he didn't come up with the terms itself specifically, he came up with the way in which this will be utilized under the auspices of the uh, World Economic Forum and their the movement towards the uh, fourth industrial revolution. So you were easy bugs. Real world. The fourth and sexual revolution. So the fourth industrial revolution is the brainchild of Klaus Schwab. The founder of the World Economic Forum, he describes it as an inevitable convergence, blah, blah, blah. Omnipresent sensors. Let me see if I can find. There's a section here. Uh, here, right man, right job, right time. So this gets into, yeah, real world evidence. In 2007, DCRI became the host of Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative. So they wanted to get rid of RCTs. They take too long. That's actually real science. This is a euphemism for getting rid of science and injecting it with yeah, doing science on you before they actually do the real science in regards to whether or not a vaccine is safer and effective or any Isn't other that just sort of making the science protocol. more effective, Tony, for the people who fund the science with the capital S prime? made out of a dollar sign? You know what's interesting? We were just listening. Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative is a self-described as a, a public-private partnership designed to create oh. new solutions for better, more efficient clinical trials. It I bet they could get funding from Jeffrey Epstein if he wasn't already dead. It was co-founded by the FDA in partnership with Duke and operates with a heavy emphasis on using real-world evidence. You're going to hear that term in a second here. Electronic health records and digital health trials. The CTTI's objective is to cut down on the amount of money and time it takes to figure out if a drug or medical device is safe for use and effective at achieving its purposes. Real-world evidence is defined by the FDA as the clinical evidence regarding the usage and potential benefits or risks of a medical product derived from analysis of real-world data. That's a little circular law. You know, it's not, they couldn't even spare the mice. That's unreal. They just have to go straight to the people and the pregnant ladies at this point. Yes. That's, that's I, you know, what they're I, claiming. I know this is a dark thought, but it is a uh, quarter or something to four in the morning. So I'm going to put it like this. I realized just a few seconds ago that during college, when me and my roommates, uh, we had a, a lizard, it was a Savannah monitor. It was about three, three and a half feet long. And we would have to feed it. Uh, it. It ate live rodents. And I realized that I have bought more rodents at the pet store and fed them to that lizard back in the day than Pfizer used to test the thing on the recent uh, round 16 of the Vax booster turbo boost that they did. 
whatever story we covered three weeks ago that I'm forgetting the exact details for. So I'm being a little hyperbolistic. That way I don't get accused of false fake news. I'm telling you, there's a story. They apparently tested one of the concoctions. I can't keep up with which one on like eight rodents. And then yeah, I probably, yeah. you know, gave the lizard for that's like two weeks of rodents for the lizard. I think we had trouble verify. I know they do that with um with already established platforms for like earlier um or previous uh flu vaccines, for example. They they will come out with a new flu vaccine. It's pretty much the same platform as used in the past. Even when they do the flu vaccine, though, Tony, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not a doctor. But when they do the flu vaccine, do they test it against the placebo or last year's flu vaccine? What's the control group in that? Do you understand how that works? I honestly don't. If know my if memory serves, I thought it was unusual, and I wouldn't think it was un- it was unusual if they were using saline as a control. I thought it was unusual because they're like, no, they're the control there is, is no last con- year's flu vaccine, which yeah, was proven safe there is already. No control, that's the and point. They're testing okay. it on. So flu that's mice not science, right? Time. Yeah, they're assuming what the, the assumption being doesn't made, seem to be. It doesn't add up the science right there. Yeah, the assumption being made is that it's so similar to the platform that's been the science supposedly has been done with in regards to the old egg-based protein flu vaccine derived, you know, and they're just changing a small component of this, of the virus. And, you know, in order to sort of supposedly match up, but oftentimes when you actually look at the statistics, it's less than 3% uh, correlative to the actual what's going around that particular flu season. Uh, it can be as low as 3% I've seen. So they, uh, they, you know, Fudge the numbers quite a bit, but there's a couple of euphemisms. I'll just point out and then we'll get to this clip. Um, so we have um, the uh, real world data, real world evidence, and also this idea called precision health. I see that uh, Maddie covered here. And one of the key components of this is this is really the a euphemism for the genetic sort of tailoring uh, or gen- genetic tailoring or potential genetic modification associated with tailoring a, a medical procedure or intervention to your particular health situation. So they now call it very nicely precision health. And this is the way in which they'll sell this sort of a uh, whole new way of imagining doing science and medicine as a result. So shout out to Maddie. Um, you can check out our work at re- manufacturingreality.org. Uh, and James, this is James Jordan's, Jordan's blog. Um, and they've, he's recently posted uh, Manufacturing History, week 41, 2022. Um, I think he's starting a new project called Manufacturing History Project. So check out that. He's an autonomy grad. He's a, been a from day one. He's been a member of or a participator on the um, GTW Town Hall. Uh, very intelligent dude. Awesome man. He also runs the GTW, uh, or rather, it's not GTW. It's his own show, um, uh, Liberty Radio. That he does. It was every Tuesday, but I think it's more when he has some time. He publishes it. So if you want to check that out, absolutely do so. He also did a interview with Maddie before he went down to Mexico. So if you want to check that out, get more uh, insight into her work. And she also just recently posted on September 24th, the diversity mire in regards to the woke aspect, the cultural aspect, if you will, of this COVID collaborative group, planning group. And so check that out. I plan to do a deep dive in that sometime, but I haven't had a chance to with all the traveling that's been going on. And honorable mention, she was in the uh, autonomy season eight meet and greet earlier today. So she's one of, uh, I think there was like 70 people on that call, something like that. I think we had 80 or almost 90 people on the Friday night, first part of the meet and greet where they meet the alumni. So uh, it's winding out to be an exciting season. We got the first lecture this Friday. If you guys are interested, you know what to do by now. 
you mm-hmm. watch the show and if you if you're like really okay grand theft world uh has a link someplace in the community and if you don't know that link get autonomy.info forward slash ignite is how you can start the process to see if it might be right for you and with that let's go to this clip from the eu members of parliament They're not grilling this woman, but they do ask some really good questions. And again, take note how many people speak English and talk just like King Chucky the third and all his ancestors in this whole uh, obtuse ritual that uh, seems shenanigans like it's almost kangaroo court like. But they do get some real questions and they do get a couple legitimate answers. So it's not totally a a show uh, thing, but also it's not uh, that has no teeth what they're doing over there. So it's really just the first process from which these people that you're going to hear from got enough information to then do a press conference the next day. And that'll be the next clip we go to. So you can hear like what the conclusion and what the big deal about all this is. Let's go to the first clip from uh, EU members of parliament questioning uh, Pfizer sit in backup representative for Albert Borla, who was too busy to show up. Counting his money. When you talked about the Canada clinical trial, was it? Actually, that's... Oh, sorry. The Canada clinical trial, actually, is that what you were referring to? Actually, I I don't believe any of the information on that. From that point of view, I I am aware of, but I'm more than happy to get back to you uh, at another point in time to be able to respond to that specific aspect of it. But from my point of view... Oh, do you have that? Do you have that? No. Well, I'd like to make a comment uh, to that. We have... All right. So what happens here is uh, EU members of parliament, there's like they go like three at a time. So from a rhetorical side, this woman from Pfizer, she'll hear three questions. She kind of writes down her answers. Then she addresses them all at once. So they're not actually getting answers and she can't be held to account for anything she's saying. And then she's like, let's go to the next three. Right. So she's going to hear a couple people say things and write stuff down. The part we're going to right now is that's already been going on for an hour and six minutes. Now there's somebody there who's uh, sticking up. She's a doctor who works for Pfizer in their interests, and she's going to bring up that real-world data that we were just talking about for the past 10 minutes. Let it roll. Uh, lots of real-world evidence. Uh, there's, uh, Maybe you should introduce yourself yes, because people don't do know who you're, you're from, Shivaka, Pfizer, yes. from Pfizer. Hi, yes. My name is Barati Shivaka. I'm a physician, and I'm the country medical director for Pfizer. So regarding the clinical data, um, you know, we were in a pandemic. Things had to move on. The regulatory authorities also worked together with us, um, and those clinical data are published. Post factum, of course, there's a lot of criticism, but I would like to point out to you that we have real-world evidence, real-world data in billions of people around the world, people and patients around the world, where we know that the, the vaccine is, um, has, um, has been safe and effective. I'd like to stress. Pause it. Also, pause it. That depends on what the meaning of no is. K-N-O-W. What do you mean you know? She talks about it like it's a certain thing. Two billion people took it. and No one called her to say side effects. So they must all be okay and therefore safe and effective. And she can know that. But I don't think that's science, Tony. I don't think that's how you know things. 
in a scientific this method whole thing type of way. Science. This whole thing isn't science. It's Real a science of manipulating science. people's heads. It's a euphemism heads for not that... doing science. That's what it is. It's a euphemism for not doing science. And on top you know of what? that, when they could, if they're going to actually utilize real-world data, then they would have to incorporate in their models or their modeling all of the negative side effects associated with the vaccine that they're conveniently neglecting. We call this a neglected fall, uh, neglect the aspect fallacy that they're using to build a straw man that then is safe and effective. So if they're going to be honest about it and not showcase their own confirmation biases in regards to only cherry picking the most general evidence in regards to, well, billions have been back. Well, we could make that same argument about vaccines in history when we talk about the adjuvant before it was about adjuvants. Now it's about actually manipulating your DNA and the, the synthetic nanolipid structure that they're using that also is causing all these problems. Um, you know, uh, I feel like back the in history, in the idiocracy and you're not sure right now. And I'm like, hey, your honor, listen, all, he's talking all smart and stuff. He sounds all prissy. Nano so, stuff, I'm, I'm, whatever. I'm really digging deep because it is almost four in the morning, and I'm no, no, I'm, I'm, no, no, no. I get it. No, I, yeah. I understand what you mean. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I, I, but I'm digging deep to get this out because it's, it's. It, you're right. It's, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, that's what it is. Because at the end of the day, we can make the same argument historically about vaccines, right? In regards to, you know, if we look at as best as we can epidemiologically, we when we run. Uh, uh, these studies and regarding uh, different population groups that we try to account for the cofactors or covariables as much as possible. In other words, make the two groups as similar as possible. You notice cor uh, correlations be uh, between the vaccinated group and disease etiology um, and usually chronic disease in regards to asthma, neurological conditions, um, you know, all sorts of eczema, psoriasis, uh, the, the, uh, chronic inflammatory diseases. Uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. I mean, this is, the list goes on and on, but the thing is they can always wash their hands and say, well, there's no, you can't, you can't use that to determine causation. No, but it, there's patterns there that we should be looking at to say, well, maybe they're not quite as safe and as and effective as we think they are now, obviously through ICANN and Dell Big Trees uh, network and specifically ICANN, which is their nonprofit. They set up to be able to get FOIA requests and to sue these various agencies for, um, uh, for this information, we find out that they really haven't even done safety tests on historical vaccines, and they were doing real-world data probably from the 1960s in the Salk Institute, Jonas Salk, and moving forward with their eugenics program long ago. They just now have changed the platform from a traditional egg-based or pea or uh, was a peanut-based protein at one point, egg-based protein. They used a couple of different proteins to culture the virus on to now using uh, mRNA, which is telling your genes to literally produce the virus itself. And using a synthetic nanolipid structure to as the payload to deliver the mRNA juice, and that's quite quite devastating because you look at the VARES or yellow card system in, in the UK and the other systems in Europe. Uh, it's pretty devastating in regards to uh, the potential fallout that people are experiencing with side effects, it's particularly particularly when it comes to cardiovascular events, which is exactly what Joseph uh, Latipo, the Surgeon General for Florida pointed out in the most, that most recent study that they're utilizing as their, their justification for not recommending the COVID-19, any of the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines, that would be Moderna or Pfizer, I would assume. Um, and I don't know what their stance is on J&J &J and those sorts, but they're, they're very similar. They're also gene manipulating technologies. They just use an adenovirus vector instead of mRNA. So these are the people, the same people, right, that are doing this real world data from 2 billion people who didn't Robert have Kalef. informed consent that were right. said it was safe and effective, but they didn't test it who they were told it will stop transmission, but they didn't test that either. Right. 
This is the same group of people who also say, well, it would be unethical to give a placebo to this pregnant woman. So we have to give her the experimental thing. And we can't give this one saline because that would be unethical. So we have to give that to her too. And this is real world testing, right? That's a good point because one of the things they did in the Pfizer trial is essentially they brought over the control group because they were actually doing controlled experimentation, but they said it would be unethical if they don't offer the vaccine once they've proven it, quote unquote, to be safe and effective. What, in how many months they they had done that before they brought over the control group um, over to the uh, the test group. And once they did that, then there is no more control group because that was supposed to go on for years and years. But the argument was, well, it's, un- it's unethical because supposedly at the time they were marketing it as though it stops transmission, which now they actually literally admit that they never tested it to stop transmission uh, in any capacity. They're Sounds just like testing they it to see if it time. produces a particular antibody response in the in the body um not negating all the other negative or deleterious side effects that they're like manifest. does it fit in the vial yeah it's good to go yeah pretty much and then just let's, keep let's it not, at minus let's 80 not, degrees we're good let's not forget about the relative risk versus the absolute risk profile they were using the statistical manipulation i talked about norman fenton last week and steve patterson and brett weinstein who hilariously whitney webb called out eric weinstein who's a dubious Dubious facts, mo- yeah. Benjamin. Fink. Oh yeah, he's a he's a dubious mofo in regard. And they're, they're really their name's Weinstein. They just at the time they wanted to distance themselves from another Weinstein. No relation, but I can understand why they say Weinstein. We get it. There's wine in the Stein. <laughs> Point is though, uh, Brett Weinstein, had, you know Norman Fenton and um, C. Patterson recently on, and I really encourage people who are nerds like myself to check them out. Thought they were really good. Uh, did a good breakdown of the abuse of science, the dark age of science, as Steve Patterson has been writing on his Substack. Uh, very, very erudite individual uh, in regards to um, his analysis of science from a historical perspective and the ebbs and flows of heights and lows of scientific uh, experimentation and discovery, particularly discovery. Well, and as you know, Tony. And Fenton I'm, was it. Sorry, real quick. Uh, okay. I was going yeah, to finish about Norman Fenton. And real quick, he's a statistician that took the NHS data because the NHS was not very clever and decided to give all the data out in regards to, or a large majority of the data in regards to what is going on with their vaccine agenda in the UK. And he was able to very cleverly show how you can easily make it a pandemic of the unvaccinated or vaccinated by the way in which you manipulate the data, which shows how dubious statistical modeling actually can be. Sorry, go ahead, Nara. I'm always trying to endeavor to... uh accelerate my inner nerdiness right so i'm trying to learn from these people because i know this woman from pfizer she's really smart she works for albert borla she's his spokesperson at this very important event so i take what she's saying very seriously i don't necessarily believe it so i got to look it up right so i spent an hour and a half in my college physics book published by surway and i'm going through there and i know i had a good college education i paid a lot of money for it I have I have some of my books. So when I heard about they had to work at the speed of science, I felt like such a like bonehead because I don't know what the speed of science is. And I consider myself like an educated person. And here's this really smart lady. And she's making me feel really small because she's talking about the speed of science. And I started getting anxiety. I was like, I got to discover what is the speed of science that she's talking about. And then I couldn't find it. And I was looking it up and all it does is refer like she made it up or something. And I'm just confused, man. And is it time dilation? Is it a Einstein Rosen bridge paradox thing? Or is she making that shit up, bro? I asked. You know, it's interesting. Uh, on Maddie's blog, she writes, the stated purpose of the Cures Act, 
remember that was part of COVID-19 initiative early on, according to the FDA, is to, quote, enhance our ability to modernize clinical trial designs, including the use of real-world evidence and clinical outcome assessments, which will speed, there's that magic word, Rich, speed the development and review of novel medical products, including medical countermeasures, and to, quote, unquote, incorporate patient perspectives into the development of pharmaceuticals and medical devices while they are being reviewed by the FDA. In other words, while they're being reviewed, they're speeding up this entire process. This is all just a euphemism for negating, oops, put myself back on screen, getting rid of uh, the scientific method and the scientific process and turning that process actually in or turning the test group into what is already considered to be safe and effective. LD, here's a clip. You need a thumbnail for this clip. Watch this. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, because the the goal here is to, is to bypass regulations, right, and and to test it out on the population that's assuming and being told and marketed what to that it's safe is and effective. What the testing for if you're just going to put it into innocent, unwitting people, Tony? Were the experiment? This is the same. Like the, the, the human, Nazis like were the, like, "Hey, let's just bypass testing on the animals and go straight for the prisoners." And then they turn it into pharmaceutical companies after the war because they made themselves international with the Dulles brothers' help of the lawyers. No, you're exactly right. I mean, that's, you know, it's just, it's a terrifying. I'd rather be wrong about that thing, but it seems like history fleshes that out pretty well. Yeah. So. This is all just, I mean, they've been trying to get this, the vaccine modernization act, the Milken Institute. And, and she obviously Whitney Webb uh, talked about, um, I forget the, the original, the, the person's name who started it. It was around the same time that Bill Gates, they all moved to philanthropy. Right. Um, so the Milken Institute, no surprise that they sort of postured themselves as being, just uh, helping to have a dialogue about innovations in medical technology. And they were you know, lamenting the fact that, man, vaccine technology is behind the curve. We need to speed it up. Then you have the uh, Vaccine Modernization Act that Trump signed. And then you have warp speed. And man, it seems like they got everything That has they something want. to do with the speed of science, Tony. We should look that up, right? Warp because speed. my question is this. If science, has a speed, involved. if science has a speed, does it also have a sound? The sound oh of science. Yeah. Is there maybe we're on to something brought to you by Pfizer, right? I can see that. That's an ad campaign. Can we get can we get paid for that, Pfizer? I think you guys should do something like that. Uh Art Garfunkel is still available. Paul Simon, is he still alive? Get them together. Reunion <laughs> tour brought to you by Pfizer. <laughs> Only six jabs allowed to get the ticket for 500 bucks a piece. I don't know why they're And that is stupid enough that they would probably think that's a good idea. Yeah, right now with how uh, how belligerently foolish and stupid and just ridiculously i don't even know how to state what's going on with the push for the potential for nuclear war the push for the use and abuse of new medical technologies i uh, it's just well, idiocracy it is push an for understatement in regards before we, they could ever use it we talked about yeah well sure but they had to condition the public to be able to accept it unwittingly and unwillingly um or they did education. it in secret and charge us later. They're like, hey, we developed that shit. We didn't tell well, you. Well, they did it. charge us too. Like, right? Yeah. I mean, it's charged to the inflation. Dollars for that no. 9-11 thing. Well, that too as well. Yeah. I mean, it was like go, they threw yeah. a party and made us pay for it. What the I'll fuck say, but with the COVID-19 vaccines, they charged all of us, whether we got it or not, through taxation and inflation and the, the wreckage of the economy and the lockdowns. And this is what we get out of it. We get real world data. Like, oh, we have plenty of real world data. Really? 
Miss Pfizer executive. To billions of people, Tony, who Christ, didn't man. find you to register their things that went wrong. Of course, there's nothing new. They just are coming out and admitting it. They have terminology for it. And there's legislature supporting it now through the Cures Act and through the Vaccine Modernization and the Warp Speed, which is part of, I think, the Cures Act is a part of that. And then the HHS continuing to extend the emergency uh, authorization associated with the, the fact that the pandemic is still considered an emergency. I forget the correct terminology in regards to that. That then gives the um, EUA, it extends the EUA for these vaccines to continue to exist, even though they're supposedly FDA approved. That's just a labeling exercise. It's just a, it's just a bunch of wordsmiths. They're playing. Right, LD, I was going to say, because we're still in the middle of that clip. So let's go ahead and continue to play it through. And then uh, we'll get to the people that did the press conference afterwards. But I think she has a little bit left to disclose to us. So the comment that um, the, the colleague from CureVac made, such a vaccine would never be out there for patients, for people, if it wasn't safe enough. So safety never. is something that is never know. compromised. The other point that I'd like to make is let us not all forget that we are here thanks to the efforts made by the pharmaceutical companies. We are able to sit here and discuss the COVID committee, what the COVID committee should bring forward thanks to the efforts that were made. I'd like to also make a comment on the the point of the pregnant ladies. There is also... um, Lots of evidence, lots of real-world evidence from the UK and Real Israel world. on um, complications in pregnant ladies who were not vaccinated. So Only I think um, right. okay. there's more evidence out there problem. where there were um, less issues with pregnant ladies. I can I can provide you the data later on. Okay. Okay. Let Let's. No. Ex- Again, again, look, people, people, Mrs. Limmer, it is impossible to have a to have a committee meeting. If you start shouting, you have to ask for the floor. That is how people communicate with each other. Um, but Mr. Sinchitz, if you give us a, the report, um, uh, right, we can ahead, uh, give it to CureVac and to. You see who butters her bread right there. Brought to you by Pfizer. All right. Uh, now let's go to the press conference, because even though. If we had longer time, I'd pick out the people and what they said that day to the actual woman who represented Borla. But watching the press conference, they're telling the truth about what they said the day before. I've seen both those cases. You can go look at them, too, but we'll just save some time and watch the press conference. We're going to play only the English speakers. Sorry. Um, The first uh, is a woman from Italy. Uh, Then there's a guy in a black jacket, the guy in a blue shirt. He's very smart. He spoke well the day before, but we don't need to play him. And the last two ladies uh, on stage, uh, which ends with Christine Anderson uh, from Germany. Don't know. Going from the top of the the press for truth clip or not. Uh, So I didn't put that on the show card. Okay. So the press for truth clip sets it up because it's the guy from the, the Netherlands who gives a short part. But then I also wanted to play the longer, like 10 minute press conference where there's various ones speaking because I thought that was like much more powerful and potent. I sent it to a bunch of people in my family. I'm like, look what they're discovering over there. And I can't wait for people in our government here to do something similar. Yeah, it's a lot of the rebuttal against the lack of data and the lack of evidence that actually does exist. Lack of respect from Borla because it's not like he had COVID for the 16th time. He chose, he's like, no, I'm not going to go and send this woman as my representative. So I don't have to face those people. Maybe you got COVID for like a fifth time now or something. Who knows? 
he should take um, some Paxlovid. Right, well, we can play the press for truth clip if uh, Tony, if you okay, let's go to Dan Dix's press, press for truth.ca because he was the first person I saw who had a report on this thing that it was just getting passed around Twitter and he actually did a little work on it. So let's uh, he did listen uh, to his fine reporting. Dan Dix, press for truth.ca. Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanization before um, it entered the market? No. This is Dan Dix here reporting for Press for Truth. And just like that, my friends, those of us in the so-called fringe element of society who are unvaccinated have once again been completely and fully vindicated. Pfizer executive Janine Small just admitted to the European Parliament that Pfizer did not do testing for preventing transmission of covid prior to the vaccine being released to the public. Here's a report from the European Member of Parliament, Rob Roos, who got her to admit to exactly that. Check it out. If you don't get vaccinated, you're antisocial. This is what the Dutch Prime Minister and Health Minister told us. You don't get vaccinated just for yourself, but also for others. You do it for all of society. That's what I said. Today, this turned out to be complete nonsense. In a COVID hearing in the European Parliament, one of the Pfizer directors just admitted to me, at the time of introduction, the vaccine had never been tested on stopping the transmission of the virus. This removes the entire legal basis for the COVID passport. The COVID passport that led to massive institutional discrimination as people lost access to essential parts of society. I find this to be shocking, even criminal. Please watch the video until the end. Voor u, mevrouw Small, heb ik de volgende vraag waar ik een duidelijk antwoord op wil. And I will speak in English so there are no misunderstandings. Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? If not, please Say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanization before um, it entered the market? No. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. This is scandalous. Millions of people worldwide felt forced to get vaccinated because of the myth that you do it for others. Now this turned out to be a cheap lie. This should be exposed. Please share this video. And indeed, this does need to be exposed. But it's not just scandalous, guys. This is unscientific. This is immoral. And this is what led to friends and family members and neighbors turning on each other because they were afraid of making each other sick if they were unvaccinated. I mean, who could forget just how bad the fear-mongering got 
with clips like this one. Even if you don't care that strongly about whether you yourself are going to get COVID or it's a risk that you feel like you're willing to take or you can't do anything about it, you feel fatalistic about it. What you do care about, what will move you, what does tip the scales decisively in favor of you going and getting that shot that you really don't want, is this. It's that you really do not want to be the person who gets it and then spreads it to other people. Regardless of how you feel about the risk of getting it yourself. I mean, God forbid, God forbid, if you don't get vaccinated because of whatever's driving your reluctance, I don't care. I understand. It's all reasonable stuff in many cases. But God forbid, if you don't get vaccinated and then you get COVID and you unknowingly spread it to other people, who you know or who you encounter, and those people get sick from it or die from it. Those people give it to their family members and then their mom or their dad dies from it because of you. Because you wouldn't get vaccinated. I mean, God forbid. I mean, could you live with yourself in that circumstance? If you had the choice to get vaccinated and you decided, no, nah, I'm scared, and then that decision cost somebody else that you know their life because they got it from you. It's not for you. I mean, if you get vaccinated, your risk of getting really sick or dying from COVID yourself, that risk drops to basically zero. And that's true with all the vaccines. But what is more important to me in the way that I'm wired and what may be more important to you is that if you get vaccinated, your chance of ever spreading the infection to somebody else just drops off a cliff. If you get vaccinated, yeah, you saved yourself. I know you don't care. More importantly, you have saved everybody else because now you're like 90% less likely to get infected and to be able to transmit it to anyone else. So even if you don't want to, get your vaccine so you don't ever kill anybody. <laughs> but wait, Dan, she's just a talking head news personality. I mean, where is she even getting this info from anyways? Oh, the CDC said that? Really? CDC? Hmm. I'm so impressed with our ability to vaccinate at a clip of 3 million vaccinations a day. We have 93 million Americans who have gotten their first dose, um, 51 million who have gotten their second dose. And we have, we can kind of almost see the end. We're, we're vaccinating so very fast. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that, that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick, um, and, and that it's not just in the clinical trials, but it's also in real world data. But it wasn't in clinical trials or real world data that these vaccines would help stop transmission. That was a huge lie. And Justin Trudeau certainly wasn't holding back with his fear mongering either. First of all, we do have to recognize that the vast majority of Canadians have stepped up, have been there. Uh, to get themselves vaccinated, to protect their loved ones, <clears throat> to protect frontline health workers. Uh, and that is uh, significant. We're amongst the, the, the top countries in the world uh, in terms of citizens uh, stepping forward to do the right thing. <clears throat> so as he clears his throat, he claims that doing the right thing is getting vaccinated to protect your loved ones and healthcare workers. But we now know the vaccines do no such thing. And those of us who are in the fringe element of society will never forget what Trudeau said. When people see that we're in uh, lockdowns or serious public health restrictions right now because um, the risk posed to all of us by unvaccinated people, people get angry. No, Trudeau, people got angry 
because you fanned the flames of hatred towards the unvaccinated by spreading the lie that everyone must get vaccinated for the sake of everyone else. And we have put forward many, many different measures to encourage, to reassure, to incentivize, to educate, to cajole, to remind people that it's never too late to do the right thing. Well, you know, he is right about one thing. It is never too late to do the right thing. And in this case, the right thing would be to admit that you were wrong. The right thing would be to stop telling people that they need to get vaccinated for the sake of others. The right thing would be to hire back all those people who got fired because they were told that they might get their coworkers sick unless they take this experimental mRNA technology, which can't even be called a vaccine. So if you're with me, my friends, a proud member of the fringe element of society who did not succumb to this medical tyranny, if you weren't coerced into taking this jab just so that you could travel or eat at a restaurant or go to a hockey game, if you held out as I did, well then congratulations, my friends, because you are already finding yourself on the right side of history and it's only been three years. So just to recap, on what should be the biggest story in the world right now, Pfizer admitted that the so-called vaccine was never intended to stop transmission before it was put out to the public. The CDC, followed by politicians and news anchors alike, then went on to spread the lie that you must be vaccinated to protect others to a very captivated and trusting audience. Millions, if not billions took this vaccine because they believed it would stop transmission and that it was the right thing to do. But my friends, this was all a lie. In order to get as many people as possible to roll up their sleeve and to take part in this global COVID-1984 inoculation program. So needless to say, this is yet another reason why you need to just completely turn your TVs off, stop tuning in to the mainstream media who's spreading these lies, and continue to listen to and support the alternative media who have been bringing you this information all along. My friends, if you appreciate my efforts to do so, please check me out at pressfortruth.ca slash donate. Links are located in the description below. Thank you so much to everyone who does contribute to my efforts to cut through the propaganda and to bring you this information. Thank you so much for coming to this uh, press conference, almost 24 hours after the CEO of Pfizer, Mr. Albert Borla, was supposed to be present in the European Parliament in the special committee to investigate what happened uh, during COVID. And unfortunately, he was absent. He sent a representative who was unable, incapable, or unwilling to answer many of the questions asked by my colleagues. So we are here today. It's October the 11th. I'm here with more colleagues from different uh, political groups from different countries who will be addressing uh, some of the issues that were supposed to be uh, discussed uh, yesterday. So I would like to give the floor to my colleague from Italy, Francesca Donato. Thank you very much, Christian. Well, the conduct of Pfizer-BioNTech, uh, the biggest pharmaceutical company involved in the COVID-19 vaccines production is deplorable and unacceptable in a democratic framework as the European one Union one. Yesterday in the official Parliament, uh, European Parliament Special Committee for COVID 
pandemic management, the Pfizer CEO, Albert Burla, refused to appear to answer our legitimate questions about his private text messages with the president of EU Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, that have already been considered to be irregular, according to the Transparency EU regulation, by the EU Ombudsman and the EU Court of Auditors. He has sent Mrs. Small in his place, who has not answered the most important questions that our special committee has addressed to her regarding the company's price policy, the release of clinical trials reports, adverse effects and other issues concerning the safety and efficacy of Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines. The continuous non-fulfillment of the duties of transparency by Pfizer's executives clearly violates the EU citizens' rights to know in detail how and for which purpose the taxpayers' money is spent. We're discussing about billions of public money that has been managed by the EU Commission by secret agreements directly conducted with the company's CEO, away from democratic control of people by their elected representatives in the EU Parliament. The refusal by President von der Leyen to disclose the content of their text messages first and the denial by Mr. Burla to appear in front of the Parliament then, followed by the reticent behaviour of Mrs. Small yesterday, casts concerning shadows on the legitimacy of the entire contract award process, leaving suspicion of corruption to emerge. Besides all of this, in all the discussions held yesterday and in previous auditions in COVID committee, all representatives of big pharmaceutical companies have shown a position that emphasizes the permanent threat for people's health given by the COVID pandemic, disregarding public and clear evidence about the mild symptoms given by the latest versions of SARS-CoV-2 virus currently circulating, thanks to which the emergency phase is officially over in all countries. Actually, Mrs. Small yesterday needed to announce a possible new variant being more aggressive as well as more contagious, disregarding any scientific literature, assessing that such evolution of a virus in nature is just impossible. The misuse of communication, falsely cloaked in a scientific truth, is just disgusting and misleading. Joined with this inexcusable lack of transparency, it has the only outcome of destroying any trace of trust in the whole scientific community by European people. I think that companies who behave this way should be banned by the lobbies allowed to enter the Parliament and the Commission, and that further investigation is needed by competent authorities to let the truth come to light and to secure the full right of the EU citizens to transparency and public interest-oriented EU policies. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. What has... But what was Pfizer got to hide? This is a question that we are all asking after we found out that the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla, pulled out. The interesting thing is a few weeks ago, the CEO of Moderna, you know, we were criticizing these pharma companies, you know, for being or for lacking transparency. But at least the CEO of Moderna had the 
courage, I would say, to come and answer questions. Yeah, he did not answer all the questions that we asked, but at least he was present here and were, was faced with all these questions that all of my colleagues asked. So obviously when we found out that the CEO of Pfizer decided not to come and answer questions, this, was, this is not an inquiry committee. So he was not bound by law to come and you know, he was not on record, you know, he was not facing any criminal punishments in case he's lying in front of this committee. But even in that case, he refused to come and answer some concrete and specific questions. Questions that I think all of us and all of you have. And the first question is, what exactly in these contracts? What are they hiding exactly? I mean, in the previous press conferences, I, I showed you some of the pages you know, from these contracts. This is how they were disclosed to us and to the public and to the press. Obviously, after some of us and some of the brave journalists asked, what are the contracts signed between the European Commission and these pharmaceutical companies? So this is how they, this is how they disclose the contracts. Over 100 pages, every contract with Pfizer, with Moderna, tens of pages of those contracts were blacked out. So yesterday when we asked, I was the one asking, and some of my colleagues asked, when are they going to fully release these contracts? The representative of Pfizer, who was sent to replace the CEO of Pfizer, said that they can't fully disclose these contracts because they have some commercial secrets over there. And they have to protect their interests. Now I'm asking you, what about the interests of our people? What about the interests of the Europeans whose money was spent or wasted, I would say now, to buy these medical products that are not providing what they were marketed for. Because what we found out yesterday, when one of my colleagues asked if they tested, in this case Pfizer, if Pfizer tested, if their medical product is stopping the spread of the virus, we were shocked to find out yesterday that they haven't tested their vaccine to see if it's stopping the spread of the virus. So we are now more than a year after the green certificate, the digital green certificate was imposed in the European Union and people were forced to be vaccinated with the medical product in order to exercise their basic fundamental rights. And they were told and we were told. We were voted against the green certificate, but many of our colleagues voted in favor of it because they believe what these companies have said, that if you get vaccinated, you will not be infected, and you will not spread the virus. They even ran campaign and said, get vaccinated in order to keep your grandmother and your parents healthy. And we find out now, after more than a year, that when they requested the special marketing authorization, they haven't tested the vaccine to see if it's stopping the spread of the virus. So I'm asking again, and we are asking again, what are they going to hide? What do they hide exactly? Why aren't they transparent with their medical product? We heard yesterday, I mean, it was, I was shocked. Because Pfizer used this opportunity just to do a PR campaign and even lecture us, why are we asking this and not asking that? Who are they to question us? What kind of questions do we ask? 
We are elected by the people for the people, not they. And they are supposed to answer, to answer all these questions, which they have not. There's another issue right now raised all across Europe. The excess mortality rate in the month of July 2020. According to Eurostat, in the month of July, the excess mortality rate all across European Union went up 16% more than the average of 2016 and 2019. Now, if you look on the map here, this is released by the Eurostat. It's not from us. If you look on this map, you will see that the countries with the highest vaccination rate have right now the highest mortality rate. So obviously we ask, is there a connection between being vaccinated and having a higher mortality rate? Everybody's avoiding answering this, I would say, logical question. There's another issue. A year ago, I requested Emma to submit some details and data to me because I wanted to have an informed decision, I would say, when I voted in favor or against the Green Certificate. And one of the questions that I asked Emma is to send me the, all the trials, the tests, the clinical trials that all these medical companies had done either in animals or in humans, before they requested the marketing authorization. So in the case of Pfizer, here's something interesting. When they submitted the information and the clinical trials to Pfizer, here's all the tests that they submitted along with the request. They submitted a clinical trial that started in January 14, 2020. I asked yesterday the representative of Pfizer and she declined to answer. How is it possible that we, the world, found out in December of 2019 that there is a COVID or coronavirus, as it's called, in China, December of 2019. On January the 11th, the Chinese government released the DNA data or a segment of it to the public, and three days later, Pfizer already started the tests for this vaccine. How is that possible? She did not answer. In the case of Moderna, and I've asked the CEO of Moderna two, three weeks ago when he was here, they submitted trials since 2017. So I'm restating the question, how is it possible? That when we found out in the fall of December, you know, winter of 2019 about this virus, they submitted tests of their vaccines years before we found out about the virus. And I'm still asking that question now. How is that possible? So these are the legit questions that we all asked and that people are asking us. And unfortunately, they are declining to answer. So this was the, these were the the main topics, I would say, that we tried to clarify yesterday, and unfortunately, the Pfizer representative, as Moderna representative, you know, declined to answer. We will keep pushing uh, to clarify these facts, and nevertheless, to make sure that the European Commission is going to fully release the content of these contracts. Thank you. And I would like to give the floor now to my colleague, Virginie Joron, from France.
Merci Christian. Mesdames et messieurs, d'abord, je partage l'analyse de mes collègues. Ils ont parfaitement résumé la journée d'hier, qui était une mascarade. Nous avons perdu deux heures, puisque aucune des questions que nous avions posées qui étaient... ...ont été faites par Madame Van Der Donc, Van Der ici à être ou en humain en tout First of all, I couldn't agree more with my colleagues on what has already been said here. It is a scandal that Mr. Bula is shirking his duty to speak and answer questions after having made the deal of his life for Pfizer with um, unsuspicious citizens. Citizens who believed the often groundless promises of the so-called 95% effectiveness and the absolute safety of the vaccine. And not only did they pay billions of euros in taxpayers' money for it, Quite a few of them also paid for these promises with the loss of their personal well-being. So it was more than obvious for me to ask for the approval data for the vaccination, especially since the mRNA vaccines have now received full market authorization in the EU, which is completely incomprehensible and unacceptable to me. This at a time when even the media mainstream can no longer conceal the sometimes life-threatening or even fatal side effects. <clears throat> The committee meeting yesterday and the so-called answers to my questions have been an impertinence that cannot be surpassed. Mrs. Small, representing Mr. Burla, either pretended to be ignorant or was unwilling to address any of my questions. The EMA approval was made with reference to additional clinical trial data. Mrs. Small would not answer questions about what the data material was. A mandatory study on safety for pregnant women was quietly discontinued by Pfizer. Preliminary data from V-SAFE, um, a program of the U.S. authority CDC, seems to show a devastating rate of spontaneous abortions in pregnant women. Mrs. Small declined to comment. But an unnamed Pfizer official in the room responded that corona could cause complications in pregnant women. It is unbelievable for me in what ways people are trying to dodge my questions. There are even no clinical trial at all available for the adopted Omicron variant. Mrs. Small did not address this. Meanwhile, the Florida Health Department advises men up to the age of 39 not to get vaccinated because of the significant incidence of heart-related deaths. Mrs. Small has been silent on this as well. The pinnacle of the corona freak show for me was reached when they talked about real-world data. Real-world data means nothing else than in the absence of any suitable clinical study data, one pretends that the 900 million vaccine doses given in the EU are an adequate substitute. They are not. What's more, unsuspecting citizens who believed the promises of supposedly effective and safe vaccines were degraded to guinea pigs. And yes, this disinformation campaign must be addressed, but in a very different way from what an EU Commission <coughs> imagines. Thank you. Thank you so much. I would like to give the floor now to my colleague Ivan Sincic from Croatia. Thank you very much. He's a smart guy, but skip him. And so go to the basically, yesterday speaker, there please. was another session of COVID committee, just like most of the sessions before.
Covid committee showed yet again that EU. My colleague Christine Anderson from Germany. Yes, hello. Good morning from me too. So, yesterday's session of Covid committee showed yet again that EU Parliament is nothing but a gigantic <laughs> shell of democracy illusion to fool the peoples of Europe into thinking their interests were represented in Parliament. It is not, though. Not only do the invited panelists, such as representatives of pharmaceutical companies or ministers of health from the member states, not answer any of our questions. No, they continue to spread disinformation about the safety and efficacy of mRNA injections. They continue to lie about and downplay, outright deny the uh, harmful effects of these injections. They continue to keep, uh, they continue to, uh, keep to deny the people access to the contracts and they continue to let Ursula von der Leyen get away with not disclosing the texts exchanged between her and Pfizer CEO, Mr. Borla. In short, they continue to demonstrate their utter contempt for the peoples of EU. The chair of COVID committee, Ms. Kathleen van Bremt, social democrat in Belgium, does not run this committee to serve the people. She runs this committee to protect the interests of pharmaceutical companies, EU Commission and governments of EU at the expense of the people. Yesterday, Mrs. van Bremt refused to put a point of order to a vote. This is a gross violation of the rules of procedure and demonstrates her disregard for democracy and the rights of the people. You might want to drop her a couple of lines to let her know that you will not tolerate your rights being violated by her or anyone else for that matter. I had raised this point of order to declare COVID committee incompetent to serve the best interest of the people and to expose their scheme for lack of authority to compel anyone to appear in front of committee and to answer any questions, thus opening a way to have a formal committee of inquiry set up. A formal committee of inquiry would give the people the means to get to the bottom of things and would put an end to their plot of stripping the people of freedom, democracy and the rule of law. All of us here today and many more, there is more MEPs by now, we will continue to fight for a committee of inquiry, but we need you to join us in this fight. We need your help to do it. So here's what you can do. Write to your MEPs, call their offices and keep doing it. I mean, do it over and over and over again, literally clocking their phone lines, get on their nerves, demand a committee of inquiry and keep doing it for as long as it takes. Do not stop until your demands are met. It is your right. Let them know that in a democracy, it is in fact you, the people that are running the show. And if they fail to respect that, then let them know you will replace them. So please take charge, get involved. Don't let these anti-democrats get away with stripping you of your freedom, democracy and the rule of law. Thank you. Rumpf.
do we have anyone in this country that talks like that anymore? We have people in this country who speak English with with very little accent, just like she did. But do we have people who speak about truth, justice, and the fact that the people give the power and their consent to those who are governing, and those people are changed out every couple of years, and they're supposed to be chosen by the people who, over whom they're governing? And there's a system there. I think that system was broken. I think you referred to it like five hours ago, Tony, when you were talking about that Time Magazine uh, issue and and we looked up the definition of cabal, but a couple hours ago, remember true. that? I do remember that quite well, and it's an admitted collusion between yeah, they, big business, and media companies, and big not tech. the voters, <laughs> not the voters. That's the answer. That's it right. doesn't matter who it is. It wasn't the voters, so it's bunk. The 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 science that they did with that experiment, they're saying they tainted it. They're another saying experiment. it wasn't science. It wasn't the election science. Yeah, that's another dubious situation that, well. Now, I also wanted to point out that we covered in relation to that topic uh, in October 2021, this World Health Organization, uh, where they were so pro-vax for the kids in this situation that they didn't test, that doesn't stop transmission, but these kids definitely had to have to keep grandma safe, that they could because it's so important and it's emergency, Tony, they could remove parental consent. And there were ways in this document that schools, just by sending your child to school one day, uh, right here, implied consent process, right? It's kind of like um, yeah. real-time data, this implied consent. What does implied consent? means we didn't ask and we didn't get it, but it was implied because you but sent that's your for kid to children school one now. day. What, what they're saying is there's an implied consent with adults. In fact, there is a ruling. We showed it on the, uh, shout out to Ian, I think it was uh, a couple of months ago on the GTW Town Hall, where we have, uh, it was a German article, either the German or French article that we had uh, translated. And in it, it showed that uh, there was a issue with a payout in regards to someone's death as a direct result of the COVID vaccine. I don't know which one it was, Pfizer or Moderna, but it was one of the mRNA platforms, if I remember correctly. And the court ruling, and I believe it was German, no, France. I think it was France. I think it was France. Um, the French ruling in this case and, the, and their court system stated that it was a form of suicide um, because there's a willing, uh, there's a willingness uh, on the, on the uh, agency of the individual to actually go ahead and get this vaccination. And because they were willing to subject themselves to this uh, synthetic gene therapy, this experimentation that constituted a form of suicide since it was uh, a choice they made. And therefore the insurance companies didn't have to pay any damages to their family. Fascinating. And that was, uh, I, I'll, I should really go back and find what GTW town hall episode that was because they really are episodes in and of themselves. Um, and late at night, I can't remember exactly the details, but that's, that's the gist of what happened. And it's, uh, now in America, we didn't have quite the same situation. Um, that's a whole nother anyways, the point is, so they, they, they compare and contrast to other nations and rulings in regards to that. But to your point, Rich, so they're saying, you know, it, even though they gaslit the guy, it's his fault for believing the gaslighting shame on him for not copying touring. You got it. Now, okay. it's also, we should state for the record as well, um, this was on Dell Bigtree's show this week. Um, I think it was on, it was the opening monologue by Dell. Um, I guess in California, whatever the consensus is, so this was just signed into law by Gavin Newsom. Oh, I forget the bill number. It's, in, it's too late. But the point is, it was signed into law by Gavin Newsom in regards to whatever the consensus is in regards to the way in which you're supposed to treat COVID-19. 
you have to go along with that. Even, uh, uh, even if the doctor and the, the confidentiality of the patient relationship that they're experiencing has uh, other ideas or other sort of therapeutic options they would consider depending on the patient's history. So in other words, so they, they have, have to no go right along to with wrong? the CDC period. They have no right in their own choice. They have no right to be wrong because the authorities they right, have no right. They don't have, have the right no to do right. doctoring anymore. They don't have the right to be doctors. Essentially, they, they have to go along with whatever the consensus group that I guess in this case would be what the CDC well, protocol Hippocrates is. Hippocrates is dead, Tony. We don't need his oath anymore. We've got insurance bureaucracies to take care of patients. So you know, that's it, you, that's the reality of what's going on. It dawns it. on you if you ever stand in line at the pharmacy and I stood beside a line of people that was in line for all this stuff. And all I heard was like, my doctor said to get this. And they're talking, the pharmacist calls the insurance company when it says the insurance company says you're getting this. Curious how they, they so call the doctors, insurance company, not the doctor. Huh. Right. That's a very huh. curious flip in the relationship. I don't remember it being like that. That happened century, to me. Either. But it's one of those beautiful things about the future that Walt Disney imagined for us. I'm sure. Very curious. Very curious. That happened to me, actually. I had a ganglion cyst in my left wrist. Uh, and I was playing golf. It hurt my wrist. I went into just a, a something like a hand, nose, throat doctor, something like that. He picks up my wrist. He's like, give a ganglion. It's a really simple procedure, but you're going to have to go through a number of... Di- the insurance company is going to dictate to you all these tests that are going to cost hundreds of dollars that are just going to be worthless. And it's going to delay us just taking care of this. And I just left and said, well, I'm not going to do it then because this is ridiculous. Um, so that's the reality. That was like uh, back in 2015 when that happened. I never just took care of it after that. I just did some natural stuff to sort of alleviate uh, the cyst. They, and, and this is a pocket of fluid in the wrist. It's no big deal. But it was just telling because like the, when the doctor told me that he was really like very angry, but he participated as part of Wellspan, I think it was. So it's a larger conglomerate, healthcare conglomerate. And um, that's the reality is like the insurance company is dictating to us what we would suggest to our patients. That was back in 2015, and that was something as simple as a, a cyst, for God's sake. It's a pocket of fluid in my wrist. Now we can see uh, how far it's come to the point where uh, children, I guess, are can consent to the vaccine. Or I think that was also something they tried to do in California as well and New York. All sorts of things correctly. those kids can consent to, according to the arguments made by the other yeah, side. Yeah, sure. Yeah, not, not, not the, the gender-affirming surgery. Is there... Yeah. Overlap between those agendas, maybe the same people were bringing it to you. What was Julian Huxley up with? Uh, what you know it was like UNESCO. That's World Education of Kids, UN Education of Kids, and then he also had that eugenics. Um, I think he was in the Homosexual Reform Society. I don't know if that has anything to do with those three topics. They're all Julian Huxley topics, though. Maybe they have precipitants today. I don't. I'm not making those arguments. It goes to the I'm idea saying. of the inversion of reality, the contradictory nature of stating that things can and cannot be at the same time in the same respect. And they are conditioning people to accept that somehow as a reality and, and their form of identity and believe that you can just change your biology or you can change your, your, you know, your, um, your gender, your, your, your ethnicity, your whatever you want to, you can just become whatever you want to essentially. And that's sort of the transhumanistic ideal, whether it's done through digital technology in regards to the metaverse, or whether it's done through the machine mediated interfaces, interfaces, you know, the way Klaus Schwab describes it in the fourth industrial revolution with the implants and nanotechnology, it's just getting us ready more and more to accept these, these contradictory realities of what the transhumanistic masters as they see themselves is setting us could, up to take it, isn't it? Yeah, they really are. That theme, man. They want us all playing Pfizer roulette with syringes and just take it. It's ridiculous. This stuff is so crazy. 
Tony, that's that's, eight, that's Assembly Bill 2098, just for the record. I thought 98, California. thank you. I thought it was 98. I do appreciate it. Yeah, 2098. I remember 98 was in it, but I couldn't remember the first two. And that just was signed this week, I think, in the past couple of days. Yeah. Check to see the date on that. But that just happened, if I remember. Now, is that Gavin Newsom? That's Gavin Newsom. He's the one who So when he bill. has to sign the bill, does he have someone move his pens and stuff before he makes a little face like that? Or is that just with King Chucky the Third? I didn't know if it was a thing with uh, rulers of questionable. Well, luckily, he probably has an implant uh, sponsored by the uh, British government. It's in his elbow and in his wrist, so he can just like, and good to go. Then he goes uh, to the French laundry afterwards, you know, for a quick bite to eat. Yeah. A couple thousand dollars. Yeah, that was... The uh, French laundry is the French connection. Has multiple benefits sh- over there. That was approved People on- were blowing their nose. He was getting his nose blown. Oh, was it approved? approved? Approved on September 30th. Yeah, so it was recently in the past two weeks. Okay, so Dell just covered it this week, but it was just approved. But I think it was just recently signed maybe this week. I don't know, something like that. So, But it passed their, their legislature there, and then it was signed into law. Basically, and what was interesting about the opening monologue by Dell Bigtree is that he showcased a lot of uh, sort of more mainstream personalities, doctors talking about this, the egregious precedent this is setting. To go along with consensus, science uh, does not operate by consensus. It operates by objective fact and trying to actually be able to determine the phenomena that one is witnessing and be able to uh, be able to describe a theory that attempts to understand and describe it to other people, what's actually happening. Well, so don't you we know that consensus science is where the word conscience comes from? So we need that consensus science in our head to have a conscience tony and it's like basically so we don't have our own conscience the conscience comes ethics from and morality. it has to come from the consensus outside of ourselves interesting well that's that's acquiesce to the board convenient tony. to them yeah at this point that's what they want that's what all this to me all this postmodern jargon all this transhumanistic jargon singularity jargon all this stuff is sort of the same stuff it's it's getting us to accept the sort of future that is against in the inversion of natural law the idea of essence, the idea of uh, um, things having a form and function that determines their identity as described and by nature, described and either formed or evolved by nature, designed or evolved. I don't care what methodology one wants to take in regarding how that happened. And you know, I see a tremendous amount of intelligence all around me if people decide to dis- understand and describe that by looking out at nature instead of assuming that someone else in their wayward, prescriptive, and unscrupulous moral uh, uh, considerations in their own mind, you know, what they dream of in their own mind prescriptively as to uh, what that reality should be. So if nature evolves and governments devolve, does that point out that they're unnatural and maybe unnecessary? I don't know. But I also want to bring up this, this point about these people who prick these kids you know, getting a vaccination uh, that doesn't prevent from transmission and doesn't keep them from getting it and it might mess up their health, like getting it in these young kids. It's a brilliant legal strategy because by the time these kids realize what's going on, the statute of limitations is up and all the lawyer, lawyers are retired, right? So, good, yeah, very wily and cunning uh, opponent out there. And just, un- instead of going after like just, you know, people in the prime of their life, let's go after you know, they say, let's put it but in the even, kids. It's even more dubious because, because for their of safety, the, they weren't at risk though. Not one 
fucking iota were they at risk. Right. But everybody and their mom endorses this rubber stamp of give it to kids 16, 17, anywhere in between. You can have implied consent just because they went to a public school. That's worse than that, too, because of the emergency. Great example. Like human it, history we've reached here. Because, you know, we weren't 10, 20, 30 years, assuming that the world hasn't ended in some capacity. We're not all in a gulag. Um, you know, we're not going to see these sort of lawsuits like we see for uh, drugs that have shown to be uh, marketed improperly or off label or used off label and all these sorts of things where there's these massive settlement and payouts for this, like class action lawsuits, all that sort of stuff. We're not going to see that because there's an EUA with this, meaning that there's indemnity. And in but what fact, if they lied to get the EUA, do they still have indemnity, Tony? That's a Did good they question, maybe Rich. not that's think all the question. chess moves out? These motherfuckers started that's playing because they could think five moves deep, but they're not 21 moves deep. And I got news for you. Checkmate, bitch. But you'll figure it out in a couple yeah. years because lawyers are coming. They're coming. No, I know it's something Del Victory has been sort of. No offense to female dogs who might be listening to the podcast. Not using, you know. He's been insinuating that same exact scenario. It would be interesting to see what happens. Um, but then there's probably so much deep capture. Um, and who God knows where we'll be with transhumanism at that point and technocracy, which is the social engineering, this transhumanism is the me- the medium by which they're en- socially engineering society, which is through these machine mediated interfaces and that sort of idea. And through also biotechnology and, and, and uh, DNA manipulation, all this sort of stuff. So just like a mechanism to socially engineer the type of society that Bertrand Russell and Aldous Huxley and, you know, even George Orwell either warned, uh, warned about, you know, so Huxley Bragg, so. Orwell warned. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I was just, you know, but that's right. You guys get the gist. That's it's, it's not cool. And everyone from on high with big billion dollar budgets is clapping it all the way to, uh, the Nuremberg trials. But we're not at those trials yet. They're still out there hurting some people. That. And there's still people like, I don't know, Stephen Colbert's got millions of people in his audience. You think he's got the time of day or enough money to tell you the truth? No, he'll just keep turning his head and coughing while they, uh, you know. I guess he must be being examined by a doctor. I was about to get really lewd. But, you know, he's turning his head and coughing. So, I mean, that's sort of like, I guess he had a hernia, right? (laughs) Maybe, I mean, how how deep do we want to take this? I wasn't going to take it any deeper because we've been doing this so late. It's actually getting early. Now I'm worried about people in other countries that are waking up in their morning routine and hearing after, <laughs> you know, seven hours. Turn your head and cough. Where we've got to. I mean, that's, yeah. that's where we're at. So, um, LD, we're looking to start bringing this, uh, this show in for a landing. It's a comedy keep- show. It is a comedy show. It doesn't have to be funny to qualify as a comedy show. Nope. We labeled it as such, and that's what it is. Because of uh, well, if, if we still had that First Amendment thing kicking around, we probably wouldn't have to. I wonder what happened to that. Did anything happen during this episode that might have threatened that First Amendment in any capacity, or the Second Amendment, or the Fifth Amendment? Or at I this think point, what like- Christine Anderson said from. From Germany, I think in this country, they could construe that as terrorism. She said, incessantly apply pressure and fear into the people who consider themselves your owners. And that could be construed. According to that definition, you see what's going on around. That definition had a specific difference of of, for political gain or political uh, action in some capacity can be defined also, I think, by removing that 
that line and just assuming the more general definition just implies well the chilling effect to- works on people who are sh- how should i say not with testicles right <laughs> chilling effect okay what happens when the chilling effect causes people to heat up and you get a little anti-fragile reaction that you didn't plan on right because th- there's there's people out there on that side they're pushing real hard they don't have the evidence on their side. They don't have the facts on their side. All they have is a bunch of lies and contradictions on their side. And that could be toppled for like January 6th. And it could be COVID-19. toppled with just a few words on the right podcast or the right network at the right time. And they are so close. And I don't know if it's Patrick Bet David or Rogan or Jones or somebody's going to break it. And it might be Whitney Webb out there talking about her book on Glenn Beck. How do you right? know they'll print it? <sighs> it's How do you live. know they'll say it? How do you know they'll say it? How if do you it's know live, it's be, out. How do you know they're not going to get to their families? I don't uh, know. Maybe I'm just a know. pessimist and I'm tired, but I appreciate your optimism. All right. Well, I super appreciate your optimism. I hope the scenario you're painting is the one that actualizes and manifests for our reality. Uh, I'm not predicting the future. I'm just saying, wouldn't it be nice? I just want a time machine. That's little pet point. sounds. Beach Boys. Wouldn't not, a, be not nice? an impression because it's not a music show. So. And this isn't 50 first dates. Pet sounds, not just things you heard on Epstein's Island. Okay, so uh, LD, who do we have to thank aside from our fantastic members for this episode? Because I believe we have concluded the clips that we have to get into this particular episode that are time locked to this week. Am I correct? Should I give some honorable mentions? Well, we do do. have a speed of science offering. We can close it out with that. We've got a couple of JP Sears videos, unless there's anything more important to get to. No, all right, so we'll all, do speed to science, JP Sears, but let's do honorable mentions, of course, first. Yeah, I think I already did most of them, but Jake Tran, I think we might play this next week. I think he's a documentary about uh, the World Economic Forum or something of that nature. Well, this is what they have planned for you. I'm pretty sure he's does a bit of a deep dive in World Economic Forum. Obviously, people, uh, uh, patrons of this podcast will already be familiar with this, but he does such great production work. It'd be willing to check out. We'll show that next week. It seemed uh, like something we could have played that people would have found and passed around to their friends and family. So I yes. did want it to be on your radar, even if we don't have time to play it in this episode. It's uh, pretty good. And Jake Tran does the intro and somebody else does the narration. And you know what? I'd rather hear him read it, but I don't mind. And I'm not, not going to be a hater. I'm going to take the information. It's clear, concise. It's re- It's research. It reflects that which exists. I don't care who reads it. Thank you for giving it to me, Jake Tran and your crew. Also, uh, we mentioned the Elon Musk situation, but that's sort of been uh, reneged upon in regards to him activating Starlink again for the Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian military. The FBI obviously exp- uh, Tim Pool and a couple other individuals, but I think I had a Tim Pool on the show card about the FBI exposed trying to bribe ex-foreign spy with a million dollars to dig up dirt on Trump. Um, so there's that uh, worth checking out. We mentioned that a couple of times. There's one more here. Uh, this is the real secret society, Jay Dyer. Shout out to Jay Dyer. He did really good work in regards to uh, the agenda of the Fabian Socialist, or the Fabian Society, rather, and uh, their conquest for uh, eugenics uh, in the early 20th century, late 19th and early 20th century. Um, after that, An honorable mention real quick. I think Jay starts uh, philosophy 101 next week. If you're a autonomy season eight student, that's an extracurricular. It's produced during the week. You have uh, the, the insight. And if you don't want to do that, you can wait till Jay uh, sells a course next season and offers it to the public, but it's going to be really exciting. I'm looking forward to it because we can learn a lot from uh, his research and philosophical acumen. <laughs> I'll hold a judgment there. I 
Yeah. I didn't say it's all right. I just said we can learn a lot. Sometimes he says things you disagree with and it makes you think. It makes you think, what do I have to justify it on my side? And it makes you learn. And then you communicate with him and you get better facts and you both have a better understanding. I think it's a beautiful thing. Yep. Uh, yeah, much different. I've studied the history of philosophy and the great arguments. It's going to be interesting to see how I, what I, I don't know, how I, uh, if I even go through it. What, anyways, I'm not going to. Even more interesting. See that? Conflict adds a little spice when it's yeah. genuine and not. Yeah, he has a certain ideological bias. So I'll be curious to see if he's able to relinquish that or if it's going to color his understanding of some of the great arguments in history. So you really, in my opinion, it's better to approach them uh, impersonally. And he does not do a good job of that. But who can podcast. be completely objective, Tony? Hmm. So It'll it's a spectrum. We'll get, we'll get to check it out. Uh, that's for sure. Um, Russell Brand had discussing the Pfizer executive admitting the vaccine was never tested on stopping transmission. I think we had a montage or there's montage in our production chat showing all the different people saying it stops transmission, including Fauci and obviously Rachel Maddow. I think Francis Collins at one point, all these individuals, um, you know, talk about Javier Becerra, the HHS, all these guys. And oh, Javier um, Becerra, they called for him to be fired because of the egregious. I think it's or maybe I'm mixing up two different officials in the former vice president Biden's cabinet, but well, he's head of the HHS right now. And so it wouldn't be surprising. Mm -hmm. Um, the other one is Greg Reese did a video on cataclysms that something I've been really interested in and been researching quite extensively over the past, I don't know, three or four years in regards to electromagnetic field theory, plasma physics, the sun, its role in uh, potential cataclysms. It was not appropriate necessarily for this show, but it's something really interesting and caught my ear during the Saturday broadcast with Alex Jones that we were listening to. While I was trying to get the internet to work. So if you went through this that, episode and your needle was at a 10 the whole time, you don't need to check out that because it's just going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, but that if you were at a two not, and you're like, bro, this, you're like, if you're like, dude, this isn't even a hill. I'd be like, go watch that video. See what else is going on. Check it out. It's very add some layers. But also stoicism it. says we have no control over that. So all we can do is see maybe and prepare for what, you know, black swans we can understand in the world. Yeah, that's essentially yeah. It's something that spark seeds our ability to make have any sort of uh, ability to change that reality. Uh, so we just have to take it. And that's basically it. it. It's okay. There's one more coming. There's I'll like a four one. take it limit on the episode. Yeah, we might we might limit it to that. There's one I have more to spend limit. them wisely through the evening. Yeah. All right, you ready? Yeah. <laughs> Let me just load up our list. All right, good. Um, we've got almost a full mag, depending on where you live. If you haven't gone to the one Theft in the World. chamber. <laughs> the one in the chamber. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, we can we can rack in a few more if you guys last chance here. If you haven't been to GrandTheftWorld.com, please go visit. You can click join the community, support us. The uh, best live experience these days is on the Zoom call. You can sit in on the webinar, pre-production in the show. So GrandTheftWorld.com, go check it out. And huge thanks to all of the community members who support us and get to join in the in the town hall every other Tuesday night. This last one was a lot of fun. And a big thanks to the Rockfin Tippers. Let's get through it. Former VP Biden tipped $10. Poll here in the White House tonight. Which kid's suave shampoo scent smells better? Watermelon Wonder or Silly Apple? 
<laughs> we got five dollars from Wiz Cannabis. <laughs> it's a Grand Theft world that I'm peering at, disguised like a pyramid. For those tuning in, they'd be feeling it, revealing that things ain't what they seem. So I'm fighting back and digging Jack, obtaining knowledge, wisdom, and artifacts. Look at Daniel showing off, keeping up with Nick. Thank you, Daniel. Now we got poetry contests in the comments at the end. I like it. We're yeah, stepping it up. It is stepping up. We've got $20 from Sir Dave and Dame Lara of the Sharp Cheddar Milkers. Oh, yeah. Take it. That's it has begun. Comment. And we've got oh, Lawson's and Whistle Pig lined up for the round table. Welcome. <laughs> $5 from Free Market Worker. $5 from Tommy Riley. Hopefully we could see... Catherine Austin Fitz on the broadcast about local banking and cash every day as a small step to reverse the current regime power as it seems the going direct reset is moving forward. Freethinker59, $2, okay at, the, okay at the trying to stay awake point, but thank you for the show, GTW, and to all of the great and kind chat people in here. SE, hang on. Small computer system interface dash one five dollars three hundred plus watching. That's true. We've been we've been hitting those numbers the past. Thank few you, weeks. thank you, everybody who watches it live. It makes it uh, feel like we're not just doing it for ourselves and the people in the future who watch it. Yes, yeah, like nice to have the live audience. That's awesome. Five dollars, Dallas Avad. How good is this interview? Thanks, GTW. Hard to go back to sheep when you're awake. Nick Hayes, $5. Whitney Webb investigates blazing ahead on the trail. A thousand pages of solid gold and one nation under blackmail. Volume one and volume two will keep you turning pages. Whitney is without a doubt an investigator for the ages. I think uh, that's probably a clip that could be on her TikTok marketing her book if there was such a thing. Yeah, there you go. TikTok worthy. And, you know, there was a couple other things she, she said, because I'm, I'm thinking like, I don't understand TikTok, but I understand it's like seven seconds or short videos. So now when I'm hearing like these really tight sound bites, I'm like, oh, maybe there should be a TikTok for Grand Theft World. And we put that clip on there. And then people are like, what? And they don't understand because it's only seven seconds. So that kind of tricks them into the longer form content. Thank you, TikTok. That'd be a good use for it. But I also cringe at thinking of TTikTok. So maybe not. You don't have but to think maybe- about it, dude. I've got one, Thank but you, I, I need some Ethan clips to saves to me a lot of brain power because otherwise I just keep thinking about that. He he podcast. All right, we got twenty dollars from Arem. Thank you, Matt Green. Thank you. Five dollars never disappoints. Zach Zach ten dollars. Respect to the California Democratic Party member recently relocated to Florida. Surgeon General Doc Joe Ladapo. The first Surgeon General in the U.S. to challenge pharma. He also committed to aggregating available data and making it public so proper safety studies can be performed on the full VAC schedule. Now let's get some of the coward conservatives to join in with Dr. Joe and Senator Ron. Signed, Lord Algonquin. Thank you, Zach. Dallas Avad again. $5. Richard is going off like Richard Pryor. And uh, well, Let's hope I don't freebase myself on fire oh man oh. Um, i have no plans to freebase myself on fire do i need to like say all the statements now because of that Jesus and just a couple of nice comments jim commented the law and crime channel has nothing on grand theft world and b1 said richard grove is a force i want to know what those books are on richard's top shelf wrapped in plastic 
the private papers of Colonel House, the private papers of Lord Gray, um, and the what else is those are the ones in plastic, but the other good ones are the private papers of the round table of the British Empire from years 1911 to 1914 to see how they started World War One and why they might have needed America and their plan. Got some of those uh, down before on a couple yeah, of previous episodes. They're in. But- uh, I took them down and filmed them for Corbett's World mm-hmm. War One conspiracy and how or how big oil conquered the world or why bigger oil conquered the world or yeah one of those Corbett joint ventures we did. Well, that concludes the list. And thank uh, you, thank you, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Um, we've got a couple JP Sears videos. If you want to choose from one, How today's long kids speed and, a science one. By, it's a. Uh, uh, a couple minutes, maybe three. Maybe we'll have it. Uh, Not quite. Yeah. Maybe we'll have Joshua incorporate that into the beginning. I don't know. It's a little late. At the speed of science, we will complete this episode at well, warp speed of science. Why don't we just play that and call it a night? Yeah, we can do warp that. speed of science, science, yeah, science. Let's do that. Let's do that. That's a good call. Mystery science warp speed into the end of this episode engage thank you all for tuning in and not dropping out here's some hopefully lighthearted uh and uplifting content to play you out good night everyone we are bringing the facts the facts not misinformation the facts everyone who takes the vaccine is not just protecting themselves but reducing their transmission vaccine's fucking amazing and it also saved phineas from getting it saved my parents from getting it these vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease the people who choose not to get vaccinated if you get vaccinated your chance of ever spreading the infection to somebody else just drops off a cliff don't get to get on a plane elmo getting vaccinated is the best way to keep himself our friends neighbors and everyone else healthy or trained you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Don't get to go to movie theaters. Essentially, vaccines block you from getting and giving um, the virus. For Jim, to block the kind of exponential growth. Don't get to work in the public service uh, or restaurants and other non-essential services. Vaccinated people do not carry the virus. The data are striking, Savannah. They're really quite impressive. Don't get sick. And the more people who get them, the better we're going to be able to help stop the spread of COVID. Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? And I really want a straight answer. We need to get used to being vaccinated with COVID vaccines for the future. The virus stops with every vaccinated person. He made them come up with a vaccine. That is from God to us. And we must say thank you, God. Uh, With vaccines that God gave the scientists an opportunity to figure out how this works. Everybody's measuring anybody's. They're probably relevant. But as we know, that's a long question. We need a quick answer. So it's like the level of virus in the nasopharynx of a person who's vaccinated and infected is the same level as the level of virus in the nasopharynx of an unvaccinated person. Right. That's the reason why we ask you to wear a mask 
after you've been vaccinated, but... Obviously, we don't have a complete understanding of the nature of the way that the vaccine works in terms of producing immune response. We're never going to learn about how safe the vaccine is unless you start giving it. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanization before um, it's entered the market? No. I would say there is no established correlate of protection. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. Thank you. That was a quick answer. Is there a sound for a bubble history. bursting? It's a story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.